of the horrible things in store for you. And after your weird experiences, I will return to lead you out of the darkness of death back to life. disaster like eating a burrito before sex happy new year dear listeners as we usher in another season of thsp we have another great lineup of podcast episodes we think you guys will enjoy this season if you're new to the podcast i'm tim casda with the always delectable suave and savvy chris koenig so welcome or welcome back. Tonight we have got an episode for you. Tonight we'll be covering three, count them, not one, not two, but three strange flicks sure to titillate your eardrums and senses and also a brand new Kids Corner with Nate. We call this episode that Ray Dennis Steckler Retrospective Part 1. So with that out of the way, how was your holiday break, my good man? Oh, yes, Tim. Well, my break was uh, all right. I just spent uh, Christmas with mom and as well as New Year's uh, Eve and day with mom, too. So but I mean, not not a whole lot going on out here. Uh, We haven't gotten hit by any big snow yet, but I do believe uh, you guys did, didn't you? Well, you know, as of (laughs) as of this recording, which is, uh, well, the first one of probably a couple is January 15th, uh, 2023. We've in Minnesota, we've got about mm, two and a half, three feet of snow. That's not kind of drifting. (laughs) It's, it's, it's cold, dude. I'm not gonna lie. It's cold. Uh, in fact, I think we're going to go sledding probably in a couple hours with some friends uh, nearby with some, you know, it's, it's all good. (laughs) Well, you picked, well, you picked Minnesota, but I shouldn't be I shouldn't be talking. I'm still oh, out here in Illinois. So. so literally, I really, it's not where I would have liked to been. Honestly, it would be maybe Hawaii or I don't Arizona, Florida, California, Florida, Texas. Goddamn anywhere where there's no goddamn snow. Like literally, I mean, look, truth be told, truth be told, I love snow. I do. I love sledding. I love skiing. I love doing all that wonderful stuff. However, however. There is a but, and a big one. <laughs> I want to do that three or four times a year. Other than that, I don't. I can't deal with the twenty below zero bullshit. That is not me, and that's going to be happening very soon in February, and part of March. Well, that's, that's not going. We're not going to lie, you know. Yeah, I'm thinking that's going to happen too out here as well. So yeah, yeah, but you got more like Seattle weather. We've got. We, I, I don't know how Chicago became Seattle, but you got like Seattle weather. You got like 50 degrees, 40, 30, 20, but it's always rainy. No snow. <laughs> how yeah, that is true. I don't know how. Yeah. I don't know why we got that. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know what, what what kind of like 
devil you deal you work to the devil however i'm like so for the kids aspect i'm glad they have this so we can go sledding and all that great stuff and build snowmen but because that's the, i wouldn't have that if we were here or if i was there i should say but ugh, i'd like to visit it <laughs> the end <laughs> but uh no uh but Besides the weather thing, I've also been well. You know, Tim and I are constantly like spitballing show ideas and everything. For those of you out there, who always think, and forever, Chris. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For those of you who think how we do this, you know, no, we we don't have like a Doctor Strangelove underground bunker where we sit there and go through filing cabinets and create flow flow charts and graphs and God. We usually just like we'll like go. <laughs> so like Tim will go, "Hey, Chris, so what do you think about this idea?" And I'll probably go, "Oh, you know what that." sounds pretty yeah. good let's pencil that in you or, know, or, or, or vice versa or vice I mean, versa yeah or like you know what let's save that one down the line that one's yeah. a little more ex- extensive so yeah so and in the case of this episode which i'll go into a little more detail when we get to it um i actually was hoping to do this particular retrospective last year i, I as i can recall but i think i put it off or no maybe it wasn't last year maybe it was the year before because oh no no this is no, on Chris's mind, ladies and gentlemen, because no, I had no, 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 no. I, 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 no but, I had no prior knowledge to this. No, actually, sort of, because we were going to do this one, uh-huh. and then back for, I think it was 2021, and then suddenly I changed my mind and said, no, we're doing the Empire Pictures retrospective. For That's the probably it, yeah. You, and you, also you, because you had a plethora was, of fucking movies. Yes, and also there was talk about there being a blu-ray box set of the films made by the this particular director we're going to be talking about for the next couple episodes down the line but anyways so i kind of wanted to hold off on that too so so it was kind of i guess a catch 22 if you will (laughs) yeah yeah but uh, no we're still trying to come up with some episode ideas we've got a couple of them in the pipeline for you all so no worries there uh but also i've been catching up on a couple of movies that i bought um because yes for anybody out there that's interested in knowing yes i still buy you know blu-rays and some dvds on amazon we both do chris we both do i know but in this day and age people are all about i know why don't you just do the streaming and everything but like no i'd like to actually own you know the release so so streaming is convenient i I, i'll I'll be the first to admit it it is convenient however if there's a chance to own for me to own the physical copy and also streaming i'm gonna go for it but continue on no, so um, I recently got – actually, recently, I'd say back in December, early December, I got the uh, Aero Video um, Shaw Scope box set, Volume 2. It's all the more Shaw Brothers, you know, Chop Saki uh, <laughs> Kung Fu movies. But it's also got a very odd horror movie in there called The Boxer's Omen, and uh, maybe one day we'll tackle that one. It's uh, it's a very bizarre little movie. <laughs> but, Ooh, okay. but also, uh, a movie just came out on Blu-ray recently that arrived a couple days ago that I finally watched. So let me kind of give some uh, backstory on this particular movie, because this film has not been seen, believe it or not, since its release back in 1967. Oh, wow. That's a long time. Yeah. Yeah. In South Korea. This is a movie that I remember reading about when I was in the middle nine, mid 1990s. I had bought this big, uh, book. It was called Phil Hardy's 
encyclopedia of science fiction films and it had like you know this catalog of titles and reviews for these movies from like the early 1920s up until the early 1990s so it had like you know it had and it had stuff in there like John Carpenter's they live and you know any kind of science fiction related movie in it but there was one movie in that book that I always wanted to see but it was never available and it was mentioned in this book and as it turned out every other movie fan that's into science fiction monster movies heard about this film in this book and it's called uh space monster wang magi and it was made in 1967 south korea basically it's about aliens trying to take over the the earth and they decide to send this giant monster in to go on a rampage in south korea <laughs> and i remember reading about it and i'm like oh, i'd love to see this movie and but it was never available on home video. It was thought to be lost, but it really wasn't. The film elements are held or at least recorded at the Korean Film Archive. Yeah. And it took years for this thing to finally make it on Blu-ray. And it's not a great movie at all, but it's definitely entertaining and fun <laughs> and bizarre. I can I can see how that would be, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's just I mean, it, it's definitely B movie science fiction, you know, pap, but it's it's but it was nice to see it because like I said, it was believed at one point that it was lost. And then the other thing was that it was reviewed in this book. So, so it was like, how did this person see this movie? It was, you know, because I was, when I was a young kid back then, <laughs> when I was a young kid back then, I thought, you know. How young were you, Chris? <laughs> well, I forget the age I was. But I thought every movie that was made was always on VHS, you know, when VHS was still, you know, prevalent. And that turned out to be not <laughs> true. You know, not every movie made it on home video. Even to, even to this day, even to this day with Blu-ray and streaming, not every movie gets on from the from like 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. I have no it's, idea what you're talking about, you old what? man. Oh, but you know what I'm saying. I get, like, I get it, yeah. yes, yes. But there's, there's all these rare movies out there that never make it on home video. And then here comes this one that I have always wanted to see, and I and I can finally cross this film off my your bucket my, list, uh, my bucket list of movies that I always <laughs> wanted to see. Because you got to think about it, Tim. I mean, you got if you if you love if you love you know giant monster movies and Godzilla flicks as a kid, and you read that in this book, reading about this film, it's like, oh, I want to see this. Oh, sorry, not available. It hasn't been seen since you know 1967, <laughs> and, and it's like, and we don't even know if the movie's by been 15 seen. people. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the other thing though too. If the movie hadn't been seen, I had always wondered, well, how did this guy review this movie? Because right, no, you totally. Well, like, and I remember back then, I forget how I did this, but I actually contacted through a letter. You know, back when you used to write letters. Oh, I, I, I don't know what your, that is. You're, you're, uh, you're, yeah, you're, yeah. You're, there was no email, folks. It was regular snail mail letter writing. I gotta put $3.50 postage. <laughs> yeah. I, I wrote to the publisher asking how they someone saw this movie, and the publisher wrote back saying they have no idea, because all the reviews that were written in this book were not written by the guy that compiled that compiled it Phil Hardy they were reviews from like varying reviewers oh, so really? it was like oh. how did how did this film get get seen if if, if you know so it was one of those weird mysteries that never really seemed to get explained and this movie was and 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 whenever you encountered 
film reference books that you know talked about monster movies, this movie would get mentioned. Yeah, if, but it was always the same rundown plot: aliens send a giant monster called Wang Maggie to destroy South Korea, and it's like, okay, but how did you see this movie? <laughs> and it's mm-hmm. quite possible they just went off the information that was written in the uh, Phil Hardy book. But anyways, mm-hmm. it's uh, the reason why I'm telling you this is because it was just nice to see it. Because like I said. You got to think about that as a young kid in the 90s into these movies, reading about it, thinking and, and, and there was a point where I forgot about the movie, too. So obviously. But then, you know, I think many years later when I had heard that the Korean film archive had found like the original camera negative and, and release print and it's it's like, OK, well, hey, you know, that'd be great. Um I hope they put it out on home video and the archive said, now. <laughs> because, you know, and that's weird too. I don't, I'm not trying to knock it, but right. the Korean film archive, they're like too busy restoring the important movies. And it's like, well, you got like your first early giant monster movie. That's kind of like part of your history, <laughs> but what do right. I know? So anyways, somebody else picked up the rights and put it out on home video in the States. And now it's available for all to see. And finally, you the people who've been asking questions about this movie can finally check it out and see if it's worth your time. And it's, it's, you know, maybe one day we'll review it, but I mean, it was definitely an amusing little movie. There's like a moment in the film where, um, this little, this little like homeless kid, you know, he, he's, he grabs his knife and he says, if I ever run into this monster, I'm going to attack it. And sure enough, right. it runs to the monster and the monster's like King Kong size. And, <laughs> and, and the kid literally like climbs up the monster's back and like runs around in its head and like, you know, cuts the eardrums and like, you know, is trying to attack it. And the monster's carrying this, um, this woman in her, in its hand, because this, this woman is supposed to get married to a, um, Korean air force major pilot that, gets called away from the wedding to like monitor the monster's activity and the creature attacks the wedding and, 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 and abducts the, the bride <laughs> <laughs> and is going around South going around Seoul, destroying buildings while carrying this, this poor woman. And it's <laughs> wow. Wow. It's wow. 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 Crazy little movie. But anyways, yeah. yeah. So just bringing that up as an interesting little event, uh, and, and by the way, Tim, this is probably the most everybody has heard me talking about something <laughs> that has happened. <laughs> it's some movie I watched. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. No, it, it definitely doubt that definitely does sound like something that would, we would cover in a future, uh, THSP episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't expect it anytime soon though. I mean, we got, oh, other oh stuff like that, but I've got so much stuff and not yeah. including what you have. Like, yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> so uh besides what i've been up to how about you there good oh stuff? well since our last recording um you know we did our christmas episode and then we went on break um well let's see i went back to illinois for a little bit uh and then we came home back to minnesota uh and then we went back to wisconsin for a little bit uh that was where my daughter was competing in her her last um gymnastics uh finale uh of her of the season i guess um for uh for this year um and she did well she competed in state uh, i think i mentioned this probably in another podcast episode she mentioned she went first in i believe bars in the state of minnesota and she went third overall then this this is a friendly match um uh, so it's not something that you would really i, I guess 
be count. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure how it all works in the in the end, but how, and I don't mean to downplay anything. Like, I really don't. I just, I don't know. However, so the, the final match he had was about, I, I think, a week or two ago, and we were in, uh, we were, we were, the, the Dells, we were in Wisconsin Dells, we were at the, uh, center for, uh, over at the, um, at, at, at Kalahari, the Kalahari, uh, resort. And she was phenomenal. She did great. She got first, I believe, in floor and third overall. So she did really well and she's, and she's continuing to progress. And I'm, I can't be more proud of my daughter. And she's awesome. And also, my son is, uh, doing very well over at Redline, and he's preparing for his uh, football and baseball season, which is coming up very shortly. And we're we're also preparing for this for this season, a uh, season nine of THSP. I, oh I mean, I can't believe it. I'm like, <laughs> dude, Chris, you and I, you and I, we've been doing this for. Oh my God! I don't even know how many years. I mean, I remember you huddling over my old laptop back in Bolingbrook <laughs> in I, I want to say what 2012, maybe, <laughs> mm-hmm. and 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 doing something we co- we were called the the podcast uh, was it that Super Evil Vampire Robot Podcast of Doom? Yeah, no, that was back with Mark and and Ken and and Dave and 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 Mark was I, I got to give credit where credit is due. Mark was the one that. Um, that called me to be part of that because oh, because yeah. he was he I mean he told me that well we need we need someone to help kind of oh. like you know bring bring some expertise here because he he had told me about the um the infamous first recording that was done and he yeah I, yeah. I kept asking him like can I listen to it and he goes no no well why no. It's, it's just and he was just like. He made it sound like it didn't turn out very well. It, 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 it was it was extremely rough. It was myself, Dave Rodriguez, as as you remember from our our previous uh, Thanksgiving episodes and right. our Christmas episode, and you know, super evil about Rob, super super evil. Robot or something. Whoa, God. Super evil, super evil vampire robot podcast to do. Thank yes. you, my Never God. <laughs> Thank you, Severpod. Jesus Christ, my Lord. Anyway. Uh, that w- w- with Dave and Ken Zuckerman, and it was a lot of fun. We had a lot of we had a blast. I, th- I want to say we recorded one of our very early episodes. I want to say in my basement in uh, Bolingbrook, Illinois. Yeah. Well. Oh. Yeah. And then and then uh, I think we did it for a year and a half, and then yeah. the Severpod was we bequeathed we, to you, me, and Dave. Right. And, and, and then kinda, we made a go of it for a year. Right. And then, and then you, Dave had. T- issues come up and he had to separate and then it was fine it was and, fine. and and that's how thsp was born uh mm-hmm. i, I want to say about i want to say probably what 20 what i want to say 2013 or 14 no 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 no, so, no, 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 no. So, okay so if so yeah, if, you, yeah. if you, this, is, this is season nine we're yeah. starting season nine so maybe eight years ago so i'm thinking what 2015 no 14, 13? Uh, I don't want to be 2016. You know what? Let's, you know, let's do 2015. Let's just call it that. <laughs> Maybe 2016. But it, was, but it was so long ago, though. And, and um, yeah. And um, the fact that we managed to make it uh, after doing that incredibly long Empire Pictures retrospective just goes to show. Yeah. How- well, <laughs> and, well and, here, and here's the thing is that is that first season was a, the first few seasons were a lot of the first 
I want to say two, three seasons were a lot of fun because we were, you and I were together. We were in Studio 300, which is in uh, the uh, the basement of the Bolingbrook Public Library, which is by far, honestly, the best public library that I have ever seen. Oh, yeah. yeah no, since or just, before. Right. Good studio facility and everything. It, 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 it definitely... It definitely helped. Not saying that what we're doing here isn't helping. No, 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 no. But but our early episodes really benefited from having a uh, a crack team of specialists that were involved in radio and broadcast at one point yeah. or another. Mm-hmm. And and it was we had we had a, a soundproof booth. We had all this wonderful technology at the top of our game. And it was just a wonderful experience, and I will I, w- I could never be more grateful than Studio Three Hundred. And I know I recorded a few episodes with uh, uh, actually Katie for, with our episodes uh, for um, uh, Supernatural called the Men of Letters podcast, which is kind of lie dormant for a while, um, which I hope to bring back soon. Which there there's no 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 timetable for that right now. But my my case be, my my point being is that. Studio 300 was amazing. It continues to be amazing. So if you're in the Bolingbrook or Downers Grove or Illinois area around that area, check out Studio 300. They are an amazing group of people, and they will help you uh, get your podcast or your video podcast or whatever it is off the ground. They are amazing. I love Studio 300. So, okay, Christopher, um, do you have anything else you'd like to add? No, I think uh, we've covered uh, what's been going on between between us uh, when we're not on the show. And uh, I think, uh, I mean, uh, you know, Tim, do, do you is there a uh, Nate's Kids Corner coming around the uh, uh, side here? <laughs> Christopher, you are correct, sir. Yes. Why don't we break for our Kids Corner segment for January, well, actually February, <laughs> and we'll be right back after this. Hi, I'm Nate, and welcome to Kids Corner with my dad, Tim. Hey, that's me. Uh, Kids Corner will cover family-friendly films and TV shows. And maybe not-so-family-friendly movies. <laughs> so, listen in. I know you're frightened. You're terribly frightened by what you've seen. But I'm not gonna lie to you. Your friends are not prepared for this fight. Hawkins will fall. My friends need me. You're not ready. to stop not until he's taken everyone let's do it but i have this terrible feeling it might not work out for us this time I just want you to watch.
Welcome back to THSP Season 9. Welcome back to a new season of Kids Corner. I'm Nate and I'm joined by my dad. Hey, what's going on, buddy boy? Good. All right. How are you enjoying uh, being a big fifth grader, being a king of the school? <laughs> Good. It's funny because next year we'll be the smallest kids in school, the youngest ones. Yes, you'll be the incoming freshman of... Uh, Middle school. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, Nate, what are we going to be talking about uh, today? The Stranger Things Season 4 finale. Okay. Season 4 was a barn burner. Um, lots of great characters. Probably the, one of the best seasons. Yeah. Lots. Of, yes, I, I agree. Lots of great characters. Uh, I feel like this is the second act of a third act play, um, much like um, Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. Uh, where all the, uh, the, the group the, the, of heroes... Of, and Hawkins are split apart from the end of season three and 11 and Mike and <clears throat> everyone are out in California and everyone out, and the rest of them are back in Hawkins trying to move on with their lives. Um, and then we realize the story of Vecna and uh, things are not as quiet yeah. as they seem. We get some really interesting characters like the uh, pizza boy. Yeah. <laughs> if you haven't seen Season four, though, maybe hold off on watching or listening the, to this. Yeah, segment. and then go watch it because we are only doing the the last episode, which is like two hours and thirty minutes long. It's it's, it's, it's very long. long. It's, it's a long show because most because even though that each Stranger Things season has about like six or seven episodes, the episodes are about like thirty minutes long. No, no, most Stranger Things episodes are about forty five minutes long, but the season finale was about almost like, two hours. Like a length of like a movie. Yes, the season finale is a length of a movie, yes. Yeah. Um but yes, we get the we, we get, we're introduced to a great new character, yeah. Eddie. Yeah. Um, Out of all the characters, because in every season one character dies, like in the first season it was the, Barb. I, Barb, yeah, I forget what her name was. And then second season was Bob. And then the third season, I forget who it was. Oh, oh, it was Billy. I remember. Yeah, Billy. Billy died. And then in this season, Eddie died. Mm -hmm. That was probably... I liked Eddie the most out of all the characters in the cast. Oh, yeah, Eddie. Yeah, uh, and his... Uh, there's a great uh, rendition that he does... On top with a with a uh, I think a Fender Stratocaster guitar yeah. where he plays Master of the Puppets. Oh yeah, uh, from Metallica, which is just completely uh, amazing. Master of the Puppets, yeah, yeah, just completely amazing. Mm -hmm. um, but then you get the the the, the what was the, the pizza guy, the stoner pizza guy. Uh, oh 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 um um I forget his name. Argyle. Argyle, yeah, Ar yeah Ar Argyle. Yeah, and then you get. Um, Oh, that's a really good one. So, yeah. You know, you get the return of Matthew Modine as Dr. Martin Bender. You got uh, Paul Reiser. Returning, Brenner. Brenner, sorry. Uh, returning. We got Paul Reiser re returning as uh, Dr. Sam Owens. Uh, lots of great characters uh, from the previous seasons uh -huh. uh, are still in, in yeah. the make appearances that are in yeah. it. Um, but yeah, the, the it's, uh, Hopper is still alive. Yeah. He's uh, in a Russian like prison. prisons, prison somewhere where they were going to be like feeding uh, the prisoners to this to the Demogorgon. Um, yeah. So, um. Should we get on with the with yeah, the so, summary or yeah, whatever? So it's why called? don't uh, yes. So Nate, why don't we uh, have have you read the fine synopsis provided by uh, the great people at Wikipedia? And uh, let's do that thing, yeah. right? All right, let's go. All right, take it away, Nate. Chapter nine. The Piggyback. Written by the Duffer Brothers, directed by the Duffer Brothers, original air date July 1st, 2022. 
The Hawking groups interact their plan. Max, Lucas, and Erica go to the Creole house for Max to lure Vecna out, while Steve, Nancy, and Robin go to its upside-down counterpart to attack Vecna. Dustin and Eddie distract the back, with Eddie sacrificing himself in the process. J- Jason enters the Creole house and fights Lucas, destroying Max's cassette tape and headphone, trapping her with Vecna. With no isolation tank 411, no way to reach Hawkins in time, the California group creates an isolation tank 411 to enter Max's mind and fight Vecna. Vecna overwhelms her, revealing to Eleven that he that he has controlled the Upside Down ever since she sent him there. Vecna forces Eleven to watch as he begins kill, begins killing Max. Mike professes his love to Eleven, giving her strength back, giving her the strength to break Vecna's control over Max. Unfortunately, Max dies from her injuries. Hopper, Joyce, and Murray re-enter the prison to kill the remaining Demogorgons, weakening Vecna, Steve, no, weakening Vecna. Steve, Robin, and Nancy set Vecna's physical form ablazing in shooting him, apparently killing him. Eleven uses her powers to restart Max's heartbeat, but later, but later's brief death allows Vecna's gates to open and tear through Hawkins, killing Jason and destroying parts of town. Two days later, the town is recovering from an earthquake. The California group arrives in Hawkins, reuniting everyone while Max return, while Re- Max remains in a comatosis. As Joyce Hopper reunite with their children, Will senses that Vecna is still alive. The Upside Down begins invading Hawkins. Okay, so Nate. Mm-hmm. What are your top three favorite moments of this episode? Um, probably my number one favorite was when Eddie played Master of the Puppets. Okay. And then my second favorite is probably where um the where the California group was at um another of the surfer pizza yeah P- boys. pizza boys and pizza then shop. they were at another one of them and then they had a they were like doing with this funny interaction with the other with the other worker to get to get all the salt from oh, the <laughs> yeah uh, how much salt do you need i don't know about 500 pounds <laughs> um my third favorite moment would probably be when um nancy steve and uh i forget her name uh robin were um Beating the hell out of Vecna. Uh, yeah. Okay. Beating him to a bloody pulp. So um, that yeah, that those are all fantastic yeah. moments. I I like the very end. Uh, obviously, Master of Puppets for me is it was great. It was a great throwback, and that that song came out around that same time uh, time frame. So that was um, amazing. Um, and then you had the earthquake at the end where they think they defe- defeated Vecna. Yeah, and, everybody thought it was like right. an earthquake that but that. Went to a different. I dimension. was so happy to see Jason Jason's character get cut in half because that guy was a complete prick. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, it was, it's not Eddie, man. It's not Eddie. Yeah. Uh, it's, I think I think there was a save Eddie petition at one point. <laughs> yeah, they're like at the very like when everybody was um everybody was done with season four, like everybody finished watching season four. Every they're all over social media. There was like hashtag have Eddie come back. Alive in well, season five. Yeah, well, 
Uh, well, yeah, and there was uh, after season one, if you all remember, hashtag justice for Barb. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Barb was, only yeah, was in the pool on the upside down and yeah. she got eaten by the Demogorgon. Yeah, so I think I would love to, to hopefully eventually tie it in where we see Eddie and Barb, maybe in an afterlife sequence or, or something. I don't know about Billy and Bob. They weren't all, uh, I love, I liked them. I liked them, but I just don't think people really cared for the character. I loved Bob. And Bob was funny. Yeah, Billy, I could care less about Billy. Billy's redemption at the end was um, it felt too tacked on, and I could, and he was such a jerk Idiot. and an asshole for like two seasons. I could like, you know what, whatever, dude. Yeah, you're toast. Him. Um. Anyway, and I know the whole thing where you well, he had a tortured childhood. Blah 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 blah. Don't care. Still, an asshole is still an asshole. Is still an asshole, no matter how. An you asshole is an asshole, no matter how try hard you try to make it turn it around. Right. Anyway, so uh, Nate, would you recommend this uh, series to any of your good friends? Uh, yeah, I would. Okay. Yeah. Um. And on a scale of one to ten, one being not so scary, ten being super duper scary. What would you rate this? Uh, the first three seasons were kind of zeros because they just weren't scary. I just didn't find them scary. Okay. The fourth one would be like a two or a three. Okay. It was the most violent. Okay. Well, that is your opinion, sir. Yeah. Um. So, Nate, where do you see season five heading? Um, I would see season five heading probably in the direction of the Hawkins group because... Just like in Star Wars, like they just came out of this big battle with Vecna, which they kind of lost more mm -hmm. one. It depends on how you look at it, because in the Empire Strikes Back, the Rebels lost. So, in, but in like the Return of the Jedi, they came back and defeated the Emperor and stuff. I see it go kind of going like that. Okay. And okay. I see, um, like the band. This, the band is back together. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Hawkins. Um, and I would see that, um. We're going to have a new main villain. I mean, Vecna will... I think Vecna would still be in it, but there would be, like, a new main monster. Like, in Season 1, it was the Demogorgon. In Season 2 and okay. 3, it was the Shadow Monster, a.k.a. the... I forget his name. Okay. The... Yeah. yeah. Um, I feel like since in the Season 1 opening scene, you know how there was, like, they were playing D&D, &D, and then... There was like the zombie characters. I forget their names. Um, I feel like that's gonna be the new villain of the season, like okay. the zombie characters. Well, season five is the season uh, is a series finale um, of Stranger Things. Didn't you tell me there's gonna be like some offsprings? Not offsprings or spinoffs. 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 Uh, yes, the the Duffer Brothers have said that the wow, this concludes a chapter of uh. Uh, the, the, these uh, some of the most of the characters in Hawkins. There will be spinoffs and following other characters from Hawkins uh, in a different series. So uh, be on the lookout for that. <clears throat> um, and also, there's probably going to be a nice time jump from from where things left off in season four to season five. Who knows? We may even dip our toe into uh, the nine the nineteen nineties with the fashions and stuff like that. I could see that definitely going someplace yeah, in season because four. I feel like in season four it was like Or season five, sorry. In like season four, I feel like it was kinda like eighty nine, maybe it like was, late eighties, kinda early nineties. Yeah, mid eight mid eighties, yeah. yeah. Anyway, I, I can definitely see a time jump of about three or four years. Somewhere within the season five um uh season. So uh, with that, Nate, is there anything else you'd like to add before we bounce out of here for this uh, month's Kids Corner? Um, yeah. Um, I would like to add, I wonder what, like, next 
um, like, for the next season, it would, would it be, like, because I remember in, like, season one, it was during, like, Christmas time, and in season two, it was summer, and no, then uh, season two, two was, was uh, Halloween, season three was summer. Oh, yeah, th season three was summer, so, and season four, this past season, season four was fall, so it would either be Christmas or springtime. Yeah, who knows? I think they would, I think it would go more towards Christmas. Yeah, yeah they, they may do a full tilt circle back to Christmas. There's only four seasons in, yeah. in the Midwest. Um, and all over the world, but it's more in the Midwest that you well, get this summer, winter, fall. Well, in Minnesota, where we live, it's kind. There's really only two seasons. There's the hot season, and then there's the cold season. <laughs> all right. Thanks for listening. All right. Take care, guys. Have a good Bye. night. Bye. Yep. All right, Christopher, take it away, my good man. All right, so this is uh, episode one of what we have dubbed the Ray Dennis Steckler retrospective um, episode, and because um, he's bald and hot. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but um, uh, well, he sometimes he wore a toupee, and depending <laughs> on what movie it was, um, Clash. Crash. Right. But um, anyways, um, this this particular filmmaker is kind of uh, has a little bit of a, uh, a special connection to yours truly here because Ray kind of embodies the the I guess you could say living and breathing spirit of an individual that's all about, you know, the concept of making movies and making movies independently. Now, uh, Ray isn't really a big uh, home name figure in the horror genre, despite the fact that he did do quite a few horror movies. And if you look at his filmography as a whole, that's kind of the genre that makes up most of his films. But um, I do think he is one of those filmmakers that deserves just a little bit of his due here. So uh, we're going to, um, we're going to be uh, talking quite a bit about his work and uh, I'm going to start it off real right here. Okay. Yes. So, uh, on January 7th of 2009, it was reported cult filmmaker Ray Dennis Steckler passed away at the age of 70 in Las Vegas, Nevada. Steckler wasn't a famous filmmaker by any means, and his death was treated as somewhat of a minor footnote by the whole drive-in exploitation cult movie world. Uh, but despite his passing, Steckler did have a very small cult following. Thanks both to the various films he made in the 60s up until the 1980s and by Steckler's own persistence to keep his work available for those who wish to see them. He made genre films that certainly were unconventional by mainstream standards, producing his work outside of the Hollywood norm. And sadly, either by accident or by design, Steckler was pigeonholed as a minimalist filmmaker by negative detractors eager to take apart his work. And when one watches his films, it's easy to do just that. After all, when you make films on shoestring budgets, shot in your own backyard and featuring friends, family, and some minor professional types playing parts in front of the camera, the critics certainly will not be kind. Even today, the critics are still not kind. Uh, on one of Steckler's movies reviewed at Letterboxd.com, a reviewer opened with the statement of, quote, Ray Dennis Steckler needed better friends sometimes, unquote, and proceeded to state that would have helped Steckler by not making any movies at all. And unfortunately, even after his death, some of the obits were just as unkind uh wired.com drummed up a short obit making sure to add that steckler was quote best known to most movie and tv fans through the ridiculing of his work via mystery science theater 3000 unquote a rather snide 
obit posted at popmatters.com featuring the headline it's a shame about ray opened with quote some directors don't deserve the reputation they eventually earn unquote and then wrote about steckler's output with such half-assed research statements such as quote he fell into filmmaking by accident unquote which was totally untrue steckler was making eight millimeter films when he was a kid and it was his dream to become a successful filmmaker and, of course, some obits loved to recall Steckler's fall from cinematic grace when they mentioned he directed a slew of hardcore pornos in the 70s and 80s. Sexy. Under a, yep, under a variety of aliases. Indeed, that period was certainly a low point in Steckler's life that he vehemently— but Was it, though? It was. For him, he vehemently denied ever making them, oh. even though there were telltale signs that he did, in fact, make them. Even his ex-wife, Carolyn Brandt, appeared in them. Non-hardcore performances, though, only boys, okay? Oh. So, yeah, <laughs> so it's true. Ray Dennis Steckler isn't for everyone. Considering the negative reviews he's gotten over the years and his minor cult following, you might be fo- wondering, why are we even talking about this guy? Well... Like I said, let's just say yours truly shares the same enthusiasm this guy had for wanting to make movies. So, Ray Dennis Steckler does matter, even in death. Hell, just last year, Severn Films released his movies and even some of his hardcore titles in a deluxe Blu-ray box set titled The Incredibly Strange Films of Ray Dennis Steckler. And it's a box set that is worth the purchase for anyone who who is into movies made by an outsider. So, And yes, Severn Films certainly did the Lord's work, so even they believe in Ray Dennis Stickler as well. Now, um, putting honesty before cult fandom here, uh, Ray Dennis Stickler was not an unknown cinematic genius, and he was certainly not akin to Schlockmeister extraordinaire Ed Wood either. Wood's filmic hack work is legendary from not spending the money to make his films proper and even going as far as not paying anybody on time to madly typing uninformed ideas into a plotless screenplay to directing movies with zero sense of creativity on a common sense level. In the case of Ray Dennis Steckler, he took whatever money he had in his hands, be it $600 or even as low as 20 bucks, and put it into his films and cranked out what was suitable enough for the drive-ins at the time, as well as injecting his own personal cinematic styles and influences into the films that he made. Steckler relied less on actual written scripts and instead turned to improvisation, as he felt that making a film should be like creating an adventure, and that a fully formed screenplay left little room to adjust the material during production. And because of his usage of improvisation, Steckler's films managed to deliver the unexpected. He sometimes made his own movies with personal friends and associates serving as actors, but at the same time allowed them to be themselves for the part rather than demanding them to play a specific role. On the surface, most of Steckler's films play like reasonably polished productions, but on a small scale with a simple straight line story that does not tax your patience too much. And yet, with all that said, it's easy to see why Ray Dennis Steckler doesn't have a bigger cult following than the tradition of, say, that other maven of drive-in exploitation trash horror that was Herschel Gordon Lewis. Even if Lewis wasn't trying to reinvent the wheel by making gore films like Blood Feast and 2000 Maniacs, he still became a pioneer by default and is remembered for them, good or bad. Steckler wasn't trying to create a specific trend or attempting to reinvent the concept of movie making through his own cinematic output, be it horror or otherwise. And Steckler just wanted to entertain the audience as much as his budget and his talent pool would allow. Adding to it, Unlike Lewis's own market-mindedness towards his own product and realizing the exact audience he would be reaching for, Ray Dennis Steckler didn't operate in that vacuum at all. In fact, while Steckler's movies do have a certain have certain minor elements one is looking for in cheap exploitation-themed horror movies, most of his movies 
almost have nothing commercial or market minded about them to be easily sold to a low common denominator audience. Or as one person said in regards to Ray and his limited connection with the drive-in crowd, if you want to make cheap exploitation genre pictures, remember the number one rule. Don't be an artist. <laughs> and in the case of Ray Dennis Deckler, he would rather be an artist to create a film by any means necessary rather than become just one of the many dozen low-budget types cranking out the same old, same old. And Steckler's own statement that he made on the late 1980s UK produce the incredibly strange film show nearly confirms that theory. And we'll let Ray himself tell you. What's that should appeal to what do I think my appeal is yeah. to the public? Uh, I hope it's originality. I hope when they see my movies, they can say only one thing, that they've never seen one like it by anybody else or anything even close. I mean, that's what I strive for. I, I don't want to be like anybody else. So buckle up, horror fans, for we are going down the Ray Dennis Steckler rabbit hole, and there is just no escape. Ooh la la. So, born on January 25th of 1938 in Reading, Pennsylvania, Ray Dennis Steckler spent much of his childhood being exposed to cinema, watching anything that played on the local movie theater in his hometown. Steckler's mother managed to purchase an 8mm camera, and soon he was off making his own home movies with friends. In the middle to late 1950s, Steckler studied cinematography while in the military, and once his service was up, Steckler made the trek to Hollywood to embark on a movie-making career in some capacity. Of course, getting into the Hollywood industry is not an easy task, as it sounds, and therefore, Ray spent the early 60s doing minor work on TV and mainstream films. At one point, Steckler shot a short film called Goof on the Loose in 1959, but it was not released as a short subject until 1964. Despite being dialogue-free and containing only music and over-the-top sound effects, the short was Steckler's loving homage to comedies of the silent era like Charles Chaplin and Buster Keaton. It was also during this period that Steckler met and would eventually marry Carolyn Brandt, an aspiring actress and dancer, and who would serve as leading lady in several of Ray's own movies. 1962 would be an interesting year for Ray Dennis Steckler as a non-union cinematographer in low-budget cinema. Busy character actor Timothy Carey, who managed to play small parts in films by the likes of directors such as Andre de Toth, Stanley Kubrick, Sam Fuller, and John Cassavetes, just to name a few, was financing his own epic titled The World's Greatest Sinner. Featuring Carey as a down-and-out insurance salesman who becomes a both a rock singer, politician, and preacher who eventually challenges the legitimacy of God, the world's greatest sinner boasts some music composed by none other than Frank Zappa, and the film has gone to become quite the cult oddity. But during production, Carey was self-financing the project, and he hired Steckler to serve as cinematographer for a brief period until the production was on and off. But no worries, for in addition to working as a pro cameraman, Steckler managed to dabble a little in the acting department as well. On Wild Ones on Wheels from 1962, Steckler was both cinematographer as well as playing the role of a beatnik thug. In Ega from 1962, Steckler <laughs> plays a brief stunt role in which a Neanderthal monster, played by a then-young and then-unknown Richard Keel, shoves Ray into a backyard swimming pool. After working on EGOD, that film's producer, Art Charles Sr., was running his own production company called Fairway International Pictures and decided to give Ray a shot at directing a movie called Wild Guitar in 1962. Produced as a starring vehicle for Art Charles Sr.'s son, singer, musician, Art Charles Jr., Steckler's first intro in making a feature-length film, utilizing a completed script and having very little creative control over the final product. 
Steckler was unimpressed with the dialogue and wanted to change things around for the better, but Archall Sr. made sure that that was not going to happen. Steckler also realized that he wasn't going to have much creative freedom in regards to casting on Wild Guitar. At one point, Steckler wanted to cast a black actor that he worked with in the role of a thug named Stake. However, while Archall Sr. had no qualms with the said performer's ability, the producer did express concerns that casting a black actor in a minor role might cause issues with drive-in sales in southern states. Yeah, I know. But to use that tired old saying, it was a different time. Therefore, Steckler... <clears throat> yep. Therefore, Steckler ended up playing the role himself and utilizing the acting alias Cash Flag to hide the fact that the director was also serving as side actor as well. The wildest strings in this mad, mad town, Hollywood. Now look, kid, let's get something straight right now. You're the one that wants to be a star, not me. You don't love me anymore. Hit me! An all-American boy sings his way into your hearts. Like thousands of kids who come to Hollywood every year, see Arch Hall Jr. in the swingingest musical action picture of the year. He's skating all the time. We can't have that. He wants a girl. Get one for him. Nothing could shake him from his goal. Not even Daisy. A frenzy of music and action. From Fairway International Films, the swingingest picture of the year, T.R. Hall Jr. and Nancy Czar in... Wild guitar. After his experience as director and actor on Wild Guitar, Raiden Steckler certainly wanted to make movies, but this time he wanted total creative freedom, and he knew that wouldn't happen if he was working for other people as a director for hire. Luckily, Steckler managed to find a new business partner and friend by the name of George J. Morgan. Originally from the Midwest and a successful business entrepreneur, Morgan also wanted to break into the movies as a producer, but he did not exactly know how to start, and the closed gates of Hollywood wasn't offering any breaks to newbies from the Midwest. Steckler and Morgan decided to make a movie together. Ray would direct and act in the film, and George would pony up thirty-eight grand total for the production. Looking towards the drive-in market and seeing that horror movies were commercial, the commercial way to go, the two would conceive a project called Face of Evil, involving an evil carnival gypsy, a hypnotized teen turned psycho killer, and some disfigured zombies. However, because of Steckler's improvisational attitude, the project would become a little bigger than intended, with the addition of shooting in Eastman color and featuring some musical numbers as well. Steckler managed to bag three cinematographers, one of specific notes and the other two unknowns that would years later become top mainstream cameramen. One was Joseph V. Michelli, who had gone to write the five seeds of cinematography, and it serves as the main textbook to 
of professional cinematography to this very day. The others were Laszlo Kovacs and Vilmos Zygmunt, two immigrants who escaped the Hungarian Revolution and came to America seeking careers as professional cameramen. And they did just exactly that. Laszlo Kovacs would work on such hits like Five Easy Pieces, and Vilmos Zygmunt would work on various films like Close Encounters of the Third Kind, The Deer Hunter, and Blowout, just to name a few. But Steckler would run into trouble when it was decided that the, to title the film The Incredibly Strange Creatures, or Why I Stopped Living and Became a Mixed-Up Zombie. Be it coincidence or otherwise, Columbia Pictures threatened to sue Morgan and Steckler because it bore a similar resemblance to a picture Stanley Kubrick was making called Dr. Strangelove, or How I, or how I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. What well, movie Columbia, was that? I'm so, I, I don't remember I never heard of that movie either. I think, I think <laughs> so when Columbia Pictures' legal department proved to be too difficult to deal with, Steckler finally got in touch with Kubrick and said he would change the title to The Incredibly Strange Creatures Who Stopped Living and Became Mix-Up Zombies exclamation point exclamation point question mark kubrick agreed no toes were stepped on and steckler unleashed his second feature-length production to the drive-in screens incredible is the word for the world's first monster musical see in magnificent eastman color the daring dancing enticing and horrifying the incredibly strange creatures who stopped living and became mixed up zombies from the innocence of music and laughter comes the twilight of terror. Along the midway, scantily clad dancers luring the young lovers into the sideshows. See the dancing girls of the carnival murdered by the incredible night creatures of the midway. I really know that something evil lies ahead for me. An unspeakable pit of dismal subhuman monsters who drool and gibber, moaning for the thrill of revenge. Incredible are the songs, the gaiety, the zombie stomp of those who will stop living. And then the mix-up, trickery, and the device to ruin. See the hunchback of the midway fight a duel of death with the mixed-up zombies. Turning men into monsters, twisted, tormented human vultures, yearning to kill. Incredible creatures clutching at the thin threads of their miserable lives. Human vultures, only the weird zombies remain. Who is the woman branded in birth wearing the wart of horror? Do as Madame Estrella said. The world's first monster musical. The incredibly strange creatures who stopped living and became mixed up zombies. The incredibly strange creatures who stopped living and became mixed up zombies. Uh, exclamation point, exclamation point, question mark. Uh, first scene opens at a carnival in Long Beach in which in, in the palm reading room of Madame Estrella, played by Brett O'Hara, who is having a few drinks with a customer, played by none other than producer George J. Morgan. When Estrella tries to put the moves on the drunk, he pushes her away and her hunchback chain-smoking assistant Ortega, played by Don Russell, attacks the drunk. Estrella then takes out a bottle of acid and proceeds to pour it on the drunk's face. In the meantime... Jerry, played by Ray Dennis Steckler under his cash flag screen name, 
and his pompadour-haired friend Daryl, <laughs> played by Dennis Kostekian under the screen name of Atlas King, are trying to decide what they want to do for the day. Jerry decides they should pick up his girlfriend Angela, played by Sharon Walsh, and go to the carnival. And of course, they do so. And while Jerry, Angela, and Harold enjoy the festivities... Dancer Margie Nelson, played by Carolyn Brandt, is having a hard time handling her, her career and managing her alcohol abuse. So she pays a visit to Madame Estrella to see what her future is. When Estrella informs Margie that her future lies in death, Margie freaks Ooh. out. Yep, she freaks out and accidentally stumbles upon Estrella's secret room containing a few disfigured zombies. She, Margie manages to escape, but she leaves behind her purse, and Estrella intends to do away with Margie. But she needs a patsy to do the job for her. Well, Estrella's eyes settle on Jerry, and she uses her daughter, Carmelita, played by Irina Enyo, to lure the dope into Estrella's lair. Once that happens, Jerry is immediately hypnotized via a spinning hypno wheel to serve as a mad killer for the evil Estrella. And sure enough, Jerry manages to stab Margie and her male dance partner to death on stage and quickly get away without being caught. The next day, Jerry is unsure what happened to him last night, but Madame Estrella has plans for Jerry and her hidden zombie slaves. Yes, that's the plot line for the incredibly strange creatures who stopped living and became mixed up zombies. <laughs> for a movie that is surprisingly paper thin on plot on plotting, it actually has there's a lot going on in this movie, believe it or not. <laughs> you, you know, honestly, I, I, I want to agree with you with that. <laughs> I mean, it's I, I got to be honest. Okay, so. I don't particularly agree with the uh, Medved's association that this film is, is part of the go- the worst. Go- yeah, is part of the Golden Turkey Awards primarily because um, I think on its surface level, the movie is technically proficient in it's it's decent it's it's well shot it's decently edited it it does have a through line. Okay. So it's not, but its problem is that this is one of those movies that was made for thirty-eight grand, and they were trying to stretch it to make it look like it was made for a hundred thousand. And it's a little too big for you know its intent. And 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 Ray, and this is the mind of Ray Dennis Steckler. He he said. He was making a small film, but he wanted to try to make it look big. And he also wanted the film to have a long title because he felt the long title would help make it look bigger. Uh, <laughs> but, well, but, I don't well, know about that. <laughs> no, I, I would definitely say that doesn't quite work because uh, yeah. the title is kind of a mis- – the title – the movie is kind of betrayed by its title. I think the movie would have worked better it's if it was called – super misleading. Yeah, I think the movie would have worked better if it was called um, – the original title face of evil, because I think that kind of would stick with it, but the movie is called the incredibly strange creatures who stopped living and became mixed up zombies. And we do get some zombies, but they're not the traditional zombies that you think of. Instead, they're like disfigured creatures. So I guess you can say that, yeah, that, that part of the type yeah. falls into it. but the yeah, problem we, is that we, 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 I think, it's called, the, it's called the incredibly strange creatures, but like, what's really strange about these creatures exactly? Right, and are they truly zombies? Like, you no, know, we, we talked about this off air. I want to say yesterday, um, and it's like, f- to me, yes, zombies mean someone that's not of their own free will, basically, uh, and they're controlled by something. But realistic, I, mean, I would say realistically, but I mean, I, I want to say uh, uh, under the the guise of let's say George Romero and let's yeah. say other other things, 
They are the undead. They are. They well, have... and we have to be fair about this, though. I mean, if you want to go further back to the concept of zombies and in, in, right. in, in cinema pop culture, there's like the the Val Luton 1940s film "I Walked of a Zombie," which which utilizes the concept right. of, of voodooism. So it's so. I, on the one hand, I agree with you that. Um, if you were looking at this film in terms of like what George Romero brought to the concept, right? Of it, it, zombies it, it, and the it doesn't dead, fit. It yeah, doesn't fit. But it doesn't fit. But, but however, fair, yeah. well, wait, wait. But but to be fair about this, right. This movie was made in '63 before Land of the Living Dead ever came on the scene, right? So. <laughs> so the zombie was more like it was not so much like the Living Dead, but more like being controlled by something else like you yeah, had no the, con- some sort of supernatural or black magic right force. <laughs> what, what what i had question with what i had problem with was the you know scarring basically of said zombies or people or the undead i want to say undead because they're not undead they're 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 technically they're technically alive because they got shot with bullets and they certainly went down really quickly well the quote bart simpson they're they're the living impaired yeah. <laughs> <laughs> living in here i love that okay go on <laughs> no but but um yeah I, I i as far as i mean if anything the movie's flaw is that is that ray when he made this he he, he there was a script outline but there was not like a like a full 80 page complete script so right so he yeah. utilized his improvisation aspects here to sort of like create the story which I'm not against that. I think you can do that very well. And I think Seckler would do that very well later on down his line with one particular film that I, th- which we'll get to later on that really sort of crystallized his concept of, of improvisation. But at the same time, it, there's a lot going on in this movie, but it just feels like it's, it's all in varying directions. And even when it, the plot line does converge, it feels like it's not quite as satisfying as what it should be okay. in terms of the delivery. And, the other problem is, is that it's interdispersed with music, with like musical numbers that are pretty oh. decent. But I okay, mean, so honestly, okay, we're, we're going to talk about that now. Okay, so that's fantastic, though, because honestly, that is my favorite part of the entire film <laughs> is the musical interludes. Uh, uh, I was raised on the uh, the musical interludes. Like, I wouldn't say the the artists themselves, but the uh, the fashion of them, like you know, Jan and Dean, and a lot of like a lot of these musical numbers of the sixties, and like I, I have a lot of these sixty LPs that not not per se of these original artists per se, but artists like them, and I really enjoyed that part of it. Actually, actually more so than the rest of the fucking movie. Honestly, <laughs> uh, I'm not gonna lie. I'm like. Yeah. I, because I could relate to that. And when you're looking at a movie, any movie, honestly, you're looking at things you can relate to. And I'm like, and it may be something as obscure as, as a song or as a whatever. But for me, that was, I remember my dad, like teaching me like the history of music and this, and there was a lot of great musical numbers in this movie. However, the movie itself not so great. Musical numbers, yeah, I mean, better. I, I think the musical parts are all right. I yeah, mean, the one thing that that gets criticized about the musical numbers, and like we talked about this off air too, is that yeah, people like to bring up the fact that that the answers are out of step. Right, and, and they chewed bubblegum instead of yeah, uh, yeah. The story is is that Ray 
they were able to get all the costuming and all the the dancers right to do this thing, but they only had one day to shoot them all. Right. So and, so Ray so Ray had to do the best he could and with, with very little rehearsal. But in regards to the bubblegum story, right. the reason why uh, what Ray had to do was he had the dancers chewing bubblegum in order to help him try to keep in step as best as possible. And, and he said, the one thing that people don't notice is that they're chewing bubblegum. If you look at, if you try to look at them during some of the close-ups, they're chewing bubblegum, but nobody points that out. Yeah. 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 Well, but I, truthfully, I think they did the best they could considering that they didn't have the, you know, rehearsal time ability to do all the, the, the dance steps correctly. I mean, I mean, the, Ray and his editors did a pretty decent job of like cutting around that a little bit. There are moments where you can tell that they're out of step a little bit, but but I, you know honestly, it was it was it, it wasn't enough for me to like say anything. Yeah, yeah, it, like, it, it's called a valiant attempt. You know that they're doing their best, even though you know it's not quite as good as it should be. But uh, yeah, I and I I, I um, but yeah, I, I do agree. This movie isn't particularly good but it's not the worst thing i've no. ever seen i think it's one of those films that gets that title by people because they well think about it this way this movie was distributed with the tagline the world's first monster musical so i mean you know it, it, when you see a tagline like that it's, it's, it's easy to you know of, I, 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 <laughs> yeah, go, go on i, I almost no, it's, I, it's um, just real quick it's easy to like aim your uh your gun at the of the crosshairs towards something like that and poke fun at it but <laughs> okay so not to give away a possible episode later on but i want to you know we we're talking about musicals and we we're talking about you know um, you know off air christmas and stuff like that and yeah. anna and the apocalypse which is a yeah. Christmas zombie musical, which and would is, totally yeah, fit. No, go, <laughs> go on, I'm gonna just would totally fit with this with, with this subgenre. Go on. <laughs> and, and but I mean, like, isn't that interesting? A guy like Ray Dennis Steckler, who's like on the the lower echelon of of the of the Hollywood B movie right. grade Z, you know, cinematic universe, does this with his film, right? And he get, and he gets tarnished for it. But then, you know, talk about being way ahead of the curve because oh, no, here, totally. here's, here's Anna and Apocalypse. There's another there's a movie of his that we'll be reviewing later that literally would not be out of place in today's superhero, you know, Marvel universe or even something on like WandaVision, you know, like right, I, right. I've seen clips of WandaVision, but I wanna, and I'll explain that more when we get to that particular film. But I'm just saying it that just goes to show how like oddly like ahead of the curve and slightly visionary Ray was. I mean, I can imagine him sitting there telling people about this movie when he's trying to make it and people just kind of looking at him like, what? Cringing. What? Probably cringing. Cringing, basically. Yeah, like, going no, like, going Ray, like, what are you talking Ray, about? Come on, Ray, come on, man. Jesus, what are you trying to do? And then, and then here we are. <laughs> but, but, but honestly, who the hell is going to look 40, 50 years in the future? Because I mean, like literally, whenever that was done and, and Apocalypse came out, I want to say four years ago, maybe. I'm like, and and I'm like, and and Ray, pa honestly, passed away. What in 2019 or 2009? Yeah, no, he passed. Away in, yeah, he passed 2019 away in, uh, or no, 2009. No, 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 he didn't pass. With, he passed away in 2009. Oh, sorry, sorry, 2009. So I'm like, there is no way in. God's green earth that the that you you could even parallel that. I'm like, well, I'm like, okay, I will say this, and this is what Ray says. So you yeah. can take it. So you can take it with you know a grain of salt. Or okay, truth, but all right, I'll throw it but, on my shoulder. Go on. But he <laughs> he he said in one interview that he wanted 
He tried, according to him, he tried bringing the idea of doing a Batman musical. Now, honestly, that, that that's not too far fetched. That's not too far fetched now. Yeah. Oh, well, no. Yeah. Because because there was a Spider Man musical, there was uh, an Evil Dead musical, a Reanimator musical. Well, well, but, you know, but but back in the sixties, he right. tried introducing this, and everybody looked at it. I and think said, that was no. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I think in the sixties that would be. Too maybe way too, but you know maybe I had a that, but, well far yeah. out for time. But think about that too. When Batman was on TV in the sixties, right with oh. Adam West and Burt Ward. I mean, yeah. how silly that. Got. Oh, oh no, no, and and here and here's the beauty of it. It's, and that, and thank you for bringing it up because I'm like that is my favorite my my favorite incarnation of Batman. Like literally. Batman and Burt, um, uh, Adam West and Burt Ward, Ward yeah. <laughs> were, were, were were my guys. Like they were, that that was how I understood Batman. I'm like gr- gr- as cheesy and goofy and stupid as it was, that was my guys. Like, but can you but can you imagine Ray going oh, to them back then and saying, oh, "Hey, how about turning it into a musical?" <laughs> well, tr- truthfully, right now looking back, at it, I would have loved it. However, back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, whenever that when it when they were popular and they probably had the, the funds for that. I could see them meeting some resistance. I could see that. Yeah, I could see that too. Uh, but, 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 but however, but however, looking at how cornball the, uh, the fucking TV show was and, and God, God love it. I love, I love the cornball cheesiness. I own the set on DVD. I do. <laughs> I do. And I've watched it at least three times through. It is bananas, and I, it would be awesome. In my opinion, it would be fucking awesome to see that now. Well, We're, he got close to doing that, but we'll we'll save that 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 particular film down the line. No, you <laughs> shut your pie hole, Mark. Chris, I almost called you Mark. Chris, <laughs> you shut your pie hole, Chris. <laughs> but um, but at any rate, so we'll um, you know yes yes the but, yeah. strange creatures. But moving on, we have to move zombies. this on. Yes. Yes, definitely not exactly a high water mark for Ray Dennis Steckler in the horror department, but there are some interesting elements in this movie that I do like yeah. that kind of do save it a little bit, which we'll get into. So let's let okay, so let's start from the beginning here. Okay, so we get the the intro sequence at the carnival, and um, we uh, have the scene in which we're introduced to Madame Estrella, played by Brett O'Hara, and she's having a uh, a drink with this customer that's played by. George J. Morgan, the producer, uh, and by the way, he's credited on the end credits not as George J. Morgan, but as Whitey Robinson. So right. I mean, you know, <laughs> and when I first saw him, and we talked about this off air, and we talked about this during the recording that we did, didn't get published. But honestly, I, I thought he was actually a detective or a cop. <laughs> But no, he's yeah, just yeah, some no, drunkard, you know. He's not. He's just some drunkard. And, and uh, you know, to be fair, even though the acting in this movie is pretty ropey, um, you know, George is all right in his, you know, one day no. sequence. He's he's all right. I mean, it's, you know, I, I love it when people criticize performances. But then my, my question in regards to his performance would be, well, let me ask you a question. How would you consider good drunk acting? I mean, particularly, I you know, that's hard. That's not exactly I, easy to pull no, off. <laughs> it, it, it isn't. It isn't. And it, I'll, I'll say this: um, there is a lot of crap in this movie. Honestly, his performance 
not the biggest sticking point for me myself. Oh I'm yeah, like, no, but not I'm exact, like, but but not but not like you know enough to like. Oh no, you know, make you say. I mean, okay, oh. I will say this. Perhaps Robert Shaw was the best actor to do a drunk performance in Jaws, but the the thing about that was that he was actually drinking on that film. <laughs> so. Yeah, he was hammered most of the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm yeah. like, and, and, and I'm willing to bet. The reason why he was hammered was he was probably thinking, ah, great, I'm in the movie about a giant killer shark. This thing is probably going to tank. <laughs> well, <laughs> no. Behold, it didn't exactly no, happen. The, the, the only one who was tanked was him. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so. Yeah, no, I, I get I, I totally get it. I, I mean, you, there, I mean, there, there are things, there, there are many stories of, like, oh, you know, classical actors thinking that, you know, like, like you said. We're a part of movies that were like, this is this is gonna be shit. This is gonna be garbage. Well, like, character, we, yeah, character actor Anthony Dawson, producer Richard Gordon. He's like, I'm out in the Bahamas shooting a movie called Doctor No, and I think it's gonna be the worst movie ever. Well, well that <laughs> and, and, and the and the and the gentleman who played uh, the original Obi Wan Kenobi th- in, in Star Wars. Alec this, Guinness. Alec yeah. Guinness is but, like, but, this is trash. This is gonna but, be garbage. And yeah. It, but Alec Guinness kind of sort of was like back and forth about that movie. <laughs> right. Well, well, you have to be because it would become the, 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 the echelon of freaking, you know, sci-fi and anything in, in between. I'm like, I, I get it. I, I get it. I mean, yeah. I, I understand. I'm like, you don't, you don't want to be the guy that, or the person or the woman or person that is like, Oh, we're going to poop on something. But then you also want to be like, Oh yeah, I was a part of that, and that was trash. You know, you, you gotta yeah. walk that fine line, <laughs> right? Right. But nevertheless, so uh, and, and so in the scene, uh, the drunk wants to be with uh, this woman by the name of Carmelita, which we, we will see later on in the movie. But but no so, boobs. Yeah, yeah. So Madame Estrella gets pissed and decides to call upon her chain-smoking uh, hunchbacked assistant Ortega <laughs> to attack the guy, and she just throws acid all over the dude's face <laughs> yeah no no <laughs> rhyme or reason ex- i'm like ex- extremes <laughs> yeah i mean all he said was i think your sister's hotter than you are <laughs> that's all he said well, basically he said it in other words but he basically put it that way which by the way is carmelita supposed to be madame Estrella's sister or daughter i we, i, don't uh, think yeah. you know, I want to say sister because they, they, they don't they don't seem that far off the mark like age wise, yeah. other than the fact that that really ridiculous mole that she has on her yeah, face. Yeah, yeah. Which, by the way, everybody claims that that mole moves around. Because of the <laughs> time. But I, I, I've watched this movie. I, I, I didn't see it. it close, I, I didn't see it. I didn't see it. I didn't see it. I mean, kudos to you if you if you, if you saw it move a centimeter. Uh, uh, kudos you know to. That's another thing, though, too. Just because this movie isn't particularly good does not mean it there's automatic easy continuity mistakes to point out i mean that, right because i never saw that mole move around and shot the shot so if it did i would have pointed i would have said oh yeah so noticeable but i never saw it do that no and I, honestly <laughs> I, I didn't see it either i i i, I didn't i you know honestly I, that's one of probably 20 different things i probably missed <laughs> yeah well if we missed it so now yeah. uh, now now after the after that opening sequence now there's there's actually two different like quote unquote plot lines that are going on in this movie the first plot line is the introduction of a um uh cocktail uh dancer by the name of um 
Margie Nelson, played by Carolyn Brandt, who was Ray's wife at the time. Mm-hmm. And she she's just not doing a very good job. She's got like alcohol problems and everything. But then there's a moment in the movie where she freaks out over the presence of a black cat in her dressing room. Yeah. The boss comes in. But there's nothing like she she just doesn't like black cats. Okay, fine. But they're, they're, like the whole concept of why she's disturbed by them is like not really brought up in this movie ever again. <laughs> right. It, it, it's, it's like a black cat. <laughs> yeah. And then her boss, who is kind of sort of like being Mr. You know, like trying to do the whole good cop, bad cop thing is, you know, wants to keep her, but he has to tell her, you got to lay off the booze because if you don't, you're going to be out of here. So, right. <laughs> so then after that, then we're introduced to, uh, Jerry, played by Ray Dennis Steckler, using his cash flag screen name and his pompadour haired uh, Greek accented friend, Harold, played by Dennis Kostekian, who uses the screen name of Atlas King. Now, um, a quick side note about these two characters. Uh, Ray, Ray agreed to play the, the main character in this film. And according to Ray, George Morgan, the producer, kind of complained to him saying, well, no, you got to get like a much more attractive looking guy to play this part. And Ray told him, well, no, you don't because, you know, have you ever dealt with actors, George? Some actors flake out on you. They'll, they'll pull weird shit. And he said with myself, I'll be on the set every day. (laughs) Right. So so you've got me. I mean, I'm not going to walk off this thing. It's a shame about Ray. (laughs) Well, yeah. For Ray, this was his everything. You know, this was his second film. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I'm not going to walk off this thing. If I, if an argument happens, we'll figure it out. Now, in regards to the guy playing Harold, played by Dennis Kostekian, which is the real guy's name, there's an interesting story about Dennis Kostekian. According to Ray, when this movie was being prepped, uh, he Ray had a 50-50 uh, split deal between him and George Morgan. But the problem was is that Ray wasn't able to see any money right away during the production. So at the time, Ray had – when he was working on this film, he had to like step aside from like accepting side jobs to – you know pay rent and because of that right you know there was a point where he didn't have money to buy food for you know him and his wife carolyn and his kids at at the time so dennis came up to him one day and said you know how's the project going and 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 you know ray said well you know i mean it's going all right but i don't have any money i don't have any money for rent or you know or for groceries and uh, Dennis gave him like 300 bucks and said, here, here's money for, for you to feed your family and everything, you know, I mean, which, which and, in 1960 something, that was quite a bit of money. Right. Right. But, but in, in Ray's mind, okay, you gave me the money for this. Hey, Dennis, do you want to be in the movie? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and to be fair, yes, Dennis is not an actor in this movie. He doesn't give a performance. This is not a, I, I, I will be, I have to be fair. If you go to this, this is not a performance movie, but, there's something about Dennis's performance in this film that's not a performance, obviously, but it feels very real. I mean, he's got that Greek accent. You know, he's trying to say his lines, you know, clearly as best as possible. He's got that ridiculous pompadour hair that he has. Right. You know, he feels like a real person we're watching on film. You know, like, But that was Ray's mentality. If he felt you had like a, an interesting look, he'd put you in the movie. Right. So, so now Ray and uh, Dennis are sitting there. I'm sorry. Ray and Dennis's characters are sitting. I'm sorry. Ray and uh, yeah. Ray Dennis Steckler and Dennis Kostecki are playing their characters and they're sitting there in this in their little uh, apartment 
and they're trying to figure out what they're going to do for the day. <laughs> and um, at one point, Harold says to Jerry, well, Jerry, maybe if you got a job, maybe your girlfriend's mother would like you. <laughs> and I love how Ray plays this. He says to him, now, he says to him, okay, Harold, why don't you be a little discreet about the whole job thing? You know, basically, the Jerry character is quite the lazy bum. He doesn't want to work. He doesn't want to do anything productive. He doesn't want to achieve any goal. He's just really just like kind of bumming around and doesn't want to do anything. Right. <laughs> Which and it's kind of funny because, you know, um, cons- it, Ray is actually very likable considering how lazy his character is right right there's something about him that you can't hate (laughs) yeah i want to say something about that earlier but because he's he's gotten like no motive like no like drive at all right 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 (laughs) for anything in fact you can't take your eyes off of him (laughs) right in in fact in fact he's like i I, when he's talking to i thought it was his brother but his best friends they were sitting in the like uh i guess their living room and like yeah oh he's like Oh, you should really get a job. I, I don't want that. I'm like that's a lot of work. I'm like, I'm like, dude, you are the epitome of being lazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, nobody like. I mean, and I say this not to be insulting, but nobody really likes being on welfare. Okay, kids, yeah. so you're gonna have to go out yeah, there yeah, and yeah. make a living. I mean, yeah, like, and you, <laughs> you think you think maybe him and his, I guess I don't know if his brother or best friend work friend, on they, 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 but, but they but they but they work on cars maybe you know maybe they're mechanics. Well, his buddy Harold actually does more than he does. There's like a moment where he's oh, working he, on a car. Yeah, 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 and he and he and he literally walks past him and goes into another car and takes. I'm like, so you think maybe he's a mechanic? Maybe he's a mechanic, yeah, maybe. but. Yeah, the the job category of his buddy Harold is vague at best. Yeah, so, yeah. He, his resume is very, very, very sketchy. Yeah. So, <laughs> so they both decide we're going to go to the carnival and we're going to pick up Jerry's girlfriend Angela, played by Sharon Walsh, and then we're introduced to Angela. And you know, yeah, we were talking about this off here. Yeah, uh, Sharon Walsh really isn't the best performer in this movie. She is very bland. Mm-hmm. However, there's a story about her casting in this movie. Um, yes. According to Ray, the part that was supposed to be played was by supposed to be a different actress. They they had it all worked out. So a first day of production, they shot all the musical numbers and all the song numbers, all everything, all one day. When they were done, the actress that was supposed to play the Angela character came up to Ray and said, Ray, um, I can't shoot my scenes tomorrow because I have to go with my boyfriend who's a drummer and help him on, you know, perform or whatever on stage. X, Y, Z. Yeah. X, Y, Z. Yeah. And Ray was like, wait, what are you talking about? You know, we were shooting the next day. We, we need you. We, you, you read it. Literally. Yeah. Yeah. And she said, I just can't, I got to go with my boyfriend. No, you do this. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much that argument. And finally she said, well, you're just going to have to wait for me. And, and Ray said, Nope, can't do it. So they had to let her go. So his producer, George Morgan, turned to Ray and said, Ray, what are we going to do? What are we going to do for certain tomorrow? And, and, and Ray is like thinking. He goes, no, look, let's think about this for a minute, George. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. And by the way, real quick, quick lesson for any of you out there that don't understand low-budget movies that much is that when you're working on low-budget movies, you know, you can't technically stop. You have to like keep it going because you're, you're even though this was like a non-union film you know mm-hmm. you agree to pay people 
for their their time. And even if let's say you cancel for a day, you still got to like pay them. Yeah. So so you can't really stop. And the and, and people use this excuse too. Well, why don't you go out and raise more money? Well, that doesn't work all the time either. Okay. No. What you get yeah. is what you get, and you got to stick <laughs> with it. So so. So after they had shot all the the dance sequences and, and the musical numbers, Ray is standing by a corner in the studio, and he sees the line of chorus, you know, the quote unquote chorus girls walking mm-hmm. down, you know, heading to the dressing rooms. Right, right. And he and he sees Sharon Walsh, and he tells her, "Hey, hey Sharon, come here a minute." And she, she comes over, and he goes, "Hey, Sharon, how would you like to play the uh, the girlfriend role?" <laughs> and she said, "But I was in the musical numbers. You shot me." And he and and he told her. Well, okay, fine. No problem. You were wearing a wig and you're wearing makeup. We just won't cut to your close-ups. <laughs> and she goes and he says, "What what wardrobe do you have? What regular wardrobe?" He goes, "Well, what I what I wore before I came in the change." Okay, well, you're going to take you're going to keep that wardrobe. You know, your regular real wardrobe that you came in before changing into the to the dance mm-hmm. clothing. And you'll wear that and you'll come to, you'll come over to the the location tomorrow and you'll play the the, the girlfriend role. And that's what they did. And, 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 and she is in the dance sequences, but you know, it's hard to catch her because he right. did exactly that. He didn't cut to her close-ups. Right. And she chewed bubble gum. When that story gets told, it's easy to criticize that, but remember it's like low budget films. It's all about problem solving. You got to like figure out a way to, 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 to solve the problem. So it won't be a problem. Right. You know, it's like, uh, I remember a story of Roger Corman when he made this movie called, um, you want to talk about a long title. Here's a long title for you. The saga of the Viking women and their voyage to the great waters of the sea serpent. Okay. Oh dear God. <laughs> you lost me halfway through. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was, it was a Viking, a quote unquote Viking epic. And they lost the lead actress. So what Roger did was basically said, okay, the person who's playing the second banana character is going to play the first character. And, you know, just basically just telling all the the actresses the order of their roles, switch it up. (laughs) And that's what he had to do because they had no time to call the casting director and say, I need someone now because it's like, well, we can probably get you someone, but it may not be now. Right. And they can't cancel because it's all scheduled and ready. So, yeah. So, that, so I, I, I mean, again, it's easy to criticize that, but in Ray's case, you know, he, he had to solve a problem. Now, with that said, yes, Sharon Walsh is not exactly the most enigmatic performer in this film. And I believe this is her one and only screen appearance. So, you know, take, make, make of that what you will. Yeah. But, and yeah, so anyways, she's um, she. So basically, she likes Jerry, despite the fact that her mom doesn't like Jerry at all. Right. In fact, when her mom is talking to her about Jerry, she says things like, you know, Jerry is useless. Basically, he's a bum. He's not he, he doesn't work. He's not productive. He doesn't have any goals. And the scene plays almost like out of a juvenile delinquent movie. <laughs> <laughs> or as you said, Tim before we recorded yeah uh, uh, after school special <laughs> right right yeah it's uh it was uh interesting <laughs> yeah. but here's the thing though the mom is actually correct <laughs> right well, you mom you'd think mm-hmm. you'd think in, in the type of movie they'd make her like completely wrong no she's 100 percent correct jerry is absolutely not productive <laughs> no he, he's, he's kind of a he's kind of a douche <laughs> yeah he's kind of he's totally a bum and uh so and, and then there's also the brother in the film uh madison He's credited as Madison Clark, but his real name is Pat Kirkwood. Right. And surprisingly enough, 
he also went on to be a gaffer and he worked on none other than two Indiana Jones movies for Steven Spielberg. Oh, wow. All right. So it, 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 his, project, his trajectory was very on the, on the upscale. Yeah. Yeah. Surprisingly enough. I yeah. mean, like you, you wouldn't think that. But uh, what's interesting about his character, though, is he seems rather uh, kind of ambivalent about whether or not he likes Jerry or not. You know? Right. He doesn't really seem to be like concerned much about whether his sister should be dating this guy. <laughs> I, I mean, truthfully, like there's a moment where he's washing his car and, you know, Jerry comes up to him and says, um, you know, why are you washing your car? Why don't you have somebody else do it or whatever? And, and, and he says, well, you know, the times are tough. And he goes, right. yeah, you know, but, <laughs> but, um, so Angela gets in the car and, they drove over, drove to the carnival, and 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 we get some nice carnival footage where they, we actually get some nice, like on the, um, the roller coaster, like they actually get the cameraman in the roller coaster to like you know, go on the roller coaster, and you get like the the actual footage of it. So we get some nice, um, carnival footage, and then we cut back to to Margie who's still drinking, and uh, <laughs> oh, and then we also get to see. Um, one of the most rather uncomfortable, unfunny comedians, uh, James Bowie, playing. Oh a, dear uh, God, that tell, was a that was totally uncomfortable. Telling dad jokes as you oh. politely describe. Although some of those jokes are pretty interesting. I like yeah. the one about how he said, "My mother, my mother iron, no, my father irons, and my mother steals." Right. Oh no, <laughs> the other one was the uh, where what was he talking about? My oh. wife told me that I should. I need to quit I, drinking. Drinking. I'm gonna, I'm sure gonna miss her, <laughs> which is he, he, you know what bananas. Yeah, yeah, it's uncomfortable, but he he actually you know seems like he's giving it the old college try, as we like to say. Well, <laughs> he seemed he seems very you know. Here's the thing: is with this movie, the most um, I guess background parts seem to be the most posh parts, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, when it comes to like. The, the the stand-up comedian and the dancers and even even with what they said with the bubble gum and with all this other nonsense i'm like to me for this film they seem to be the most polished they seem to be almost on cue uh, yeah. on, on the mark everyone else is like it seems very wooden um but you know and, and that's okay but yeah. th that's just the way it is but i'm just saying from what i uh can surmise but, yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, the efforts there, it's just, you know, perhaps maybe a little more rehearsal would probably have helped him. Right. <laughs> At any right. rate, so then Margie and her dance partner go out on stage and sadly she does a terrible job because, you know, she's well, she's half in the bag, she's <laughs> half in the bag and been hitting the bottle. And of course, once again, the boss tells her you need to shape up or ship out. You know, This is though, your last chance, <laughs> even though he kind of said that in like the previous scene. So it's like he's still but there was a black better. cat. So, I mean, come on, seriously, it's a, it's a black cat in that scene. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Sorry. So so despite worrying about her fate, what is what does Margie decide to do there, uh, Tim? She decides, uh, I don't know, take a, gan take a walk down. Down the memory lane to uh you know madam what's your nuts face madam estrella <laughs> yeah I, I prefer what's your nuts face but yes yeah. madam Australia yeah. uh, Australia or as the tra trailer described her as having the wart of horror <laughs> yeah not really I'm like yeah. <laughs> one one off place birthmark that's really a wart of like yeah. de the devil no I'm, I'm sorry but, but go anyways but, yeah. so, Mar so Margie pays a visit to Madame Estrella and is there to get her fortune told and sure enough she gets the death card and Margie like you know loses her shit 
and she runs into the wrong area of the room and she opens the door and a, a hand outstretched. Ah! Yeah, like like it's a cage door and a hand, outstretched hand reaches for her and she runs away in terror and she drops her purse on the floor and Madame Estrella opens up the purse and finds her, you know, her, her ID card or license. Of course, would her ID card or license tell tell Madame Estrella where she works? I don't think no. so. No, 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 no. But that, that, that's okay. But that's this details details that's fine. details yeah too many details in this too many movie. details but, or fine. lack of but anyways it's uh, fine it's fine everything's on fire it's fine <laughs> so now the motivation behind all this is like kind of like very very loopy but anyways so because margie has seen uh what basically spoiler alert the incredibly strange creatures who stopped living and became mixed up zombies in this hidden room um, that's a thing. That's a thing. I guess. <laughs> um, we have to assume that um, Madame Estrella thinks that Margie's going to go to the police and reveal her whole scheme, whatever the hell that is. Uh, we never that, find that, out what. That's really far fetched, but yeah, okay. it's very far fetched, very very far reaching too. So she decide we have, so basically we surmise she has to f- she's going to kill her. So but she has to find someone that's going to actually be able to do the job. And who does she set her sights on? Uh, the bald headed clash of uh, titans. What's his face? Cash uh, flag played yeah. by Ray, or Ray the Steckler. <laughs> the Jerry yeah. character. I, I, I like Clash better. You know, yeah. Cash flag, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, so, so the bald headed wonder. Yes, the uh, the uh, superhero of uh, whatever. <laughs> so, anyways, so Jerry and Angela Harold at one point go inside to get their fortunes told, and you know it. it oh yeah. Of course, Jerry, of course, thinks the whole thing is fucking ridiculous. Oh, because why wouldn't you? Because it's it's bananas. But yeah, right. but so but he's then, a, but he's the easy pats. He ridicules the whole he ridicules the whole thing and they leave. And so then they're standing outside watching the uh, the Carnival Barker make a special announcement about the the strippers that they or the, the, the strippers that he's got or the dance oh, girls. The dance. No, the strippers are so that's so not nice. It's they're they're. Dancing girls. It's the fine. dancing girls. Okay, but what? Yeah. But, but what was the special announcement about <laughs> that? This is what I love. This is what I love. We've got twenty girls, but ten outfits. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> boobies, so, boobies, boobies. <laughs> so, um, so of course Jerry wants to go go see the show, and then we're immediately introduced to the star dancer of the uh, of the Midway, uh, Carmelita, played by Irina Enyo, who pretty much captures. Uh, the eyes of Jerry, and of course Jerry wants to go inside and see the the show. And Angela pretty much says no. And we see, and we know the biggest crime, Chris, is no tatas. Yeah, well, absolutely none. No, 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 no. Nipples. Well, this was not a nudie cutie, Tim. So uh, yeah, but you know, <laughs> you figure something. You know, like it doesn't have to be soft core. You know. Yeah, yeah but how? But how did you like how Angela uh, was complaining to Jerry about how he wanted to see the girly show? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that was really ridiculous. Like I, I'm a man. I'm going to go see the girly show, and you can go blah 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 with so and so. And then she was pretty much like not necessarily acting like it directly but definitely valley girl ish yeah <laughs> like fine jerry stop being such a prick you know i'm like Jer- jerry was being a dick and she was it, it was just so stupid i'm like yeah, yeah. And, and she ro- walks away and of course he has his buddy harold drive her home right he's <laughs> like hey harold you know you know who i feel that, that's who i feel the, the most for harold harold does not get enough credit 
Harold deserves to be hitting that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fuck you Jerry. Was, you kind of wish there was a subplot where he's like trying to hit on Angela. <laughs> yeah. Fuck Jerry. Jer- Jerry's a douche. Fuck, but Harold, he's like, yeah, Harold, you go take her home. I'm like, what's Harold got? Wait, wait, hold on. It's not Harold's girlfriend. You know? Yeah. yeah it's yeah. his girlfriend. <laughs> Kiss my ass, dickhead. You do it. <laughs> I'm so, not, you know? No, I get it. No. <laughs> so, but go on. So, so then Jerry decides to go watch the show himself and we're treated to a couple of dance numbers. And we also get to see Carmelia do like a rather, rather tame strip show. But at the same, but while all this is going on, suddenly the, the chain smoking hunchback Ortega shows up and hands Jerry a note from Carmelita saying that she wants to meet him in this <laughs> dressing room. <laughs> and, oh, and, God. Of course, and I, of course, I love it though too. It's like you know, you got this hunchback assistant who's like constantly smoking like a chimney, yeah. and, no, and it's almost like nobody notices how strange that is. <laughs> well, my, my thing is, it's so high school. Like, I'm like, you want to meet me after third period in the gymnasium? Like, I'm like, oh, really? Come on. Sometimes simplicity does work, though. <laughs> I know, but it's so. But for adults, I'm like, that's just so freaking. I don't know. To me, it was like it was so high school. Like, so like, then, but then, so Jerry. Well, speaking of high school, Jerry yeah. wanders around in the back area and yeah. ends up accidentally walking into the to the, the to the dressing room of the, right. the dancing girls. He, and he, they he, all, essentially, he essentially got pushed into the girls' locker room. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and when he sees him, he's just kind of he just asks, "Hey, do you, is this Carmelita's dressing room?" And then suddenly they all get pissy at him and get out of here, you freak show. <laughs> to be fair, though, yeah, it, it, it is kind of ru- it is kind of rude to walk into you know the the, the women's dressing room. Yeah. And going, is this the right area where I'm supposed to be? <laughs> yes, I I came to see the boobies. <laughs> so uh, at one point, so then finally he ends up in uh... Madame Estrella's uh, room, and he asks to see Carmelita, and there she appears, and she invites Jerry into the other side of the room, and as soon as he walks into that room, suddenly we hear a tick tock sound, and then. The curtains open up and we get the hypno wheel. I would say the umbrella of death. Yay! <laughs> now this is where the movie really. I, I gotta say this. This we're. I think we're like forty minutes into this movie and finally the horror element kicks in the gear. God, we're, also, already, we're, we're already over an hour in, in yeah, the recording yeah, yeah. right but now. Then, but yes, go on. But also, this is where I think Ray. As well as his three cameramen, Joseph V. Michelli and Laszlo Kovacs and Vilmos Zygmunt, really start to shine because this particular sequence is, you know, we get like tilted camera angles and dissolve shots, cross dissolves, um, you know, weird sound effects. And it's a hypnotism sequence. It actually works pretty well. I mean, considering how they pulled it and the spinning hypno wheel thing is, you know, I mean, it's pretty cool looking. It, it yeah. adds the effect. But this sequence, uh, Ray Ray said in an interview that when he had Joseph V. Michelli and Laszlo Kovacs and uh, Vilmo Zygmunt on this film, he said he had a little bit of a problem with them. Uh, Joseph V. Michelli was of the old school Hollywood studio lighting kind of thing. And Laszlo Kovacs and Vilmo Zygmunt were kind of more into the whole surrealistic uh, lighting. And okay. so he had a little bit of a problem with them. So he had to come up with a compromise and he said, okay, okay. So for the regular sequences, Joe is going to do the standard Hollywood lighting techniques and the, for the scenes like this and others where it gets a little surreal, he would have uh, Kovacs and, and Zygmunt do the, the, the weird surrealistic lighting. And uh, I got to say real quick, before we get further into this, um, uh, 
uh, you'll occasionally run into reviews of this movie where it does get name dropped that Blazo Kovacs and Vilmo Zygmunt got their worked on this film and it was like their early start. And you'll get these reviewers that kind of do this whole thing where like they'll say, well, those guys brought the expertise in this movie that Ray didn't have. And that's not mm-hmm. true. A- according to Carolyn Brandt, his ex-wife, who was did a Q&A, when Laszlo Kovacs and Vilmo Sigmund worked on this film, they called Ray the master because Ray knew more about camera and technique than they did. And they learned from Ray on this film. Okay. Yeah, it's to the extent where they could go off and perfect their talents on other films. The reason why I say that is because this is a perfect example about the concept of low-budget movies and where you get your start from. It, it upsets me to no end when people talk about the Hollywood film industry and they talk about how it's a preordained in- – they, they make it sound like it's a preordained industry. Like Hollywood, when it started, it was like you know there. And it's like that's not how it works. How it works is – you get people that work on the bottom and work their way up as best as possible right. to get the bigger career because – and that's why you have guys like Ray Dennis Steckler. Yes, Ray Dennis Steckler in, in a way was the bottom feeder. He was the guy that worked in the grade Z or the B movie echelon. He was he was definitely the outsider. But as Ray Dennis Steckler himself has said, he said it takes one person to give you a shot in in, in this business. And he was one of those guys. He said, I, he, he said, if I didn't give these guys their shot, they probably would not have gotten a job in anything. I mean, who knows? Maybe they would have. It's hard to say. You can't really, you know, it, it, you know it's, it's not easy to predict how a person has a successful career. But the reason why I mention this is because Vilmo Zygmunt certainly must have had a lot of respect for Ray because according to Carolyn Brandt, as well as... Archall Jr., who was the lead actor in Wild Guitar that Ray directed, right? he said he and Ray both went to go see the documentary made about Vilmos and Laszlo called No Subtitles Necessary. And it was a screening of that documentary. And at the end of it, they had Vilmos Zygmunt on stage doing a Q&A. And what happened was that Vilmos kind of got a little bored talking about, you know, working with working for Spielberg and Close Encounters and the Deer Hunter. And finally, Vilmos said, OK, um, I have a question of the audience out there. Is Ray Dennis Steckler out there? <laughs> and, yeah. Ray, and Ray stood up and raised his hand and came up on the stage and Vilmos invited him to tell everybody about our early days when we were trying to make it in the biz, you know? And that's like, that's like really, I gotta say that's, that's real mad respect to a guy that Mm -hmm. never exactly made it in the big leagues, you know? I mean, because it's like without Ray, Vilmos probably wouldn't have gotten a career as a, as a cinematographer in anything. So that's the whole thing about the early start that that I like to mention, because people tend to forget that, that, you need these kinds of movies to help you like to, to, to go up that ladder. You know, it, it annoys me to no end. People think that in the movie industry, it's like, it's a preordained industry. Yeah. Maybe if you, if your father's a film producer and you want to become a film producer, your dad's going to get you the, the connections maybe. But if you're a guy, like let's say you get out of college and you're trying to make it in this business, it's, 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 it's really tough, man. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
I, I got to give a lot of props to Ray for that. He certainly saw a talented cameraman, a camera operator when he saw one. So, uh, but nevertheless, back on track with this sequence. So we right. get this hypnosis sequence. It's really nicely done. And there's like a moment where like they do these zoom in push in shots and they add in this sound effect of like, boom, boom, boom. So it's, it's very nicely right. done. So, so then, we cut to Margie tr- doing her dance number, and apparently she's managed to s- sober herself up right? <laughs> very <Right>. quickly. <laughs> so she's doing her dance routine, and then, sure enough, Ray steps into the sequence wearing a hoodie and holding a knife and stabs Margie in the face. <laughs> in the face! Ow! Over and over again. We actually get, like, a couple of shots where he really, like, they give it to her. Yeah. <laughs> and then he kills her... Um, Floyd. Her, uh, her, I don't her know. I, I, I'm just going to call Floyd. I don't know who his name is, but yeah. He, yeah. he, he kills her dance partner, and then he runs off the stage. And then, yeah. and everybody, of course, is like, oh, my God, what happened? What happened? Well, well you know, and my, the biggest thing for me is, like, we don't know who he is. He's a mask. He's a he's a, he's a lunatic on the, on the run. He's, a, he's this fringe thing. I'm like, dude, like, fucking killed two people in, like, front of, like, 30, and no one could give them a description? Well, he was wearing a hoodie. (laughs) (laughs) Holy shit. That's bananas. I'm like, come on, really? I'm like, it's 30 people in in a closed, like, little auditorium. Like, like no way is this guy getting away. But apparently he does for a while. (laughs) (sighs) Well, and then, uh... And then, if you don't think that doesn't get any weirder, um, we then get this dream sequence that um, re- that Jerry has, in which he sees all the dancers as well as you know Margie, right, all decked out in weird makeup and weird costuming, and suddenly that's a, this guy that comes in that's supposed to be Ray, but it's actually the 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 dance partner of uh, of the Margie character with makeup on wearing the hoodie and everything right doing this weird like interpretive dance type thing ballet sequence right it's hard to describe I mean but it was actually pretty nicely done again another surrealistic moment with with the surrealistic lighting and cameras that's provided by Vilmo Sigmund and and, and Laszlo Kovacs. Uh, very nicely done and then when Ray wakes up he runs into the bathroom and I don't know if you noticed this but the bathroom that they have is all painted red. It's all ah, bright interesting. red. Very weird. <laughs> I, you know what? I, I didn't notice that. Interesting. Okay, go on. But nevertheless, so then Ray wakes, uh, Jerry wakes up, and the next day he goes to Harold and has no idea what the hell happened yesterday. But he does ask Harold, so how's Angela doing? <laughs> After he tells her to take her home. <laughs> right. And so Jerry decides to go see Angela and maybe get back in her good graces and and he sees her and she's at the swimming pool and she's not happy with him. And then suddenly she takes her umbrella and twirls it in front of her face. And then then suddenly he flips out. Oh yeah. yeah. Because he sees the hypno wheel appear. And then suddenly he sees Margie in front of his face and he attacks must kill now. (laughs) Right. Must kill now. And then of course, um, Mar- um, Angela's mother sees this, and it sort of reinforces her ve- her feelings that Ray- that uh, Jerry is uh, no good for her, <laughs> as he sees Jerry trying to choke Angela to death. 
Yeah, funny. I mean, I know, I know she said that in the beginning, but it's funny how I was like, he's no good for you, you know, and then he chokes her out. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, Giving credence to the whole thing. Well, yeah, of course, you're, you're not making it any easier for, for yourself choking her out, but yes, go on. <laughs> well, and then of course, Madison, the brother, shows up and like pushes uh, Jerry aside. and Yeah, because he, because he's frying hamburgers <laughs> right 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 and then jerry runs away because he doesn't he doesn't seem to understand what's going on and then he finally thinks maybe it would be a good idea if i go back to the carnival and i'm gets... confused i don't know what's going on right pretty much and in the meantime another plot well another side element comes into play there's a um uh, a dancer in the movie uh-huh. Um, her name is, uh, I'm just trying to see, uh, Stella played by Tony Camel, right. who witnessed, uh, Margie running out of Madame Estrella's, um, um, fortune telling, uh, area after she had that scare. And of course she reads the newspaper and discovers, Hey, this is the same girl that ran out of the, the room and, and she's now dead. So she decides to what a quickie dink. Yeah, she decides to do a little <laughs> investigating with Madame Estrella, and you know, basically sticking her nose where the she shouldn't be. So now Madame Estrella has to kill um, this other dancer because what a ding dong! Come on, <laughs> and of course when Jerry shows up, activate that hypno wheel. <laughs> Another ding dong! Come on, ding dongs! So, yay! So in the meantime, then we cut to uh, t- Tony. Uh, being at her apartment, which was actually shot, I believe, in Vilmos Sigmund's apartment. The reason why is because if you notice when Tony is walking with that tray that has a drink, has like a bottle of booze and right. whatever, there's like these gates in front of the hallway that she like walks, she like opens. And Ray wanted to shoot there because of those gates. <laughs> right. Okay. Because he thought it was so unusual and bizarre. But Oh, and then, of course, the reason why Tony is at her apartment is because uh, she has a date with the Carnival Barker, played by Neil Stillman. Earlier on, there was a scene where he's kind of hitting on her and says, uh, you know, let's, why don't we get together at your place and you, you, you can roll some steaks. I'll bring him over. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, he's, uh, and, what did, and what did he say he'll do? Oh. I'll clean the dishes yes. if you cook the steaks, <laughs> and then we can canoodle for some more reasons. Yeah. Or, or, or hinting at that. So. Oh no, he no, he totally wanted to bang her. Oh, of I'm course, like, yeah. oh, of course. So, so then, and, it, and I, I like how this is nicely set up. So she comes down the hallway and and and, and brings like this tray with like a, a glass of booze or whatever, puts it on the table, and then she turns the radio on, and then she goes back to the back to the hallway and then suddenly jerry is there with his hoodie up and his his hypnotized look and holding a knife in his hand and it's very psycho like and runs over and attacks her and kills her and then we see uh the carnival barker carrying the stakes with him so he totally was going to make good on his promise on that (laughs) a steak (laughs) and then he opens the door and then suddenly jerry through a a shadowy silhouette stabs the the carnival barker on the neck (laughs) It was nicely shot, actually. That was actually you know, nicely done. This is sound weird, but this is making me hungry. <laughs> is it? Go why, on. Why don't you go broil up some steaks and I'll do the dishes? But that's it. That's what you're me uh, we're not canoodling, Chris. Yeah, absolutely not. Fork anyway, you later. <laughs> so now Jerry heads back to the carnival after killing uh, this other dancer. Uh huh. And then, uh, so. Madame Estrella decides to throw acid in his face and lock As him one up would do. other zombies. Yeah. Yeah. But guess what? 
the zombies break out. (gasps) (laughs) And they kill or and they kill Ortega, who's like the most completely useless henchman in this whole thing. Yeah, and they kill Madame Estrella and and yeah, and they strangled Carmelita, and now the zombies are on the loose in, in the carnival. Yes. And and they attack a stage show, and then the cops show up. Yeah, it, it's... Yeah. It, yeah, Tim, why don't you tell us about the cops here? Well, the, the cops, they like to shoot their bullets a lot. Yeah, and they, they And they literally kill everyone. Well, they kill the zombies. They don't kill everyone, but they kill Are the zombies. Are they zombies, though, really? I don't know. Yeah, no, anyway, yeah, no. But they, they kill it, the zombies. But it's, you know def- what, it's definitely shoot first, ask questions later, you know? Yeah, which is practically, Tim, like 99.9% of every horror movie yeah. that we watch. But, well, it, it, no, but, but here's the thing. It's the two extremes. Either you get shoot first, shoot, shoot first, ask questions later, or you get the rogue cop, and like, I'm going to go in without backup. Like, there's no in-between. Like, literally, no in-between. Like, somewhere, there should be an in-between. Like, we watch a Saw franchise. We've watched all these different horror movies over the course of, like, I don't know, 12 seasons? We've been together? We've been doing this? I'm like, it's either two extremes. There's there's no happy medium. There's no, like, hey, you know what? I think, uh, you know, we're going to go with backup, and, uh, you know, we're going to do this this way. I'm like, no, no, no. It's either, you know... Two two guys or you know a militia. I'm like, really? I'm like, come on. Yeah. So, but nevertheless. Oh, did you also notice too that these two policemen have a hard time not slipping on the floor? Oh yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> I they must have buffed that stage floor very very shiny. They have slippery <laughs> shoes. Slippery shoes. <laughs> so, I, I love this too. There's one moment where the with cops shoot one of the zombies and then they walk over to it and then the zomb- the other zombie is like hiding behind the wall and knocks the cop out right. and, grab- and actually grabs the gun and is about to shoot the cop other cop but the other cop shoots that zombie dead i thought yeah. that was a very interesting touch that for a bunch of mindless zombies one of them was able to grab the gun and like try to shoot the cop almost seems like they're not well, I don't know, undead. <laughs> yeah. So then they end up in Madame Estrella's room. Oh, and then by the way, Harold, Angela, and Madison, the brother, are assigned to go find Jerry by the mother because the mother said she'd wait two hours before calling the police. Oh, yeah. Oh, thank. Oh, bravo! Thank you for that timestamp. Like, oh, I, you you got one hour. Like, I'm like, I don't know how the the uh, the uh, traffic was like back in the '60s between in California between X, Y, and Z. But you know, I'm I'm assuming it's 30 minutes each way, and then you got to figure maybe you catch the guy or the person at the right time in an amusement park, a ginormous amusement park. I'm like, what are the chances you're going to be there in what an hour, two hours? What did she give him two hours well, or an hour? In the movie, uh, Angela surmises that Jerry is at the carnival because he wants to see Carmelita. So that's, that's right. Okay. Even if they know where they're going, where they're going, let's say there's there's no obstacles in their way. Let's say, okay, you know, okay, we're at uh, uh, you know Jerry's house, and it's this way to the pier, wherever that carnival is, but. The traffic, what's the traffic situation like at XYZ time? What's, how, how many people are there? Maybe Jerry's not there. Maybe maybe Jerry stopped for a corn dog. Maybe Jerry went to the bathroom. I don't know, who the fuck knows? But two hours or an hour seems very arbitrary, you know? I'm just saying. But, so, you know. but no. Um, so anyway. Anyways, so anyways, they, they <laughs> it doesn't there. matter at the end. It doesn't, oh, it doesn't. But they get there. Oh, and yes, uh, we also get to see the drunk character that's been... Tr- 
just transformed into this right. zombie. Yeah, they in the first five minutes, he, yeah, he's back for you know another thirty seconds. But go on, <laughs> and then they kill him, and then Jerry comes out, and his face is like slightly disfigured, he's and then sl- he's very slightly. It, it, yeah, it, and then he like it's a minor down, rash, <laughs> and he quickly jumps out the window, and then the cops chase after him all the way out on the beach. Oh, and Jerry runs for like three miles man and like the guy runs forever and his his girlfriend runs for another three miles i'm like do you know how hard it is to run on a beach for three miles it's hard yeah but jerry's jerry but jerry's literally on the rocks both of his relationship (laughs) with angela and the fact that he's literally on the rock figuratively and figuratively and for real yeah and he's trying he's telling them all to go away leave him alone go back you know don't don't mess don't don't bother him even though you know you you are being you are being implicated for murder my dear my dear friend so yeah he's and he's on top of the rocks it's actually not a badly shot and edited sequence no 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 but, I actually like that part. It just took forever to get there. But yes. Yeah. And then, of course, what does one of the cops decide to do while Jerry's on top of the large rock? Oh, as Jerry's saying, go back. Leave me alone. I'm fine. You're all fine. We're good. I'm not the killer. He gets shot right in the gut. And he falls, well, into the ocean slash rocks area. Like, I'm like, the way they shot it, like, he, he gets a gut shot or 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 or. or a wound in his like shoulder. I don't know. It it, it just like it was one of those old things. Bang! He falls over. Like then he falls to the rocks. They show the uh, like a, a cut shot of like four different rocks of him falling. Like it's it's a great you know, it's a great idea. But however, that guy is toast. He should be dead. He should be you know fish bait, right? Yeah. Cut to them. Bring him in the shore two seconds later, you know, and he's like, somehow he's still alive, barely for like 20 seconds. And the cops are above him with his girlfriend, and he's like, oh, I'm sorry I shot you in the stomach. You, you know, you, yeah, you, all, zo- you goddamn zombie, you they fuck knuckle. Next, they all lean next to him, even the cops. At yeah. one point, they look like they're kind of like, yeah, maybe we used a little too much excessive force here today. Maybe, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't have shot you in the stomach, in the chest, in the face. I'm sorry. <laughs> and then, of course, the camera pans up, and that's the movie. Yeah. <laughs> and that is the incredibly strange creatures who stopped living and became mix-up zombies, excellent exclamation point exclamation point question mark <laughs> right and if you want to watch this uh dear listeners it can be found on free on tubi or you can have a dear friend like my buddy chris canning to do the uh dvd <laughs> yeah although truthfully if you are, are if you are a um a uh, big risk taker you should probably pick up the blu-ray box set from seven films because they managed to do a decent a very good uh high definition uh, a digital uh, restoration from the original 16 millimeter camera negatives that actually that look really good. I mean, the copy that I gave Tim is from the older DVD from like 2004, I believe. And yeah, because Chris doesn't yeah. care about me. He just no, I he, do, but I just you don't, you don't, you don't <laughs> love me. <laughs> but it is actually a very good high def uh, right. restoration. So if you ever so, get a chance, check right. that out. If you're willing to spend the money, right? But and, and again, if you're not, you can get the pan scan format on uh, a tube. And I now I watched both versions, the, the version you sent me on DVD and the pan scan format. I I switched between the two of them because I was you know busy, and Tubi was just easier when I was on, on my phone. Um, but the pan scan, holy shit, that is awful. That is an awful transition. The DVD is much better. I'm sure the Blu-ray is much much better. <laughs> yeah, but nevertheless, um, I I mean I think that's all we got to say about this 
ridiculous little movie. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I have, I have really. Uh, I think you have you, you've hit all of, like the fun facts that I would have normally done. Okay, Tim. So you know, um, I think that's all we got to say about this movie. Um, so, what do you think, man? Thumbs up, thumbs down. Uh, you know, actually, <laughs> I'm going to give this particular film a thumbs in the middle. Uh, I didn't like hate it. I like the musical interludes. I like the, the cheesy dad jokes. Um, but I can't really, in good conscience, give this a thumbs up. So, what, what's your take, sir? Yeah, I'm going to have to give this a thumbs in the middle. I mean, I mean, like I said, not the worst thing I've seen, but you know, after that, I mean, it's 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 okay, but uh, it's not the greatest. Obviously, it's not the best film of uh, Steckler's uh, c- cinematic uh, legacy, but it's all right. I, I, I it has its issues, but yeah, I'm gonna go with thumbs in the middle. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. So we both give it a thumbs in the middle. Uh, at this point, we're going to take a quick intermission. We'll be right back after this with our uh, next uh, film. So see you in a bit. Christopher? Yes. So Arch Hall Sr. and his company, Fairway International Pictures, took on the distribution of the incredibly strange creatures who stopped living and became mix-up zombies. However, Hall Sr. decided to play it on a double bill with The Sadist from 1963, featuring his son Arch Hall Jr. in the lead role. Box office results were marginal at best, but Raiden Steckler and George J. Morgan turned to a roadshow distributor by the name of Joe Carston, who agreed to give it another release, but a gimmick was needed to sell it. Uh, the picture will be retitled twice as Teenage Psycho meets Bloody Mary and the that would make no sense. Yes, yes. And the diabolical Dr. Voodoo. And it was advertised as being in, quote, bloody horror vision, unquote. Basically, when the possessed, <laughs> when the possessed psycho killer or the zombies appear on screen, working members of the movie theater would run into the audience wearing zombie masks as if the creatures were appearing live in the theater. Uh, yes, so the gimmick worked and the picture did well in continuous theatrical release over the years for both Steckler and Morgan. We dare you to see the maniacs are loose. The world's first horror movie made in hallucinogenic hypnovision. Hallucinogenic horrors not only on the screen, but in the audience all around you. It's a hallucinogenic nightmare. You are put in the middle of the picture with bloodthirsty maniacs all around you. Not only on the screen, but live maniacs in the audience. All over the theater, looking for victims. Homicidal maniacs escape from an asylum. They terrorize a community. Gullible, love-starved women become their prey. And you'll see these same bloodthirsty maniacs in the audience all around you alive. 
for the thrill of your life. See, the maniacs are loose. Despite minor distribution woes, Ray Dennis Steckler wanted to make another movie, and George J. Morgan was on board as producer again. But this time, Steckler wanted to take it a step backward. Instead of attempting a, quote, big unquote production in color steckler wanted to scale it down just a bit and shoot it in moody black and white but the film would still have to be tailored to the horror genre for commercial purposes and steckler looked towards none other than alfred hitchcock in his previous horror hit psycho steckler was certainly no stranger to hitchcock not only did he see psycho during its original theatrical run but steckler also worked as a grip on an episode of the alfred hitchcock Presents series oh, really? ran wow. over. yeah and he and according to ray he almost ran over the master of suspense with an A-frame set, and Steckler was shown the <laughs> gate by a disgruntled assistant director. But that story aside, Psycho was such a big hit that there was no shortage of cash-ins being made by a similar formula. In Steckler's case, why make a film featuring one crazy murder when it can feature four crazy murders? <laughs> well, actually, it was supposed to. It was supposed to have three killers, but when the film was running just a bit too short, Steckler stepped in front of the camera to play the fourth killer and give his alter-acting ego cash flag another <clears throat> stab at movie stardom. <laughs> and thus, The Thrill Killers was shot in 1964 and released in 1965, was made, and Steckler fans consider it his most accomplished low-budget feature in his entire filmography. For the first time in motion picture history, see the side of a city you never expected to see before. Shocking the screen with a confidential expose of the go-go set. The lurid lives and love. The wild and wanton all-night parties where anything goes. It's bestial back streets where lust and murder run amok. You are cheap! People are no good. People are no good. I hate you. They're no good. I'm gonna kill you. you the thrill killers homicidal maniacs on a bloody rampage of horror hungry axes bursting for the blood of the living thrill killers starring cash flag as mad dog click kill crazy psychopathic maniac who would do anything for a kick maniacs with a gun the thrill killers with liz renee love-starved nymphomaniac whose insatiable passions drove men to the very brink of hell. Fly with Mad Dog Click and the Head Choppers 3 as they blaze a terror trail of manipulating evil in one of the sin cities of the world. Cash Flag, Liz Renee, the Thrill Killers! The Thrill Killers begins with the intro of wannabe actor Joe Saxon, played by Joseph Bardo, who is trying to make it in Hollywood, much to the chagrin of his wife, Liz, played by Liz Renee, who just wants her husband to have a steady job due to the due to the couple owing money and being behind on their monthly payments. George has managed to wrangle the assistance of producer George J. Morgan, played by, uh, well, producer George J. Morgan. <laughs> but, but Liz has had enough of the whole Hollywood rat race and decides to leave Joe, heading off to meet her sister Linda, played by Laura Benedict, who runs a crummy roadside cafe. In the meantime, Greek immigrant Dennis Kostekian, played by, well, Dennis Kostekian, using his <laughs> Atlas King screen name again and still having that pompadour haircut, um, is driving to work and a hitchhiker flags him down. 
As it turns out, this is no ordinary hitchhiker. It's crazed murderer Mort Mad Dog Click, played by Ray Dennis Steckler, using his cash flag screen alias again, who proceeds to shoot Dennis with his trusty Luger and steal his car. Then, late at night, Mort decides to pick up a hooker by the name of Arena DeVore, played by Arena Enyo. I did but not Mort see goes, that coming. <laughs> right. But Mort goes nutty and proceeds to murder her in the dark lit apartment. Then we are introduced to a young couple, Ron, played by Ron Burr and Carol, played by Carol and Brant, who arrive at a house they purchase in the middle of nowhere. But they are soon attacked and murdered by three escapees from the local mental asylum. Herbie, played by Herb Robbins, Keith, played by Keith O'Brien, and Gary, played by Gary Kent. After that madness is over, Joe and his producer friend George Morgan find Liz at the cafe. And just when you think things are worked out, the three madmen arrive and hold the place hostage. And as it turns out, leading madman Herbie is none other than the brother of Mort Mad Dog Click. And Mort is oh playing the my God. at the cafe. I know, mind blown. Holy shit. <laughs> yes, that is the thrill killers. And I I uh, yeah, I I kind of I do agree with um the Steckler fandom out there, which there are some that consider this to be his one of his better films and I I think what makes it work is that he scales back from like trying to do the epicness from the incredibly strange creatures mm-hmm. and go for the like the 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 small scale shot in black and white um, uh, storyline and kind of using Psycho as a little bit of a template, which you know it's interesting. In as much as Hitchcock's film was definitely the turning point, particularly in the era when it came out, nineteen sixty, you know, other filmmakers would try to like emulate that. But I have to also say, you know, Hitch wasn't quite as original with that because there was another film that was made in 1955 by, um, uh, oh God, what's uh, French director uh, Henri Georges Clouseau called Diabolique, which was based on a novel that Hitchcock was trying to buy back then. So, so I mean, but those two movies are eerily similar in terms of their thriller setup and everything. But nevertheless, um, uh, you know, as a psycho type cash in, it's it's okay, but I there's something about this movie that really that really kind of works. It's like it's got this weird, I guess you can say low rent film noir suburban sprawl thing going on, and then mm-hmm. suddenly we're introduced to these four crazy killers that are on the loose and well, <laughs> well cause me. Three, three, three crazy killers. I mean, Cash well, makes a Cash makes a, an appearance at the very beginning, and then he kind of yeah. goes away for about mm, 25, 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah, but he still comes back, and he is still technically a killer. I mean, he yeah, he, he is. Murders, he more he murders a poor dude out for his car, and then he kills a hooker. I mean, it, not exactly an endearing figure. But oh <laughs> no, 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 yeah, yeah. But, no, he, he was yeah, introduced early, but then he went away. <laughs> right. But the other thing about this movie that's so interesting that not many people pick up on until it's sort of brought up is that it seemed like right after The Incredibly Strange Creatures, Ray would like try to do this weird um, sort of like in-jokes in in regards to that film. Like if you notice um, when they go to that that, uh, rundown diner cafe. Right. There's pictures of, of 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 the lead actor Joe Bardo, who's with, yeah. like with Mae West, and there's a poster there for the incredibly strange creatures, right? And, and supposedly he's in that movie. He's they not in that movie. Like, no, he's not. But they make it look like he had something to do with it, right? Right. You know, and and and, and this would become 
uh, uh, sort of a sticking point with Ray is that he would sort of do these weird self-referential mm-hmm. mythologizing because you'll see in his, some of his later films, you know, you'll maybe you'll see a poster for the incredibly strange creatures or you'll you'll see like a connection in a later film, like mm-hmm. in the Lemon Grove Kids Meet the Monsters. There's like there's a weird rat thing, a boo boo connection with that movie. But the, the, the point is, is that this if you really look for it. Oh, oh. And then, of course. His producer buddy George J. Morgan playing basically himself in this movie, right. you know. So I mean, it's like this weird, and, and obviously, unless back then, which nobody probably, nobody certainly did know, you know, the whole concept of the Ray Dennis Steckler verse out there, you know, would have picked up on any of these things. But nevertheless, yeah. it's like over the years, if you look at those films in their chronological order, you kind of get this this feeling that Ray was trying to like throw in all these weird in-jokes that only he and his friendly cohorts involved in these films knew more about than the audience did. <laughs> well, I, I, so, feel, I feel that's a thing that with most people, with most uh, directors and creators do. Because, I mean, if you remember back to the Empire Pictures, that they did that quite a bit. <laughs> you know, they'd oh, have yeah, posters and, mo- and movies and trailers playing in the background or, uh, uh, yeah, it's not a, a new thing yeah, like, per se. Yeah. Oh, it's, but, not, yeah. it's not a new thing, but then it, it, when you connect the dots, you kind of figure out, like, you know, you mentioned the Empire Pictures connection. Like in the movie Deadly Weapon, they're watching the television and what's playing on there. It's Terrorvision, right? Because it's an Empire film, right? But and course, what's ter- when, when, when Terrorvision is playing, what's what's playing there? Oh, I'm trying to remember what was. I think it, I think uh, it was uh, that Time Cop movie, or or some, there was some other one. It was, but it, but it was another. Oh oh, 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 yeah, 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 yeah. It was another. Yeah, it, I get but, what you're saying. Yeah. yeah, but it's another one. But because why? Because I mean, you could have that playing in the background, not pay anything extra for something oh, that's already. Yeah. yeah, it's it's absolutely. it's easy peasy lemon squeezy. Come on. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. Why why pay licensing fees for someone else's movie that you don't own when you don't have to pay any licensing yeah. fees for a movie that you made previous that you do own? So yeah, yes, no, it so makes we... sense. It makes sense. But there's like that weird like self-referential oh, mythologizing right. that kind of comes into play. Yeah, that Ray would do. But nevertheless, I mean, I I do like the thrill killers. Like I said, it it, it it's it, it's not it's not a very fantastically acted movie or anything like that. But it no. is a fairly decently made movie that like lives up to its premise right and and like i said it feels like like horror movie combined with film noir i really wish eddie mueller of the film noir foundation would like play this movie on turner classic movies whenever they they do a film noir month because i think this would totally fit (laughs) i i I get the film noir thing i really do i I, it feels it feels much like um if you remember la confidential the movie from the late 90s uh basically how it was shot um the acting however yes like you mentioned is uh not very good. Uh, well, uh, other, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, other than let me, let me, other than the uh, the three psycho killers. <laughs> yeah, the I mean, I would say the film's weakness in terms of the performance of the two leads. They're not bad. They're just they're they're not. No, no. They're not. Um, they're they're pretty flat, one dimensional characters. Right, and, and, and to but, me, it, to me, the, the gentleman who was the lead looked like a Ronald Reagan, like back in the. If you remember the early Ronald Reagan movies of the nineteen yeah, like, fifty, yeah. looked, oh, looked like. But, but, right, no, no, and, and, and it's not like knocking against it, but it just he just you look like a stand like a, a stunt double basically, yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's not and, knock against the poor gentleman who was right. who, who doing it. But and, it was and, just the, the time, <laughs> right? And then to be fair about it too, the actress Liz Renee, she was more or less. 
brought into this movie because she had a connection with uh, then L.A. gangster Mickey Cohen. In fact, she was arrested and then eventually released. And according to Ray, Joe Bardot, the the actor in this film, had to go pick her up at the at, at the at the at the. At the uh, police station. Oh wow! When she agreed to do, when she, when she agreed, so she was brought into this movie more or less for publicity purposes. So right, I mean, is, she's she's okay. She would go on to do a film for John Waters. I think it was Desperate Living, and and it's been a while since I've seen that movie, but I I recall her being pretty decent in that film. But yeah, no, I, it's, I, it's funny you so mentioned yeah, that she, because I just mentioned Ellie Confidential, and she and her character is a big character in bringing down Mickey Cohen <laughs> in the uh, in the. Yeah. Do, have you ever seen Ellie Confidential? Uh, it's been a long time. So oh, I, I so yeah, think. yeah. So there, there, there is some. There is. It's really, it's really kind of cool. I mean, I, I enjoy this whole stuff. It's, it's all. It's like everything loops back to one another. It's like this but whole universe within the universe. But yeah, it's ama- But it's amazing that they were able to get her. I mean, because in a way, she was sort of a high-profile figure, right. Because of that. But it's interesting too that how. Liz would like hang around with guys like Ray and another low budget filmmaker by the name of Ted B. Michael. So it's, it's, it, it kind of goes back to that concept of say what you want about Ray, but it seemed like a lot of people liked Ray. Right. <laughs> he was, cause she seemed very, very, uh, Gary Kent was interviewed on the, um, on the, uh, Severn films, Ray in the Seckler box set. And he said, you know, the downside of working on a Radio and a Secular film was you didn't get paid a lot of money and, you know, you didn't really get a lot of food on the film, maybe like a bologna sandwich and you maybe got 50 <laughs> bucks. But, but but he said Ray was always accommodating in the sense that he didn't demand much from you. Uh-huh. You know, if you did something, did something that he really liked, he would say, OK, let's do that. But he said one of the things that he also liked about Ray was that he, you know, when you're an actor starting out and you're trying to like make it, you're obviously going to try to spend your time to, to please that person, obviously. Right. Right. So Ray, at the end of the day, Ray every day would tell everybody, thank you very much for, you know, help, you know, being here and helping us out. And, you know, you did a great job, you know, and then, and, and, and Gary was like, you know, considering we weren't getting paid a lot of money and, you know, we weren't being fed all the time, you know, getting that from someone was like, you know, really good because you basically confirmation. Like, yes. Yes. Right. Right. But, it, but Gary said how he got cast in this movie was because he was next door neighbors with Ray and Ray <laughs> came up to him one day and said, Hey, you want to be in this movie? I'm doing called thrill killers. Yeah. Like, well, you're an actor, right? Yeah. 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 I'm an actor. I'm starting out as an actor. He's like, Oh, okay. Well then, you know, come on and be in this movie. And of course, according to, according to Gary, there was no script. There was an outline, but there was no script. So everybody made up their own dialogue. <laughs> and, you know, but he said, yeah, he said he liked Ray and Ray was a good charmer and knew how to talk you into doing anything. It was because he just had that charm to him. And, and that's something that you kind of need when you don't have it and you don't have any money. I mean, you know, it's like well, you, you got to play to your strengths, you know? Right, right, right. Well, I forget who said it. Someone said something like, you know, Maybe it was Ray's second wife, Catherine, in the interview. She said, Ray could talk you into doing anything. He could talk you into, like, like if you, like, if he was trying to, like, get one of his movies played at a theater or something, you know, the theater manager would be like, well, I don't know. I, I could get in a lot of trouble, Ray. I can't. But then about a few minutes later, the person was like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll give it a shot, Ray. You know, <laughs> it was right. like he could talk you into doing anything. So, yeah, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a, 
it's an odd little movie, but it is fun in its own way. I mean, I, 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 I don't know. I mean, what do you think, Tim? <laughs> yeah, I, honestly, I enjoyed this movie a lot more than the um, incredibly dead psycho <laughs> vi- zombie killers from another universe. Anyway, no, um, no, I, I really did. I enjoyed. It's a simple premise, and that's why I enjoyed. Yeah. It. Like you said, breaking it down. I enjoyed the. Um, what 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 they did in the first movie we reviewed and we did in this movie it's all related to to me when they cut to the close-ups of the radio of like the uh the news announcer i i, I noticed yeah. that and I, and I enjoyed that aspect of it uh i felt that yes the acting was extremely wooden at times extremely like kind of cruddy at, i'm not it was, you're not cruddy but campy at times except when they got to those three main killers those guys were fantastic. Those yeah, guys absolutely were awesome. Everyone else, yeah, sure, whatever. Take, get, take her with a grain of salt. But those three gentlemen who play the psychos, and I mean, I mean, how hard is it to play a psycho? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not a first for for a, for a, a major motion Wanna picture. Do some method acting, Tim. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, and I, I, but I, I enjoyed that. Um, I enjoyed that part of the, the film, and the film is is not really that long. It's about a, uh, an hour and seven, ten minutes, maybe. It's like six. It's sixty nine minutes. It's it's it's, it's it's yeah. It's seven. it's about it's it's literally under an hour and fifteen minutes. Um, so I no, I don't know where you can really find this film to watch per se. I know the other one we viewed is currently on Tubi, and I believe the next movie we're viewing, uh, Ratfink, is also on Tubi as well. But this well, one, you have I to mean, kind of search for a little bit. Well, yeah. I mean, if you want to go, I think maybe even on Amazon Prime you can find it, but I mean, right. if, like I said, if you're an adventurous money spender like I am, you know, you can always buy the Severn Films Blu-ray box set with the nice 2K restoration of the movie. I mean, it. it yeah, I mean, I mean, but anyways, yeah, yes. it's um, um, so let's see. So I, so the beginning of this movie, real quick, it, it it's so interesting, and this is what I mean when I say it kind of has that weird, it has a weird low rent film noir vibe to it. Is where we're introduced to the lead, the lead actor, uh, Joseph Bardo, who is playing this character by the name of Joe Saxon, and he's this. You know, he's this actor, he's trying to make it in Hollywood, and we get this nice little montage of him walking around, you know, Hollywood. Basically, and by beating, the, beating the streets, trying to be that working actor kind of guy. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, and he's walking down the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and we get to see the some of the, you know, the stars and whatnot, and, uh, and, and of course, he has to call his wife, Liz, and, and Liz played by Liz Renee is, is a uh, former actress who got tired of the whole Hollywood scene. And now she's pretty much, you know, a stay at home wife. And I, I will say this. I love how uh, Joe's character has managed to get Liz, Liz, who is a fairly, very, fairly attractive woman to be with him, despite the fact that he's not, not a successful man bringing home money to pay the bills <laughs> it's 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 so interesting <laughs> like it makes you wonder what they what she saw in him before that <laughs> yeah but uh and 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 of course she's very disappointed in it but she sticks with him because i you know we feel that she likes him at least so far yes and and i love the narration by this by the uncredited coleman francis where <laughs> You know the dialogue is so over overwrought with ridiculousness, but it's it it's it like 
I said something about how Joe is behind the monthly payment plans, and you know, <laughs> and it, it's ridiculous, right. but it, but it feel but it does feel oddly true to life. I mean, the way how it's written in that ridiculous hard-boiled dialogue but when you think about it yeah that is kind of true you know you if you're trying to make it in something but you're trying to live the high life yeah you're going to be having a, you know tons of bills to pay and uh, right I, I just i just wonder how they can throw a party with all this booze and liquor i know but back then they had things like the liquor bill and shit like that yeah you know? i mean it, but nevertheless, I just love the way how it's narrated. And then and then we go from and, and the way how they describe it. They describe Joe Saxon living in the world of non-reality. Because yeah. he has and again, and it's true because you know, here he is, he has no job. He's trying to make it in the Hollywood business. You know, he's he doesn't have any money. He's avoiding paying the bills. He could get evicted. He and his wife could get evicted from their lovely home any minute now. Right. You know, and then we and then it cuts to um, this character, Dennis Kostekian. Well, real name Dennis Kostekian. It's, it's, it's the guy who went under the name Atlas King in The Incredibly Strange Creatures, but they use his real name <laughs> as a character name. <laughs> so, he, so he's credited as Atlas King in this movie, but they use his real name as a character. Mm-hmm. And and, and, and and the narrator even describes him as a Greek immigrant, which is, according to Ray, that's what Dennis was. Um but he here he is playing a family man. He's got like several kids, and you know he's they're, they're living in a home. And the narrator says he has to keep up with the monthly payments, and right. <laughs> they describe <just try> to... <laughs> And and I love how pro America it is too. He's like, and where else can he succeed but in America? <laughs> right, right. And you see the kids right, playing right. in daycare, and then he's got to go out and you know. And then, uh, and then he dies. He gets killed. And... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, before that, I love how the narrator describes him, Dennis Kostekian. A realist <laughs> and he drives away in his car but i love it i love this contrast too because no matter what you are you never know what's going to happen to you in life and sure enough exactly. dennis is driving down a lonely road heading to work and a guy is hitchhiking and and he pulls over and he says you know can i give you a lift and it's none other than our intrepid director ray dennis deckler playing cash yeah, well, no, using the name Cash Flag, but he yeah. plays the character of Mort Mad Dog Click, a criminal on the run who decides to <laughs> show the thing and shoot Dennis in the head with this trusty Luger. And I love how this is set up. It actually is pretty effective. I love it. He pulls over to the side and he says, hi, can I give you a lift? And then Ray just leans into the window and just has this weird blank stare. Right. And Dennis starts getting worried and then he pulls the gun out and Dennis just sadly uh, says, no, don't, don't. And then Ray shoots him twice and then throws him out of the car and drives my, away. My thing is it's, it's such a dramatic pause. He could have just put, pushed on the gas and gotten out of there. <laughs> yeah, he could have, but you know, but then the story wouldn't have gone anywhere after that. He imagine it. He drives away and avoids mad, more mad dog click. And then it's like, uh, Man, yeah, where's oh, this no. going next? <laughs> oh, I, yeah, I get it, but it was like it's like it's one of those like it feels like almost a comedic thing. It's like nowadays, like and even back when we were making like little shorts with Mark, we're like like no, we have got to get away. I'm like, dude, just go. <laughs> anyway, but go, continue on. Yes. Uh, no, so I mean, so that sort of propels where the movie is going to go, and then we we eventually cut to this late night party that Joe is throwing for with like a bunch of actor friends and um, 
head honcho producers and you know we get to meet his producer buddy george morgan played by george morgan who <laughs> I, I, and I, I, again, I, I love this because, you know, obviously George is not doing any acting on here, but yeah. from the way how he's playing it, it feels like that's who he really is. Okay. You know? So, so, so my, my, my favorite is the, like the yes man. It was always right there with the weird mustache and the glasses. Yeah, 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 like sure, yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. Goes, yeah. That's right, Mister Morgan. That's right. And sitting next to George and the girl that's next to him is. Um, Archal Senior, the yeah. producer of uh, Sadist and Ega, and I, and he's uncredited in this movie. So I wonder how he ended up in this. I'm gonna assume maybe this is just a, an assumption on my part. I'm gonna assume that Archal uh, Senior was hanging around, and Ray said, "Hey, you want to have a brief scene in this movie?" And he said, "Sure." And then maybe, maybe that would probably get Archal Senior to distribute this movie and that didn't that didn't happen but right uh, i find it interesting but i love it i love the two kids i love how they're performing in here you know uh, so you know and, and george is being very nice and affable and everything you know and and basically like i said basically playing himself right right i mean he's not he's he's not doing any performance here but joe's character is like giving him and 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 uh, the producer the other producer played by Archal senior, their drinks. And, um, he says, uh, Joe says to, to George, you know, Hey, I, what did you think about the rough cut? You mm-hmm. know, you know, yeah. 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 <laughs> and, and, and George is very nice. You know, he's being very like, you know, eh, you know, it wasn't bad. I mean, it needs work and everything. Whereas Archal senior is like, you know, saying these rather pithy remarks about how, Oh, you know, Joe, it, you know, I thought the I thought the movie was extremely slow, and then of course, you know, Joe is like trying to be like, well, I know I'm not the best in the business, but I'm just trying to, you know, just. But it is, you know, a first start, and 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 Archal Senior says, "Oh no, Joe, I wasn't being critical of your acting, Joe." Wink, wink, wink. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and, and then the yes man comes in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he goes, "That's right, Mr. Morgan. That's right, Mr. Hall." You know, and he just standing there with that smirk on his face. Yeah. And, in those big '60s style, you know, nerd glasses with his weird mustache, yeah, 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 and that 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 long smile on his face, yeah. <laughs> and making you feel I, everybody feel uncomfortable, <laughs> right, right. But I think also this was, you know, uh, Ray in interviews, you know, he would talk about his experiences in, in Hollywood, and you know, it was sort of like a double edged sword to him in one sense. On the one hand, he liked meeting people that he got to, you know, got to know and got got to ex- experience working with. And, you know, he said great. He actually got to work on something with uh, Gregory Peck. And it was like for some charity thing that they were shooting for television. And he said Gregory Peck was like the most class act on the set. He right. showed up on set late and, you know, th- everybody thought Gregory was going to be like, you know, an ego about it. And Greg, Greg, Gregory Peck apologized to everybody, telling them that there was an accident on the road and he got held up in traffic. And then there was a makeup artist on the film, on, on the on the show that uh, that uh, uh, for some reason couldn't make it. So the apprentice makeup artist lady right. had to take over and she was inexperienced and and. She told Gregory Peck that, and he, he told her very nicely, okay, well, I'll tell you how I, how I want it done, how they usually do it on me. You know, it, 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 helping her out, being right. a very take, nice guy. Just being take your very, time. It's okay. Being a, being a very nice guy. 
and, and then, of course, at the end of shooting the whole thing for this television thing, you know, Gregory would ask everybody, is that good? Or you want me to do it again? And mm-hmm. then was like, no, oh, that was very good. And like, and, and then he left and said, thank you. So, I mean, like he got to experience some really cool people in Hollywood that were not egos. But then Ray would experience dealing with people that were basically pieces of shit. And he, he told the story about how on this later film, Body Fever, which we're not reviewing because it's not really a horror film, but he was he had a guy working for him for three years that was that was trying to be an actor. And Ray said to him, OK, well, um, I'm going to be making this movie called Body Fever and I want you to be in it. I'll let you play the lead. And after three days of production three days of shooting this actor who had no credits to his name was not famous was trying to make his mark decided one day to ray i'm not going to do anything you say because i don't think you know what you're doing and ray was like well yeah i don't want to go down this road but it is my money i'm spending and i mean i want you to do this and the actor said to him well no i'm just not going to do it and what are you going to do you're going to throw away three days worth of footage you know basically trying to take the whole thing hostage and ray eventually it was like, oh, you think I won't? And he reached over and grabbed the guy's toupee, which, <laughs> bought, which was bought for this guy to be in this movie. And he sticks it on his own, Ray sticks it on his own head. And he's like, I'm going to play the lead. And you're fired. <laughs> wow. And he fires the guy. And the last thing Ray remembered about that guy was when the guy got in the taxi, looked out the window, and as it was driving away, the guy said, I'll never work for you again, Steckler. I'll never work for you again. And it, it, and Ray just laughed because he's like, well, why would I want to work with him again? He tried sabotaging this thing. Oh, wow. Why would I trust him? But, you know, the, and then I say all this because this little moment with these two producers kind of like is sort of like I, I, I get the feeling this was like Ray's sort of personal take on, you know, dealing with the shit in the business. You know, you get these some of these guys that don't really pay attention to they kind of undermine you in one sense. Right. So here's this here's this actor character. You know, he's trying to defend himself. He's trying to get himself in the business. He's trying to be nice to these guys. He's spending money he doesn't have on right. this party, trying to, you know, trying to at least rub shoulder to shoulder with them. And it's almost like maybe not necessarily George Morgan's character, but Arch Hall Sr.'s character and everybody else that's hanging around there right. is just kind of like, you know, uh, freeloading off of him and just undermining him. Like, yeah, yeah, whatever. You know, you and the million other people that are trying to make it in this business, <laughs> you know, because there's that one scene where this one drunk guy says to Joe, hey, Joe, I saw your uh, your last movie you did. And he goes, boy, was it bad. <laughs> you know, and it's like, okay, you, you don't have to like it, but you don't have to, you know, be so crude <laughs> right it, you know to a guy who's trying to make it right but never but nevertheless so so while all this insanity is going on you know liz goes up to him and tells him you know you we gotta like we can't be doing this joe we can't be spending money on these parties we can't be trying to impress these people they don't care they're just here to use you which she's she's sort of right i mean right half the people that are hanging around this party are a bunch of like mooches mooches and and actor wannabes that are just kind of fooling around and not really doing anything special with their lives but uh, and then of course there's a ridiculous sequence which doesn't really translate very well in which someone drives their motorcycle inside the <laughs> inside the party and then it drives out of the room and you hear it splash in the pool but yeah we never but we never see it we just hear the sound effect of well it. we see we see the motorcycle drive through the house though yeah yeah yeah. but we don't see the motorcycle go into the pool no because that's hear, too much money <laughs> yeah yeah too much money so I, I i so but nevertheless after this party then we cut to 
Mort Mad Dog Click. He picks up this this hooker for fifty dollars, uh, played by um, uh, Arena Enyo, who was in the Incredibly Strange Creatures. She played Carmelita. And she actually has a lot more to do in this scene, believe it or not. So that she takes her up to to his to her crummy apartment, right? And, and they're drinking, and they're they're kind of doing the existential dialogue thing, right? <laughs> Film noir existential dialogue thing, you know. And and, and of course, um, uh, Mort Mad Dog Click is about to make out with her, then suddenly he just raises her hand and just get, lays an open hand on her, right. and she. She says, "Why? What did you do that for?" And he, he's all like, "Well, oh, I hate women. They're cheap." And she goes, "Cheap? What's so cheap about fifty dollars?" And then, <laughs> and he reaches over, he bumps into the dresser, and he picks up a pair of scissors. And he pretty much just announces, "I'm going to kill you." And then he starts. I thought this scene was pretty good, considering you know how they did it and everything. It's right. most of it's handheld, you know, flashing light effects to, in, in quick, in brief cutaways, but. He, they turn the lights off, and then suddenly he's like really just belting her with his hand. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it's totally crazy. But you know, and then he's like throwing the scissors, sharp scissors around his hands like it's a knife, and then he makes he just makes his quick move and stabs her to death. And then it cuts to a shot of the radio where it was playing music, but then we get the special announcement about how there are three right. escaped criminals from the asylum. <laughs> Like, what do we just watch? I'm like, okay, there's three guys. (laughs) I know, but that's the thing I I do like about Ray's movies is that say what you want about them. No script, you know, no, no specific preparation, but it it always feels like he relies on the unexpected, you know, Mm -hmm. because it's called the thrill killers. It's like, okay, well, there's an S at the end of it. So there's going to be more than one killer in this movie. Right. And we see one, which is more mad dog click. And then later on in the movie, we get the announcement of three additional killers that are on the loose. <laughs> so we know we're going to see them soon. <laughs> right. But, and so then we then, we then cut to the, um, to, to the, uh, bedroom of, um, uh, uh, Joe Saxon and his wife, Liz. And I don't know if you noticed this, Tim, but talk about something that was a novelty of the era. There's a portable little mini television set right next to the to her makeup. <laughs> I'm serious. I, I saw. I forgot about that. And I watched it. Like, yeah. You know, it's like wow. I mean, like they obviously shot in someone's place that had some money because I, not everybody could have afforded that thing. But well, at, at the yeah. same time, talk about like you know the expenses that these characters are running up. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, he, he's sitting there. She's uh, there. She's there. Re- he's reading the magazine and she's doing whatever her with her beehive hairdo. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And it's just and it's just, and it's the same thing. I mean, these two characters are not really the most deep characters in the whole movie. I mean, it's the same thing. She's arguing, or not necessarily arguing, but expressing concerns right. about how they're spending money that they don't have. And Joe says, don't worry about it. You know, I, I, I got this taken care of. Well, yeah, I got this taken care of. Baby. What the fuck don't does that mean? What the yeah. fuck does that mean? You got I taken know, care of. Yeah. Like what exactly? You know, I mean, we're not even sure your career is going to take off and you got this taken care of. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, I do agree. Their their performance, Joe Bardo's performance and Liz Renee's performance. And he give, if, if he gives great. up acting, what is he going to do? Nine to so he's just on nine to five gig. Like what nine to five gig? Are you, are you a CPA? What what can you possibly bring to this uh, relationship if acting doesn't well, work out? Well, he what, doesn't. What, want, he does, he wants to pursue acting because that's what he wants to do. He well, I, I get that, but what, what does he have for a backup though? 
It, probably nothing. Yeah. But, <laughs> you know, so yeah, you are probably going to have to work at a grocery store at nine to five. Or you right. Are gonna Which you're going to have to give up the pool, ha- the house with the pool and the bar yeah. and all that stuff, wonderful stuff because, yeah. well, if you're not making the, ca- the cash, you're not going to do it. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it is, even though I don't think Ray intended it to be this way, it is a very interesting take on that concept of materialism and like how yeah. far you can take it. Right. Because, yeah, it, it, his character is this sort of down and out actor trying to make it in the business, but but, yeah, you know he's he's trying to live the high life and use that as an influence. Totally understand. You got, you got to right. fake it till you make it, kind of thing. But how right. long can but, you fake it before you make yeah, it? <laughs> I know, yeah. But no one's paying attention to him because they're just using him. So it's right. like it's not. It's really like not even a twofold situation for him. It's really just failing for him. And um, so after they make out, suddenly it cuts to the next day. And Liz decides, you know what? I've had it. I I love the guy, or at least we think she does. But she's like, I can't, I can't stick around this anymore. And she leaves with a goodbye letter, and you know, and then leaves. And then in the meantime, uh, we cut to the um, crummy cafe, roadside cafe run by Linda, played by Laura Benedict, who Linda is supposed to be uh, Liz's sister. Yeah, I don't get that, but go on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's all right. I mean, it's not really... It's fine. No, it's fine. it's fine. It's just, I think they did that so they can at least have a character connection. Well, of course, yeah. Anyway, but, I mean, it would have worked out better if it was just, like, a friend. You know, like, oh, it's my friend from, like... Right. Oh, I haven't you know. seen you in, like, you know, a couple of years. What have you been up to kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of like... It's one of those things where it doesn't matter one way or another if it was a sister or a friend. I mean, right. you know, you could interchange that and it would still be the same... Mm-hmm. the same interaction that they'd have but nevertheless so and then we, we see her running this crummy cafe and i love how she smokes one of those el cheapo thin cigars <laughs> do you know you notice that in this one <laughs> yeah yeah right yeah. Ne- right yeah right next to the, uh, not the jukebox but what was she there, well, there she was some was next, really great next. some really great product placement honestly for the time <laughs> yeah well no she was smoking it while she was listening to the radio right. in which the uh, news announcer is talking about the escaped convicts or i'm sorry the escaped uh Mental, Mental patients, yes. Yeah, yeah. And then she walks over to the jukebox and plays some music, and then there's this couple sitting there uh, having a laugh. Um, I'm trying to – I'm forgetting their name for a moment. Um, Ron, played by Ron Burr, and Carol, played by uh, Ray's wife, Carolyn Brandt. So she gets a part in this movie too. Yeah. And, you know, they're talking, and I guess they just got married. And they Ron says, oh, I bought uh, – I bought this guy's place down the road. We're going to go check it out, you know, or, or they rented it or whatever. And we're going to, we're going to remodel it or whatever. Right. And, uh, of course, um, um, I'm trying to think for a second here. Uh, Linda says, you know, okay, well the bills on the house, you don't have to pay anything. And they say, thank you. And then they leave. And then, and then they, and then Liz, Liz drives up to the place and she's, walks in and says hi to her sister and says, you know, I just couldn't take it anymore. I couldn't take the Hollywood rat race and all that shit. Right. And I left, I left Joe and I left him a note. Yeah. That, that kind but of, she doesn't that. seem very confident. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and that's, I, I did kind of like that too. Like she didn't seem very confident in that she wanted to leave that note behind, but yeah, you know, it, she just had to get away yeah. from it. All right. That. Yeah. So now we come to like the part of the movie that really like sets the gears in motion. So we get to the, so the couple Ron and Carol drive over to the place that that he bought. And it's this rundown, (laughs) it's this rundown, uh, like 
home out in the middle of nowhere. Right, because he got it for cheap. It was like, what, like 180 bucks or something like that? Yeah, yeah. And... But, you know, you know 1960 is still a lot of money. But, yeah, it was a, it's quite a big, sprawling place for... I'm trying to remember that if, if they bought the place or they rented it. I, I, thought th- I think rented. it was a, a mortgage, maybe a down payment, maybe? Probably. But, but so, either way, but, it was a lot. But they're, but they're, but they're going to meet the owner. Yeah. And they, Harry? They, <laughs> no, his name was Hank. Hank. But... but so they go there, they knock on the door, there's no answer. And I love, it cuts to the inside of the house. Right. At the window. And you hear this clicking sound. And if at first, when you watch it the first time, you're kind of like, what's that sound? Is that like some just bad sound recording issues going mm-hmm. on? And then if you look down in the right frame, it's the record player. You know how it skips like that when it when it's finished playing? Right. And then, of course... They run over to the next side of the house that has an open door, and there's a noose hanging (laughs) by the door, which is is a bad sign. Well, it's (laughs) never a good sign. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, but they go inside anyway, and then, you know, he walks over and takes the record player, uh, he turns it off, and he says, you know, and and it's like, oh, well, it looks like Hank should still be here. The coffee's warm, and, you know, and and, and, uh, the, the record player's playing. So they look around the house, and they can't find Hank. So then... Ron decides I'm going to show you the other part of the house, which is another house behind them. Right. That's just, that's far worse looking than the <laughs> other one. I mean, the ceiling is caving in for Christ's sake. Right. And Ron's character is like, well, we can fix it up and, you know, turn it into a house to try yeah, to rent it for. He's very optimistic about the whole, you know. You no, know, I mean, they're not bad ideas, but yeah. it's like, you know, I hope you've got the money for this, buddy. <laughs> we don't even know what this guy does for a living. He just yeah. happens to have the money. Yeah. Well, it, it really doesn't matter in about five minutes. It doesn't yeah, matter. Yeah, because <laughs> when they walk up the stairs, they find Hank's this dismembered head sitting on the. Actually, I, that was a pretty decent scare. Yeah. She, it's a. It's a it's, Carolyn Brandt walks up the stairs first with Ron Burr filing, following behind her. And then we cut to a close-up of her, and then she looks over and she screams in terror as she sees the the the, the bloody head li- lying on the floor. And then one of the nutcases, um, uh, Keith, played by Keith O'Brien, he's got the axe in his hand, and he goes, you're looking for Hank? Well, here he is. He just <laughs> plops the head right down there. So obviously we know at this point now, here are the three inmates from the asylum that have Right. escapes and we're introduced to them we got the keith played by keith o'brien he's the one who's got the the axe in his hand we have herbie who's sort of the leader played by herb robbins who, he's got who, like this who has a brother that it, turns out to have the brother that's cash or uh, yeah yeah the more mad dog click character yeah mad which dog is click, like yeah. which is a big surprise later on but we pretty much revealed it so it's okay yes and then this big tall guy played by play gary played by gary kent and uh, if you notice, um, who's got the buck knife? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now Herb Robbins, if you notice, he has a, a shiner on his eye, <laughs> and that's because, according to Gary Kent, a couple of days before shooting, he knew Herb Robbins. Herb Robbins worked in Hollywood as a dialogue coach and as an actor, and his brother—I forget his brother's name—but his brother worked as a production designer on a couple of Alfred Hitchcock movies. Okay. So, you know, so there's just some legit background there, but he said one day, according to Gary Kent, one day he was walking with Herb and some car pulled out of nowhere and some guy got out of the car and walked up to Herb and punched him in the face. Oh God. Out of, out of nowhere. And nobody knew why that was. It's some, it was 
surmise that maybe it was a former acting student that got pissed at him for some reason and saw him out there and just drove up there and punched him in the face. <laughs> well, that, that, that seems like a lot of work. <laughs> I know, but nevertheless, if you notice, he's got that shiner on his eye. Right. Yeah. But he's, but, but he's the one with, the, he's basically the leader. He's the one with the gun. And, and then, um, um, so they're kind of struggling a bit and the guy, the, the, our three crazy nutcases decide to attack, basically sexually <laughs> assault uh carolyn brandt's character and ron can't take it anymore and he shoves him aside and then goes by and then pushes some one of them aside from the front door and closes it and then it it just sets off gary kent's character mm-hmm. if you remember he says open the door and then all of a sudden he's right like, yeah he, he goes ballistic about something being claustrophobic or yeah, some yeah, sort of yeah, shit. yeah and and this is i i gotta say this is i think one of the craziest scenes Ray has done in the horror movie because it's so brazen how it's done. Cause when I first saw it, I'm like, there's no way he's going to really go. And then certain sure as shit he does. So Gary walks up to Ron and just starts beating the shit out of him. And then Ron falls down and, um, they throw the ax to Gary and they pretty much tell him to finish him off. And, and Gary is just giving it his all, man. And he says to the guy while says to Ron while he is knocked out, I told you, I told you not to lock me in that room. And Carolyn yeah. spits out this blood curdling scream. And that axe comes down and we see it in like the wide shot chops off, chops off Ron's head. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, I, I mean, and, and <laughs> the way how it was done, it is obviously as a dummy, but right. just the way how it was shot and manipulated and done, you know, again, for a low budget movie, it, it was pretty nicely done. I mean, whenever I, I haven't watched this movie in a while, but whenever that scene came up, I was like, holy shit, I, I forgot how far Ray took it. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, quite a bit, you know. <laughs> yeah. And he said in an interview, he said he really didn't want to make a film that crude in terms of the violence, but. He really pushed himself to do it. I mean, I mean, that's a scene that, for that time, it's it's not on the level of anything from Blood Feast or Two Thousand Maniacs, but for that time, mm-hmm. not many people saw that. I mean, I believe in William Castle's uh, straight jacket for Columbia Pictures. Uh, George Kennedy's character gets beheaded, and you kind of sort of see it. But in in this one, we do see it. We do see the head come off in the wide shot, right. you know, and 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 the axe blade come down. So, and then um, uh, Gary is like holding the axe up with a bl- with some of the blood coming down off of it. Right. <laughs> and all and the remaining nutcases are trying to placate him, like, please, you know, calm down, calm yeah, down. Yeah, uh, yeah, dude, just relax. It's okay. <laughs> just relax. You killed the man, but it's a okay. Yeah. <laughs> And then Carol runs out of the house trying to escape, and they chase after her. She's and, not and making it very say, far. She makes yeah, it yeah. like the truck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I will say, like you said, these three guys do a pretty good job oh. playing, you know, nutcases. They're my favorite of, of the film. <laughs> so, anyways, so she's trying. They're trying to escape. It's not working out. I mean, mm-hmm. she's not trying to escape and not working out. And there's a moment where uh, there's a little portable radio that that. Um, oh, what's your favorite? The, the the lady left behind, right? The, uh, the... yeah, yeah. Carolyn Brand had a portable radio that she left on the table, mm-hmm. and and she left it on. And then she's trying to escape, and 
and there, it's some dude telling this weird bedtime story for kids or whatever. Right, on the radio. Very, very strange. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Voiced by an actor by by a future Radio Steckler associate by the name of Ron Haydock, which we'll get to him later. But so while Herbie's listening to this radio thing on the little little mini portable radio, uh, Gary and Herbie are chasing Carolyn up into this room, and it's like this like there's this wall and there's two doors, and Herbie sits down listening to the radio, just you know taking a break basically, and. You only on the other side of the wall, you don't see anything happening. You just see the two guys throwing the girl around. And then finally, one of them picks up the axe and just goes after her. And you hear a thud in the background <laughs> and they basically kill her. And, and again, it was a pretty decent scene. It worked out for what you know the concept was and everything. Right. And um, and then we cut back to the the, the, the rundown uh, cafe roadside diner. And it turns out that um, Joe and his producer buddy, George Morgan, surmise to themselves that this is where Liz would be hanging out because it's her sister's place. So, right. And uh, I, I, I will say it once again, I like George Morgan in this as the producer because, you know, people portrayed producers as sleazy figures and whatnot occasionally, not all the time, right. but here George looks like someone that you really, you really want to make a deal with because he seems very nice and affable. <laughs> <laughs> like he, he, he's not like one person reviewed this and said, you know, he's playing a sleazy character. I'm like, I don't think he is. He's not really playing a sleazy character at all. <laughs> he's actually very nice and very, very accommodating. <laughs> you know, he, he comes in and, you know, and, and, and uh, Joe says, Oh, this is my Liz's sister, Linda. And, and he, he, he shakes her hand and says, Oh, I'm very happy to know you, Linda. And then he's like looking around, the location mm-hmm. and uh, Joe says, yeah, my, he's this is my, my uh, producer friend, George Morgan, he's looking for a location to shoot his next movie and I'm probably going to be in it. And, and George is like looking around and he says, you know, Joe, this would be a great place to shoot the murder sequence. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you know, honestly, I think I, I remember watching that in the, uh, one of the, uh, the, uh, the, the extras on the DVD, like yeah, they they actually turn around the car and said, "Well, this house is pretty goddamn cool," and they yeah. they actually put that kind of like thing into where the uh, the characters couldn't find the owner right away and into the movie itself. <laughs> yeah, the, the scene you're talking about is when the two characters right and Carolyn Brandt. So to explain that real quick, that scene, according to Ray, was not was not originally going to be in the movie. He and George one day were looking for locations. And they came across that area and they were driving past it and Ray said, whoa, George, stop. Let's go over there. Let's look over there. And and, and George says, well, Ray, we're looking for locations. He said, exactly. Let's take a look at that place. He said, but it's not in the movie, Ray. It doesn't matter. Let's just go look at it. <laughs> so they go look at it. And Ray said to him, George, we can put this in the movie. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's an interesting location. We can shoot a murder sequence here. We need a murder sequence in the movie. Mm-hmm. And it, and it can take place in a desolate area. Here it is. Yeah. So that's how they chose that location. But I yeah. mean, I love that too because it's interesting you mentioned that. George is, plays a producer. He's playing himself in this movie, and he looks at this diner and says, "This would be a great place to shoot some." Fourth <laughs> wall broken. I know. Wow. <laughs> so, but continue so, on. Yes. So, anyways, the killers end up at the diner. At diner the, the the crummy roadside diner which was light on tap by the way <laughs> yeah. oh yeah I, I i love this so they go inside and uh herbie is going to make a phone call which <laughs> which calls his buddy she calls his buddy mort mad dog click this is when we right. discovered they're right. both brothers but or they're but, both related in some way shape right or form. i love this next part I, I hope you i hope you're going to talk about going gone what where they where 
where where, uh, where the, Keith and Gary are sitting at the table. And right, the, but, but and he Keith, walks in with the axe and he puts it on his lap like it's like no big thing. <laughs> I don't know. Everybody kind of just like <laughs> like shrugs it off, and I love how he says, "Poor, poor Hank, the guy, the guy who owned the place that he killed." Right. He says, "Poor Hank, he had dandruff." Right. And and I, I love that, and, and he t- starts flicking it off on, on the uh, when he's sitting on the bench at the restaurant or the cafe, and right. he's just flicking right. off the dandruff. I'm like, <laughs> and I love how I love how crummy this place is because she asks them what would they want to have, and they want a beer. So he brings she she so um, uh, Linda Linda play who plays the owner, she brings them the two cans of beer and Gary's character says, now how the hell am I supposed to open this? Yes. And she says, well, why don't you just pop the top, which is, was a, was a, I believe was a logo for the, um, the beer that they were drinking right. in that. Film. Light, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Keith's character is like, pop the top and he pulls the top open. And he goes, oh, pop the top because that whole idea of the, um, right. It was new. It was a newfangled. New. Uh, yeah, it was. It was brand new. And it was new then because back then, if you wanted to open up a, a you know, the aluminum can of beer, you had to have the the beer can opener. Right. You know that that thing that you use. You, you punch the hole like, in the thing. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. So, so that, I find that so interesting that they that Ray and them like sort of put that in that movie and <laughs> captured well, that at that time. Well, well they've been institutionalized for, you know, a decade or so. Like oh, they wouldn't yeah. know. I, I yeah. know. Yeah. But, but I'm saying like them just saying, right. that, Oh, pop the top. And then, and then Keith, after he opens it, goes, Oh, I see what you're talking about. Convenient. Convenient. <laughs> <laughs> so, so then, uh, um, Herbie is calling Mort mad dog click and, they're going to try to get together so they can make their getaway. And, um, and then Herbie after calling walks over to the cash register and just can just welcomes himself to opening it. And everybody is looking at him and, right. and, and I love it. How smart ass his character is when uh, Linda says, Hey, what do you think you're doing? And he says, I'm getting some change for a cigarette machine, <laughs> cigarette machine. And Joe's character is like, you know what? Put that money back. And then suddenly Herbie pulls that gun out and says, okay, just sit down. <laughs> right. And, and then he notices the, uh, the actor from the movie. Yeah, like, yeah, hey, yeah. you're so-and-so from the actor. I was like, Oh, and they put, puts him on like the, uh, not the pinball machine. There's some sort of machine. He puts him on. He's like basically saying dance. Basically. He was like, and yeah, yeah, yeah. He what 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 they do is um, Herbie is holding the gun against his face and tell them, okay, since you say you're an actor, you're going to be right here on the stage. We're going to have you do your big dramatic scene, yeah. and your big dramatic scene is, you know, basically we're going to yeah. kill you in front of you're everybody. Die, basically. <laughs> right, right. Now, in the meantime, um, uh, Linda has some rat poison underneath the table, so mm-hmm. she puts in the coffee that uh, Herbie's asking for. Right. And oh, I love it too. I love when George Morgan. Gets like really tired of this whole again. Nice guy George walks mm. up to them and says, "All right, that's enough of this." And they push him aside, and he falls to the floor. Right, right. <laughs> and you feel so bad for him because he's just trying to help out. Right, and you know, I want to say honestly that rat poisoning was a fastest rat poisoning effect I know, ever. It, it moved way too quickly. I kind of wish they like you know. I'm like the guy took a sip, like a sip, and just a, sip. a second later, like. Dead or falls suddenly, down. Yeah, like, suddenly, his, suddenly his breathing is constricted, like like yeah. within like half a second. Yeah, I, uh, mean, uh, I do. I do agree. It, it it went by 
so fast. Even when I was watching, like, ah, that needed a setup there. <laughs> yeah, you know, give it a couple of minutes. You know, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, draw it out a little bit. Be a little more dramatic, maybe. But anyways, they poison him, and he yeah. falls to the floor. And uh, Joe like grabs the axe from Keith and uh, knocks him down. And then, and then Liz try Liz runs out and opens the door. But of course, that's a bad sign because Keith. No, I'm sorry, because Gary now flips his shit and chases after her with his trusty knife. <laughs> out into like the the hillside right and then george morgan gets the gun and um joe tells him you know call the cops and he's chasing after um 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 uh, gary and there's a there's actually a pretty decent fight sequence above this uh like like huge hilltop thing i mean right. it was, it's it's pretty big. Actually, I will say it looked pretty dangerous how they were doing. That. Right, right. No stunt people on this thing. <laughs> well, yeah, they, they they barely had fifteen people total. <laughs> Probably, yeah. So there's this big fight sequence up there between Joe and Carrie. I'm sorry, Joe and and Gary. And then Liz runs down the hill, and a car drives by, and she approaches it and says, "You got to help me. My husband's in trouble." And of course, who's in the car? It's uh, Cash or uh, yeah, what's uh, it's Fort Mad Dog Click? Yeah. <laughs> Cash flag himself, and, and honestly, that guy is surprisingly very accurate with firearm. <laughs> yeah, he, <laughs> because he takes out like the entire police force. <laughs> yeah, he's he's pretty good. I mean, so he takes Liz hostage, right? And, and I love it though too. It, it, the, the movie doesn't stop. That that's the one right. thing I'll give the credit for. Right. The story is the story gets a little flighty, but it, it, nothing stops. It but, like keeps going. But here's the with the exception of having a uh, a a a. a, 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 a what, what do they call it? Not, not a um, not a police officer, but a, a commoner, a, a person that rides along, uh, a, a non-police officer, a non. What, what do they call it? Uh, there's, an, there's a specific term for it. Anyway, yeah, I forget. The term. Any, anyway, so they, they they have the the gentleman, the the star, the the, the uh, wannabe actor or the wannabe star, right, yeah. going along with the police detectives. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, uh, well, that's later. Wait, 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 hold on, one. That's later on. So basically, okay. so so. Uh, Joe and, and Gary are fighting, and right. Gary ends up falling off the cliff to his death. Right, a, a pretty decent sequence, I will say. It, oh, yeah. it worked out pretty well considering what they were it, doing. But it did. And then uh, Joe notices that Liz got in the car. He can see in the distance, and he's like calling out to her, but she doesn't hear him. Right. Also, I wouldn't have bothered because that car was so far away. <laughs> right, but surprisingly, he's pretty fast on his feet because he ran to the diner really quick. <laughs> So they get there and the cops are there. Right. And uh, they they have uh, the crazy axe killer, um, Keith. Uh, I love I love how Keith goes nutty when they take him out of there. He goes, no, no, I want my axe. I want my axe. And, and everybody has – w- it was pretty effective because everybody has a shocked look on their face like, holy shit. <laughs> right. Nutty. And they put him in the car. And then Joe shows up and tells the police, yeah, I saw my wife got into the car and they asked for the description of the car and he gives it and then one of them, and the police detective says, that sounds like the car for Mad, more Mad Dog Click. Jeez. Right. And they're like, man. A call back from like the first five minutes of the movie, yes. Yeah, yeah, but the, but the guy's like, I love what the detective says. He said something like, if that's who we think it is, man, she's in real trouble or whatever. <laughs> right. But here, you know, but here's the thing is, while what happens next is highly improbable, I do like the fact that they had like four or five officers after him instead of like remember in most horror movies and most things it's always like one rogue cop or maybe two rogue cops going out there to go get the bad guy and they always get mowed down. Yeah, yeah. And, Th- and, this and, is different. However, the outcome is kind of the same, but it's a little different. Uh, I, I, you know. 
Yeah, well, real quick. So the police officers in these movies, I'm just going to mention them because these would be guys that were once again have a connection with Ray Dennis Deckler. Um, one of the cops is uh, a fellow by the name of uh, George Caldwell, who would go on to be in Rat Finka Boo Boo, which we'll be talking about later. Um, supposedly, according to Ray, uh, George Caldwell was with none, none other than Mama Cass the day before she died. <laughs> I, I, I I don't know if you ever remember Mama Cass. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, according to Ray, for, uh, this guy was uh, with with her. Like I think he said on the day she died or before the day she died. Uh, and then we get James Bowie, who played the um, uh, stand-up comedian in The Incredibly Strange Creatures. He would also begin rapping Boo Boo. And uh, Ray told a very interesting story about James um, in that uh, James was uh, a gaffer and worked on some films, but he couldn't get in the union. And, you know, a sticking point for people, the reason Ray felt, well, it seemed like the reason why Jimmy didn't, wasn't allowed in the, the union was because he was black. But uh, right. so, so Ray fought for him to get into the, the electrician's union and they eventually relented and they got him in. But then unfortunately for Ray, he ended up getting uh, blacklisted from the union for like about a year. <laughs> so yeah. once again, nice guy Ray does something nice for somebody in Hollywood, just you know, treats Ray like garbage <laughs> for doing that. So. Right. But nevertheless, and then the other police officer in this movie is Ron Haydock, who's credited, I believe, under the name of Lonnie Lord. Ron would go on to become a a very interesting part of Ray's uh, la uh, later years. And there was actually a very sad outcome about him, which I won't get into until we talk about uh, Ron's final film he did for Ray. But these guys would go on to work with Ray on a couple of other films. Uh, and they actually make pretty decent police officers. <laughs> in yeah. This movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I will say this. They were not as incompetent as the two police officers in The Incredibly Strange Creatures. These guys look like they're on the ball. <laughs> right. Right. And that's what I mean by well, they're they're not the, they're not the average cops uh they they uh they seem to fo follow some sort of protocol maybe <laughs> yeah well they, yeah they do follow some basic protocol like they call they call in about the sighting of mort mad dog click and they're going to tell them the request for backup they're going to cut them off of the past and yeah yeah that's, it's, it's basic that's not, it's basic cop jargon slash you yeah, know whatever but, but, wild but, west but, stuff but, so. we are, but we're so used to seeing that that we pretty much know how that plays out you know right. oh yeah so so, so now, of course, there's a police chase after Mort Mad Dog Click. He's got Liz. They pull over to the side. She escapes him. He goes running off. And then he starts – he actually gets to kill the, some of the police in this movie, too. Right. He kills three officers before he finally gets taken down. Yeah, yeah. He gets to kill all three of them. And then, and then just when you think it couldn't get any crazier – he he he's running through the woods and he comes across this dude that that was riding a horse and is like <laughs> camping right and and he he shoots the guy and then proceeds to steal the horse and ride away <laughs> right and, and, and fun little fact that one of the one of the, the guy he shot was one of the marlboro men from the smoking ads <laughs> right right and originally that guy was going to double ray on the horse so when they but were ready pay him <laughs> no no that wasn't it the, 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 you could look at it that way but ray told the story he said so you know no actually no i'm sorry that guy wasn't originally supposed to get shot i think ray was just supposed to find the horse and like yeah. the camp let them behind 
But when Ray took one look at that guy, he's like, oh, hey, you're the Marvel Marvel man. He goes, "Okay, well, this is what I'm going to do. I'm not going to have you double for me on the horse because Ray said, you know, opportunity of a lifetime. I'm going to ride a horse and be chased. It's going to be like a Western. I don't want someone doubling me, Mm -hmm. so I'll do it. So he said to him, "Okay, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to come running in. You get startled. I shoot you. You're dead. And I'm going to drop a horse. So that's what he did. (laughs) (laughs) So that that and then and and I love the story. He said. Because they changed it because now he's on horseback and then the police are going to chase him. So it's going to be like almost like out of, like in a Western, you know, right. And, right. and George Morgan said, what are you doing? And he goes, no, George, don't worry about it. This, I'm, he said something like, I'm Federico Fellini now. I'm going to do whatever I want. <laughs> <laughs> this is Which my is, movie. Mine! So, I mean, like, I don't think he was trying to supersede him. He was just telling him, George, don't worry about it. It's right. going to, it's going to work out. And it does because as ridiculous as it is, it is very interesting. It is a chase sequence. So he gets, so more mad dog click kills the Marlboro man. He gets on the horse (laughs) and the police start chasing. And and I mean, chasing him, they chase him like in the police car while he's riding down the horse. And we get these great shots where like Mm -hmm. Ray is shooting at them and the the car is chasing him. And then we get this great wide shot where you can see him coming down the the Canyon pass. You got to, you got to, you got to relive a fantasy of his. Yes. Right, right, right. Well, like Ray always said, he was like he was trying to create an adventure and, and in a way he does with this movie. But at the same time, not at the expense of the audience, because, you know, we're sitting here going, yeah, wow, this is great. This is a horseback sequence in this movie. Right. <laughs> you know, and um, I remember before I saw this movie back in the late 90s, I used to order um, like, boot. well, they were bootleg catalog they were boot, they were catalogs for bootleg movies on VHS, you know, movies that were not like legitimately available on, on the common market. So I would and I think I would order things from like Sinister Cinema and something weird video. But I remember when Sinister brought the Sinister Cinema's catalog, I actually had like a subscription with them for a couple of years. I didn't get to order much from them because at that time to buy a VHS from them, it was like 1999. And I was like, you know, um, I was like maybe 17 years old and didn't have a job. And I wasn't going yeah. to, I had to ask my dad, you know, to order one of them. And it was like, yeah, he's going to order me only one. Cause it's 1999. So, right. you know. but anyways, I remember reading about the thrill killers in that magazine and it's, and I remember them describing it's a film noir horror movie that ends on a horseback chase. sequence. <laughs> <laughs> I remember reading that as a kid going, wow, that sounds pretty crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't order the movie though. I managed to wait until 2004 when it came out on DVD, <laughs> but, but nevertheless, I mean, I remember reading that. So, and, and, and that, all, that even watching this movie again after all these years, it still sticks with me in my mind that I remember reading about that in this catalog in regards to this movie. But nevertheless, so we get this big chase sequence. And then finally, finally, the police catch up with him and mow Mort Mad Dog click down with a shotgun and he falls into the water and he's dead. Right. <laughs> after all that insanity. He's dead. <laughs> and then probably my, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when they cut through the fireplace with yeah. the couple, which totally looks so – it's so cheesy and so – It is. It is. Oh, but, my goodness. But Ray – you know, it's funny though. Ray always said, you know, like he was – 
he was subconsciously he said he'd remember scenes from his favorite movies and he tried to put them in, into right, into right. film in some way. So he had to have seen that in some other movie. Oh, I, I'm and, not saying and, he didn't, but... <laughs> I know. And, and, and he probably knew full well it was cheesy, but so what? Well, there's a shot in um, in this movie where when uh, when Mort Mad Dog Click is dragging Liz behind him, mm-hmm. she turns and smacks Mort in the face and he falls down to the ground. Right. And she runs off and he runs away. And then when Joe comes out of the cop car and finds her she just reaches out and goes oh joe joe and hangs and and, and, yeah. hugs him. and, and, and ray i forget what movie a big was, embrace but he, yes a big yeah, yeah, embrace but, but but ray said he he subconsciously took that from a movie that he had seen previous oh i i i love any any admitted, yeah it is silly but that's what i wanted to yeah. do <laughs> any, anyway so, yeah go on but no so so after all the insanity that has happened it ends with um Joe and Liz are back together, and Joe finally says, "You know what, Liz? You're right. This I'm giving act, up the. I'm, I'm giving, giving up the dream. <laughs> I'm giving up the dream. It's 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 just not going to happen. You're right. Starting tomorrow, I'm going to go to the employment agency, and I'm going to try to work. I'm also going to work it out with the people I owe money to, and just tell them, hey, look, you know, I'm going to make this right. And then he gets the phone call, and it's producer George Morgan on the phone telling him, Joe, pool, I pool, no. Poolside. Poolside, yeah. But, but but just say the surprise for one moment. He tells him, I I just, you know, looked at the script. It's great. We're going to go forward with this movie, and you're going to play the lead part. And, then and it's going to be like, Joe, what, $5,000 a week for an eight-week shoot or something like that? Yeah, and, and Liz is first like, hey, wait a minute. You know, you said you were going to get a little Jim and John. And, and, he, and he tells her, he's saying he's going to pay me 5000 a week. <laughs> for an eight-week shoot. <laughs> for an eight-week shoot. And then suddenly she's like, oh. Oh, okay. Well, I guess we can go along with this for now. <laughs> it doesn't work out. And then George says to him, I'm going to have you teamed up with our next leading actress, Miss Transylvania. And, and Liz goes, wait a minute, who's Miss Transylvania? And what do you have and, to do? <laughs> and what do you have to do? And then he asks George and George's not answering. And then why is that? <laughs> well, because George starts to make out with Miss Transylvania, who, AKA the uh, diner owner. <laughs> yes. Yes. AKA Linda, her sister, <laughs> Linda, the sister, <laughs> which is funny. I don't think Ray intended this, but earlier on when Liz was visiting her sister, you know, the sister made it sound like, Oh, why did you leave? Tim, come on. He he was a looker. You should yeah. have stuck with him. He's kind of hot, but, you know. But, yeah. but but now she's like, well, since I'm going to be playing the, the leading lady in this, who am I going to do? Oh, I'm going to be with Joe? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the movie ends in this. <laughs> and no sequel. <laughs> no sequel, yeah. Well, what would it be called? Thrill Killers Part 2? No you thrilling, know? no killing. <laughs> yeah, no thrilling, no killing. But uh, I will say this. Ray must have really loved that title, the thrill killers, because later on in the eighties, he was trying, he was like announcing various projects that he was working on, which I, I think not all of them were true, but he would say he had a movie coming up. Like, well, what was it called? It's called Las Vegas thrill killers or, you know, oh. something like that. <laughs> like, like he would, and on the Jonathan Ross, uh, uh, TV show from the UK that did a profile on him. They were shooting some. Ray was shooting some movie in which these kill these guys were attacking someone wearing jackets that say the Thrill Killers on the back of it, and 
John Ross is jokingly asking Ray, why are they called thrill killers? Or what, what, you know, he's asking questions, and finally Ray... And it was, the whole thing was like a fun little act that they did. Right. But Ray goes to Jonathan, Jonathan, the reason why I'm calling them thrill killers is because I made a movie called Thrill Killers, and if people see the title of the thrill killers on the jacket in this new movie I'm doing, they'll go out and go buy the actual movie that I made. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, come on, Jonathan, you got to think of these things. Come on, you got to do... <laughs> <laughs> but yeah he must have really loved that title because there were a couple of projects that he was doing where thrill thrill killer or thrill killers was in the title you know you know so i yeah. but none of those films ever came to, to fruition as far as i know but uh but yeah that's uh that's ray's uh masterpiece the thrill killers and you know i mean it <laughs> All right. It's a it's a fun little movie. I mean, it's 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 uh, like I said, sixty nine minutes. It doesn't really tax your patience, and it's uh, it's got some interesting stuff in it. And like I said, it's got that weird low rent film noir suburban sprawl kind of thing going on, which ends with a uh, horse chase. Yeah, <laughs> just like the book said. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I don't think I have anything else to add there, Tim. Um, do you? No, I don't. I, I honestly, I think I will give this one a thumbs up. Actually, yeah, I will too. Thumbs up. I, I will recommend this one. In fact, I, I would say, if you didn't follow Ray's filmography in chronological order, I would definitely say go with the Thrill Killers first. So, <laughs> okay. With that, let's head into our final intermission, and we'll be right back after this, gentlemen and ladies. Christopher Koenig, take it away, sir. All right. Well, just like the just like with the previous production, the incredibly strange creatures who stopped living and became mixed up zombies, the Thrill Killers ended up with a distributor by the name of Michael A. Rips, who didn't seem to do much with the end results, and the picture went nowhere. But for Ray Dennis Seckler and George J. Morgan, it was back to Roadshow distributor Joe Carson to save the day. Once again, Steckler and Morgan played up the thrill killers with a brand new title called The Maniacs Are Loose and took it just one extra step by claiming the film was presented in a special process called hallucinogenic hypnosis. A special, <laughs> a special color prologue was shot featuring a hypnotist named The Amazing Ormond who would get the audience ready for the show by, quote, hypnotizing the viewers, unquote, and then... Whenever the maniacs kill someone in the film, there will be a quick cut to a red-colored spinning hypno wheel, and then theater attendants dressed as the maniacs would emerge from the exit doors and scare the bejesus out of the audience. Interactive cinema at its finest, folks. And as a side note about the amazing Ormond, his real name is Ormond Dale McGill, and he was a real hypnotherapist for the stage, wrote a few published books on hypnotherapy, and was labeled at one point the, quote, Dean of American Hypnosis. Pretty credible stuff for a no-budget horror movie repackaged for the drive-in market. So scary, so terrifying, we dare you to see the maniacs are loose. The world's first horror movie made in hallucinogenic hypnovision. Hallucinogenic horrors not only on the screen, but in the audience all around. 
around you. It's a hallucinogenic nightmare. You are put in the middle of the picture with bloodthirsty maniacs all around you. Not only on the screen, but live maniacs in the audience. All over the theater, looking for victims. Homicidal maniacs escape from an asylum. They terrorize a community. Gullible, love-starved women become their prey. And you'll see these same bloodthirsty maniacs in the audience all around you alive. For the thrill of your life, see, the maniacs are loose. <laughs> With three feature-length movies under his belt, it would seem Ray Dennis Steckler was on his way to achieving drive-in status, as opposed to mainstream Hollywood status, that is. But for Steckler, that was okay, for he was doing what he set out to do, and that was to make movies no matter what the outcome. And Steckler once again had the urge to make another movie, but this time he was officially doing it his way. For some, that would come off as a very self-destructive move. To Steckler, making a movie was creating an adventure. That isn't a philosophy that would make any investor proud per se. But before that, let's go back to his previous film, The Incredibly Strange Creatures, who stopped living and became mix-up zombies for just a moment. It was during the principal... The principal photography on that production, in which Steckler would be introduced to a fellow by the name of Ron Haydock, who was writing uh, articles for Forrest J. Ackerman's famous Monsters of Filmland magazine. During his early 20s, Haydock had started a rock and roll group in his hometown of Chicago called Ron Haydock and the Boppers and actually cut an album in 1959 titled 99 Chicks. After that, in the early 1960s, Haydock relocated to Hollywood. Working as a magazine editor and on the sly, he also wrote a slew of sleazy sex paperback novels under pen names like Vin Saxon and Don Shepard with lurid cover titles like Date Rape and Ape Rape. Anyways, uh, Haydock expressed interest in working with Steckler on future projects, and soon Ron ended up in The Thrill Killers as a cop that gets gunned down by Mort Mad Dog Click. Soon after that production... Haydock was working on a script titled The The Depraved, about three punks terrorizing the girlfriend of a famous rock and roll singer. While the idea on the surface looks similar to The Thrill Killers, Steckler claimed Haydock's script was partially inspired by an incident in which a creep neighbor was making obscene phone calls to Ray's wife, Carolyn Brandt. Nevertheless, Steckler was willing to make the film once he found out that Haydock had been part of a rockabilly band and cut an album in his past. Steckler would then take the princely sum of $20, bought two rolls of film for his trusty 60mm Bolex wind-up camera, and shot a sequence of Haydock singing one of his recorded songs by a swimming pool. Casting Carolyn Brandt as a love interest and utilizing some of his loyal friends contributing their talents in front and behind the camera, The Depraved was in production, and Steckler toyed with the idea of ditching that title for something else like Murder a Go-Go. Steckler also managed to wrangle a young film editor and sound editor by the name of Keith Wester for the project. Just fresh out of film school, Wester was looking to break in the biz, and Steckler offered him the opportunity to work on his film. It proved to be an interesting challenge. Steckler would shoot the entire movie on a 16mm Bolex camera without recording a live soundtrack. Wester's job was not only to edit the film, but also add in proper sound effects and and assist in dialogue re-recording. Wester certainly did a bang-up job, for not only did... Keith and Ray partnered together for a while with their own film editing business, but Wester would go off on his lonesome and become a six-time Academy Award nominee for Best Sound Design and working on such productions like, I don't know, Black Rain, Waterworld, The Rock, and The Perfect Storm, just to name a few. Hey, if anybody says it's bad for you to start out on the bottom and work your way up, they 
don't know what the fuck they're talking about. <laughs> Anyways, but not all was well on making The Depraved. Raiden Esteckler soon became uninterested in the film's story as he felt it wasn't very original, as well as realizing that the idea itself was turning into quite the boring movie. But not wanting to throw the whole film out, once again, Steckler turned to his improvisational mindset and decided it would be better to change the story midway and go into a different direction. In Steckler's mind, what if the rock and roll musician and the girlfriend's gardener suddenly reveal themselves to be... Are you ready for this, folks? Are you ready? Superheroes in the tradition of Batman and Robin and go off to save the damsel in distress. Mind blown. Come on. Going even, <laughs> going even further... The rock and roll singer is a crime fighter named Ratfink, and his assistant is named Boo Boo. Uh, Why, it's just so daffy it might do the trick. And thus, Steckler shifted gears, and the result is Ratfink a Boo Boo, a gritty black and white crime caper that eventually morphs into low rent superhero action movie in the blink of an eye. Now, wait a minute. This movie is called Ratfink a Boo Boo, not Ratfink and Boo Boo, right? Well, Rat Think a Boo Boo is exactly what the title says. And Steckler liked to claim the title designer at the lab forgot to either put the word and or an ampersand in between, and that Steckler didn't have the money to fix it. However, many years later, Steckler dished the real story. While shooting a sequence of Rat Fink and Boo Boo making a surprise visit at a kid's birthday party for an opening prologue sequence, Steckler's daughter saw the two and exclaimed, It's Rat Fink and Boo Boo! And Ray thought that title was perfect for the movie. Sadly, Steckler's film came and went via a minimal theatrical release, and it would take the early days of VHS and DVD to reintroduce Rat Finka Boo Boo to the world. And despite its low rating by those who expect low-budget films to be on the same level of mainstream big-budget movies, fans consider Rat Finka Boo Boo to be Ray Dennis Steckler's personal masterpiece of no-budget creativity. Rat Fink and Boo Boo. Masked men dedicated to fight crime and preserve justice. Look, Boo Boo, young lady in distress. Won't somebody help me? Me first, Rat Fink. Go, Boo Boo. I'll park the rat sickle. Oh, take that, Mr. Crook. Oh. Why not fight someone your own size, fella? Ah. Help me. Won't somebody please help me? The Rat Fink will. Hey, drop that girl. You heard me, you big ape. Take that, ape. Fink and Boo Boo, the leaders of today, building the leaders of tomorrow. And I want all you young people to grow up to be good American citizens. Remember, your country needs you. Rat Fink, you're the greatest. Rat Fink and Boo Boo are coming. Rat Fink and Boo Boo follows three criminals, Hammer, played by Mike Cannon, Link, played by George Caldwell, and Benji, played by James Bowie, who get their kicks assaulting innocent victims. And this troublesome threesome has their has set their sights on C.B. Beaumont, played by Carolyn Brandt, and they intend to kidnap her for ransom. First, Hammer begins to make various annoying phone calls to C.B. Link then follows C.B. on her way getting groceries, and then later Benji disturbs C.B. at her home at night. Eventually, the criminals abduct CB and call up her boyfriend, Lonnie Lord, played by Ron Haydock, who is a successful million-dollar rock and roll singer. The kidnappers demand ransom money in order to free CB from their clutches. And, faced with no other options, Lonnie teams up with CB's dour gardener, Titus Twimbley, played by Titus Mode, to become... Rat Fink and Boo Boo, friends to those who 
have no friends, enemies of those who make them an enemy, champions of women and children everywhere. Ratfink, mysterious masked nemesis of hoodlums and racketeers the world over, and Boo Boo, by day, a mild-mannered gardener, by night, the scourge of the underworld. Ratfink and Boo Boo, together they blaze a four-fisted campaign against the enemies of truth justice, and the American way of life. Remember, Boo-Boo, we only have one weakness. What's that, Ratfink? Bullets. Now let's go to fight crime. A special thanks to the narrator of Ratfink, Boo-Boo, Dean Danger, <clears throat> alias for Keith Wester. All right, so that's Ratfink, Boo-Boo, a film in which it runs 69 minutes there's not much of a story going on, but there is a lot going on visually in this movie. And uh, you're all probably wondering why we're, we're tackling this film, since it's not really a horror movie. And uh, I, I, we're not going to go into too in-depth about this thing, but the reason why I want to tackle this film is because when we get to the later films, I firmly believe it's Rat Think a Boo Boo that really solidified right into Steckler's approach to wanting to make films in an, in an improvisational manner, because as I stated in the in the um, in the um, intro, this was supposed to be some other film, and then about halfway through, Ray just got tired of it. He he didn't think it was very original. He thought he was re-repeating himself from the thrill killers. <laughs> yeah, it, it, he just got bored with it, and he wanted to do something else. And halfway through. The story goes is that they were shooting that scene where um, Lonnie Lord is sitting in the the room, strumming away on his guitar, singing his song about being alone or whatever. And uh, the the gardener, um, played by Titus Mode, is sitting there putting like ice on his head. And you know Ray was just kind of like, God, this is just going nowhere for me. And then he was thinking of something, and then finally he goes, Wait a minute! All right, I got a great idea. Ron, come with me. We're going to go to Sears Roebuck. So they go to Sears Roebuck. <laughs> they they buy the costume that that Ron Haydock's going to wear as Rat as Ratfink. You know the ski mask and everything. Yeah, and the <laughs> and, lights on it apparently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then and then uh, they take it back, and then they and then he asks um, Titus Mode, "Do you have like any kind of costume?" And, and and he said, "Titus said, well, I do have this costume I wear for uh, you know Halloween." He goes, well, can you bring it over? And he brings it over, and it's got, like, the working lights on it. (laughs) And he said, okay, we're going to change it. You guys go into this closet. You're going to change, and you're going to come out, and you're going to be superheroes. And (laughs) And that's how the story changed directions. Oh, man. (laughs) But you know what, though? Say what you want about that. I understand exactly how he he felt felt about that. He, He clearly wanted to do something somewhere in the movie that would throw the audience off of left field because he knew that, you know, I could do this standard crime caper movie that everybody else probably has done, or I can stop halfway through and I can fuck this up and make it look as crazy as possible. And, you know, just go into the next direction. So on the one hand, I do kind of like that about this movie. On the other hand, I do tend to agree with some people who feel that and particularly yourself, Tim, that it sort of like because of the 180 degree shift, you're now sort of not sure what this movie is supposed to be 
because in the first 40 minutes, it's like this black and white film noir kind of gritty crime film type thing. And then it switches gears and suddenly we're in superhero spoof category. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and people find that very jarring and I, and I agree it is very jarring, but, but I, I, at the same time, I understand why Ray did it. <laughs> so, yeah. but nevertheless, yes, that's Rat Fink of Boo Boo kind of in a nutshell. It's, yeah. Uh, did, did Tim, you watched this for the first time. You have never uh, seen this. Movie. Oh, this was I, our first well, viewing. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I didn't even know this thing existed. Um, <laughs> thanks to Chris and Tubi, the app uh, for free movies and television shows. It's so that's, two, I, so that's two people. That's two things to blame. Me and Tubi. Yes. <laughs> T U B I Tubi. Um, and that's and actually they got a really fine selection of. You know, pretty uh, mainstream and, you know, not really current movies and TV shows, but pretty current, I mean, uh, pretty mainstream stuff. But they also like to dabble in, you know, the obscure and the hard to find. And I, and I dig it. I like that a lot. Um, uh, yeah, this, it took me, I was telling you, telling the Chris off air that this movie took me about three times to watch over the course of, of <laughs> three days um, while I was working out and, you know, I had it on for, for various, you know, at various times. Um, yeah, I, I, I dug the opening sequence with the woman uh, getting robbed with yeah. the, with the exception of the uh, guys chasing her into an alley. Because she was running around and she just ended up in that alley, and then the other the other cohort of theirs popped out of a trash can like like Oscar the Grouch, and yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, well, wait a minute, hold up, I understand why he did what he did, but that's a really he could have been sitting there for for the, all night and then that popped out of the trash can. Cause, oh yeah, 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 that scene is like literally a stretch. But, I, I and, and then I found out that she died. That the apparently no, no, she didn't. Oh wait, she didn't <laughs> die. She, she they 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 just. They just robbed her and left her there. Well, yeah, but then she's like, agony. well, yeah, she, but yeah, apparently some, when one of the, um, the synopsis I read that, uh, yeah, the, the woman died. She, apparently she died. <laughs> uh, I don't know how truthful that is, but. You yeah, know, that synopsis sounds bogus. <laughs> um, <laughs> she, but, she didn't die. I, I mean, I, I, I watched this movie I, recently. But yeah, I, I, I thought, I thought that was a, a little dark for, uh, you know, that, but um, yeah, there, there are some. Um, inconsistencies there are some things that i would have liked to seen uh maybe introduce the characters much sooner on in the film yeah. um and just other things that just kind of like yeah are are all right I, well i'll watch um but yeah it was not very good in my, in well, my what opinion. was your reaction when they went to the superhero element because that's that's the part that really like I said, throws a lot of people off. I, I no idea what this movie is about. Yeah. It gets to that moment. I thought it was, um, it was clever. Um, you got these <laughs> low run superheroes and, and, and I like, probably say merely clever. Yeah. Um, I like, I like the aspect of the, what they were trying to do. They went from like film noir, like you, you mentioned, Chris, into like this campy superhero spoof. And I want to say my favorite uh, moment, and you mentioned it during your synopsis, is when they went into the in the bathroom or the, or the, or the bedroom, and they and they said, "Well, let's. This is a case for Red Finka Boo Boo." And they run there, and then they're stepping on each other and kicking each other, and you know, trying to get their, their costumes on, the crime fighting attire, <laughs> and. But yeah, other than that, yeah. Well, was, what about the line where he says, "Remember, boo boo, we only have one weakness." He goes, "What's that?" Red bullets. <laughs> bullets. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah that, yeah. that was funny. And then the where they're also following the guys and they lose them. He goes, like, "Oh no, we lost them." Wait, I know a shortcut. I'm like, 
wait a minute, you lost them. How do you know the shortcut where they're going? <laughs> you know? Well, and, I, did you love the bit where when they start the rat sickle, they, yeah. <laughs> this, the, 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 motor, the motorcycle that they run, oh, yeah. at one point, it's the sound of a flushing toilet. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that and the fact that maybe the guy was too big to fit in the sidecar, but he's standing up there holding the cape and he's like, Tally ho, this way. I, I thought that was pretty funny because it's like, because when they emerge from the closet and then they, and when he goes, let's go to fight crime and they walk out and then it cuts to the shot of like, it looks like Rat Fink is flying in the air. And I, and when I, I remember when I first saw that, I'm like, wait, so he can fly now? And then all of a sudden it cuts the shot of him on the motorcycle with Boo Boo driving it. Yeah. <laughs> I remember just laughing, going, oh, I see, that explains it. <laughs> One speed bump, that guy goes flying. <laughs> I know. And he's eating it, gravel. It, yeah, you could clearly tell they were not following safety procedures. <laughs> that. Yeah. But when you're young, you do shit like that, amazingly. Um, yeah, it's... Um, yeah, the superhero element, I I do agree. It's very jarring and it can and it can throw you off. But I think that's the reason why I sort of like the movie, at least for myself, is because it's 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 such a great example of Gonzo filmmaking, where you you have no money. Well, in the case of what Ray said, I, I love what he said. He said in an intro for this movie years ago on the old DVD, he said, "I started out with twenty dollars and." The twenty dollars still shows, <laughs> and, 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 and and you know it takes a lot to say that, but at the same time, I get what he's saying. It's like, yeah, I made this movie. It's not great, but um, we didn't have a lot of money. We only had ourselves. We had the camera. We had to come up with something. We had to do something a little different because we didn't want to constantly like be, you know, squeezed in between the competition and all that shit. So this is what we made. Uh, what you think of it, fine. It's it's good or it's bad or it's great or it's crap. But, you know, I get where he's coming from as a filmmaker because that's what any filmmaker starting out even is struck with. They're trying to figure out what they want to do and how to make their mark. And in situations like that, it's the same thing, too, with no money. It's, you know, you have no money. What can you do? You right. know. I want to make an action film where 50 cars blow up. Well, guess what? You only have $1,000. So, um the best way you're going to make a movie about 50 cars blowing up is you buy a bunch of little 50 matchbox cars and, you know, get a couple of M80s and hopefully if you know how to photograph it and make it look like it's real, you know, good luck to you. But, you know, it, so it, it's it's one of those things why I do, in a sense, admire this movie a little bit, because it is that element of trying to figure out what you can do with the idea even when the idea for the filmmaker is not working. Cause remember Ray said he switched gears because he got bored with it. Right. It was, it turned into such a boring concept. And now what was this ever made to be possibly serialized into like a few different well, like short movies? Well, well Ray told an interesting story and I think I mentioned it previous, but he at one point said before this movie ever came about that he actually tried to introduce an idea about doing a Batman musical. Okay. And, and you know, <laughs> by, and this is how ahead of his time he kind of was because back then everybody said, Ray, what do you think? Batman musical? Get what the fuck is wrong today? There was a Spider-Man musical and wasn't there. And there was like a reanimator musical. I mean, like, you know, it's amazing. So, but, mm -hmm. 
I don't think he ever thought he was going to serialize this. However, when we get to the Lemon Grove Kids Meet the Monsters in the, in the, in the next episode, he does try to do a slight crossover. I say slight, but it's interesting that it's interesting how much he loved that concept that he tried to like cross it over for a brief period and then it didn't quite pan out and everything. So that was that. But yeah, it's, um, but at the same time, it's easy to criticize this movie because its limitations are there. You know, yeah, the storyline's pretty thin. Um, the characters, we don't really know much. Well, we do know about them, but there's like inconsistencies that pop up. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's all within the moment of the movie too. You know, when you're making a film and like how Ray did it basically through improvisation, you know, didn't really think about all those things that were that, that would probably help. <laughs> but when you're making a movie and, you know, guerrilla filmmaking and you're trying to get things going, it's like, well, all right, whatever. But yeah, it's, um, it's, and, and this is one of those movies that you, you like, you'll go on letterbox.com and you'll find people really love this movie or they really hate it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. Uh, this is the one film. I think I got that quote from, from the beginning of our uh, retrospective where somebody said in one sentence, Ray Dennis Deckler should have, found better friends you know like <laughs> making making the the insinuation that better friends will tell you not to make films and it's like ah uh, you know what man I, I i don't agree with that because that's like saying you know if you want to better your life someone says nah maybe you shouldn't but it, it, but i get the i get the the snarky comments of why right. people make those statements but but yeah it, this is the movie in his in his his, his filmography that I think even he himself treated like it was his jewel in the crown because, you know, because it, it, there was another thing he said. He said in, in this interview, he said, if he said, if you love this movie, you'd watch it a hundred times. If you knew what I what it took for me to make this movie, you'd watch it 200 times, you know, and that and that's a that's a lofty statement to make. But then again, it's like, well, you know, he's got a point there we could only imagine what it took for him to make this movie. He, he had $20. He bought two rolls of film, $20 back in 1966. That was enough to buy groceries for like a, a for like a month. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So it, yes, I do agree. The movie is extremely inconsistent, yeah. but, it, but it's inconsistencies are, are surprisingly amusing. It, it has this great fuck it attitude. Like, you know, like, you're watching a movie. It's not about reality. It's not about your life story. It's not about my life story. It's about two guys that have this girl get kidnapped and they go in a closet and they turn into superheroes and they're going to go out right. and rescue her. Whether you like the idea or not, that's great. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. But as rec- as Ray Sector said, it's my film. I'm doing whatever the hell I want. <laughs> but and not many people agree with that and i i understand why but right. but i find that amusing but anyways so uh, I, and i also have to ask you tim the, you know it's interesting this movie when you think about the low the no budget aspect of this movie most people would easily call it a home movie but it's actually very well photographed and edited i'm you know it's it's kind of surprising actually too it does have a slight well, yeah, it has a slight professionalism to it. Here's the thing: is I think he, and Ray Steckler went on to direct some music videos, and you could see that 
he, that's I think where his talent really lies because when he's putting things to music, like the um, vignettes of him uh, of the of the um, Lonnie and uh, I forget the it's, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Lonnie Lord and CB Beaumont, yeah, yeah, are are, are are playing at the parks and they're shooting basketballs and they're you know basically it looks like one big long commercial and, it, and, it's, and it's fairly well done. It goes on a little too long for my t- taking, but I get what he, what they're trying they're trying to get these montages to build up a backstory so they can get into hopefully the action soon um well and it's interesting too ray was the one responsible for photographing a film a short film featuring his wife carolyn brandt prancing around a beach with the music for uh, jefferson airplane's white rabbit playing on yeah uh which you can find that on youtube believe it or not but it, but once again, that also just goes to show you, it took Ray and Steckler to to make to to pull that off <laughs> on on film, you know Jefferson Airplane's White Rabbit. <laughs> yes, you know you have to have like a really you have to have a really keen visual mind to you know <laughs> to to make that come together. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so uh, now we were talking earlier before we began. So basically, we're introduced to Lonnie Lord and. You know, you made a comment before we began that in the narration, he's 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 carrying his guitar with him without yes. a strap. Well, no, 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 without a case, without a case. Without he's, a case. He's, he's he's walking yeah. down Hollywood Boulevard uh, without a case, and I'm like, musicians, uh, I, I've known a few, uh, always carry their guitars when they're not using them or on stage in a case, yeah. <laughs> and he's just kind of like. Like the honky tonk man from in professional wrestling back in the eighties, like just walking down the street, like he, like he's getting ready to to to, to fight someone or, or sing a song or both. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that and and the fact that when he performs his his musical numbers, um, he doesn't wear a strap on his guitar, and unless you're sitting down, and even that, it's kind of hard. And most 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 guitarists and musicians will wear a strap just because it's more comfortable and it's yeah. you know gives it, it, it you right. know. Anyway. Yeah, it's one of it's one of those details, but then at the same time, it's got like I said, it's got this weird fuck it attitude, you know. So Lonnie Lord's walking down Hollywood Boulevard, <laughs> carrying his guitar, yeah. <laughs> signs autographs for these three ladies. Yes, he sold he sold millions and millions of records. Uh, yeah, I know we talked about that too. He's he sold millions and millions of records, and you know, but we don't see him living in a big mansion or anything like that. He, he, he does drive a nice car though. <laughs> yeah, he's driving a nice car. And again, that's one of those details that I, I, I get where someone would say, you know, for a guy that's like, you know, mega successful rock and roll singer, he's not living in a mansion. But, you know, at the same time, it's like, well, you know, who who cares? What if he's like very humble and doesn't give a shit? <laughs> I mean, I, I got to be honest with myself. If I made that kind of money, I would not be living in a mansion. I'd be living in a regular house. You know? <laughs> I mean, that, that's my mentality. I don't know about anybody else, but, right. you know, but. Yeah, those, those again, those details that come up. Yeah, I do agree. Those are very, very inconsistent. But, but, uh, and then of course we got our three characters: the the criminals, Hammer, played by Mike Cannon, Link, George Caldwell, and Benji, played by James Bowie. And and it's interesting too. So Hammer is named Hammer because he's got a hammer, right? Yeah, chains because chains. Yeah. Link's got chains. Yeah, yeah, and Link is called Link because he's got chains. Yeah, and then Benji, we really don't see him doing anything specific except being silly yeah 
and tweak it out. Like, yeah, hey, yeah. Hey, man, let's about- go, go do something, man. Come on, look out, do something. I'm bored. Come on, come on, come on. <laughs> well, I think Ray, I'm trying to remember if he said it in an interview, but he did say in that sequence where they're like living in this weird house, Apartment. they're just standing around trying to figure out what they're going to do for their next, um, you know, escapade into, cr- into crimes. You know, Be- Benji's like just pacing around and saying things like, um, you know, hey, what are we going to do? Come on, guys, we got to go out and do something. Let's do something. Let's do something. And Ray, I think, said that that scene was like inspired by the movie Marty for, with Ernest Borgnine. Because in the Marty, there's a scene where in the opening scene of the movie, he's he goes to a um, like a, a diner and meets a friend. And the friend says to him, you know, so, hey, Marty, what are we going to do today? And Marty's like reading the newspaper, not really paying attention. And he goes, oh, I don't know. What do you want to do today? <laughs> so, except, <laughs> except in Rathinka Boo Boo, it's like dialed up to a, like a thousand. <laughs> but yeah so they're trying to figure out what they're going to do and they whip open a phone book and they turn the pages and they finally decide to 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 stalk their next victim which is cb beaumont played by carolyn brandt ray's wife at the time and who's who's not uh, hard on the eyes at all (laughs) no no she's not she's not we she even gets a slightly you know for a movie that's i will agree with this too talk about its inconsistencies one moment it's a crime film and it becomes a superhero spoof but then it's like can you imagine bringing your kids to this she's in the bubble bath and then she gets out of the bubble bath and you see her backside you know and it's like (laughs) so it's like is this a kids movie or what (laughs) (laughs) but so she gets these calls from hammer you know saying things and he's just like saying things like is this cb beaumont she's like yes i want to talk to cb beaumont you know yes being and, a real and, and, and this goes on for a good couple of days. Yeah, and... yeah. Well, at one point, she goes to the grocery store, and and the the link character is following her, and doesn't really do anything to her. He's just kind of stalking her, and and you know, whenever he shakes a chain, you know, she hears it, and then she turns around, and he's not there. It's because he jumped behind bush or whatever, whatever. And then later on, she gets another phone call from him, and then Benji's out there like scaring the shit out of her. <laughs> Yeah, I'm calling the police, but let me run to another room and get, use the phone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then he runs away, and then and then we get another uh, music bit with um, um, uh, um, Ron Haydock singing "You're a Rat Fink," and you know this is so weird too. So Ray claimed that calling this movie "Rat Fink a Boo Boo" came technically from this song, which is interesting because this song that that. Um, Ron Haydock sings is from his 1959 album, 99 chicks. Right. So, but what's interesting though, is that he came up with utilizing the name rat think when they changed, you know, when they, when he decided to change gears to when they become superheroes. Right. So, I mean, I find it so interesting because it's like Ray says that he, he just came up with that, but then it's like the song that they're singing in this movie is called rat think. And in fact, Ray claimed that this was the scene that he spent $20 to shoot at someone's pool, you know, you know sure. just as a test. So I, I find that so interesting. I, and I wonder if there's a little bit of, you know, in, inconsistency in Ray's claims once in a while, but nevertheless, so we get this. Oh, and by the way, one of the, one of the pool party members is wearing one of the, the, the monster masks from the incredibly strange creature. Right. I, 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 yeah. Yeah. I did notice that. I'm like, Oh, the, the the gorgeous girl's wearing a, a silly mask from another movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. From from an even sillier movie. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, so then of course, um, uh, Hammer calls up uh, CB at um, at um, uh, Lonnie Lord's house, uh-huh. and 
uh, I'm trying to remember. For, no, no, you mentioned something about um, how how in the hell would they have known that she was there? Right, right. And call her. Yeah, yeah, yeah because they, they got the phone book, so they call her at home and they harass her at home. But then she goes to either Lonnie's house or some other person's house. That's never really clear. It could have been the guy who was grilling burgers at the at the pool party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The dude with the glasses. Uh, with right. <laughs> you know, kiss the cook kind of guy. Um, uh, but but then she answers the phone. I'm like, well. That's a. They don't really. Sh they don't show her being. They show her being stalked at the grocery store, but they don't show her. Like, how would they know her like schedule or what her date plan was? Oh, yeah, date planner. I'm like, but I, when, yeah, but when she runs out of the house, there's a moment where, I think, the Link character is standing outside, and, obviously stalking her. So, uh, what probably would have happened? And I I do agree. They probably Ray should have probably have shown this. Is that Link followed her to where she was going, right. then was like quickly, you know, called one of the guys that he's working with, you know, mm -hmm. Benji or, or 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 Hammer, and tell him, okay, uh, here's the address. Look it up in the phone book, and then they look it up. And, okay, now call there, and then I'll go back over there. We'll see what happens. Well, it's funny they named this movie Rat Fink because you know what a rat fink is, right? <laughs> Right. That's and it's, it's, an inform, it's, an, it's an informer or a spy or a traitor. So why is this rat, why is Rat Fink a superhero? Well, <laughs> but even better, it's when you think of the word Fink, it's spelled F I N K. Right, not it's P. Spelled, it's spelled P. But that but you look that up, P F I N K, that's another spelling for it, I believe. Yeah. But you are right. I find that interesting too. Why is the superhero because, character named Ratfin? Because if you if you listen to those old movies, I sorry, I know we're getting off track, but it just popped in my head. I'm like Rat Fink, that those those oldie tiny movies are like, oh, he's a rat fink. You can't trust that yeah. guy. Ah, yeah, yeah. Go that's go gaga him, Smitty. You know. But that's the name of a crime fighter in this yeah. movie. <laughs> One of the many things I don't understand <laughs> about yeah. this movie. But, but nevertheless, so yes. But getting back to yes, what yeah, you're so saying. CB, so CB gets in her car and drives home in a panic because she can't understand why they're calling him. And then eventually the three guys show up and kidnap her. Oh, and then Hammer takes his hammer and knocks the um, the gardener Titus Twimbley, played by Titus Mode, in the head and knocks him down, <laughs> and leaving him behind. And then, of course, Lonnie Lord shows up, and then and, and then basically these guys kidnap uh, CB and take her, and they're gonna hold her for ransom. Fifty like, thousand smackers. <laughs> yeah, fifty thousand dollars. And then this is when the movie changes direction. To, to um. Oh yeah, it's yeah, so now, bad. <laughs> but you, but you mentioned something here that uh, was very interesting that I do agree with you about. So, uh, real quick, even though Titus Twimbley, the gardener, and Lonnie Lord, the singer, are this, these superhero characters, um, the way pal, apparently ask, pals, apparently pals, yeah, yeah, they're apparently pals, despite the fact that we never see, the, we never get an indication that they were friends to begin with. Or even they, they even knew each other existed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like they, so it's, it's like we never found, we never get any indication that they knew each other. In fact, I although I'm kind of torn on this idea. What you you mentioned that, and I mentioned that it would have been interesting if, if before the big reveal about them being superheroes is if 
there was a scene where somebody was being attacked and then the superheroes showed up and then it would give you an indication right. about what this movie was going to be about. Or, or you, know, you know, in fact, that you know, what's his face likes to eat. Ray, sorry, let me start this again. Ray likes to use the radio as a form of like informing, you know, the viewer what's going on or what's going to happen next with the things. Why aren't, aren't uh, the news reports saying, where is Rat Fink and Boo Boo? I know, yeah. Where, you know, like there's a crime cool. spree going around, you know, like yeah. something, something to alert that hey you know superheroes are right around the corner <laughs> you know yeah uh, I, I don't know I, I wonder though if perhaps ray just wanted to make it the big surprise but and i, I and, and the surprise it is but then at the same time it's like well it would have been great if there was like a scene where like when you know uh lonnie lord is driving cb to her place and you know they're in love and shit it could be then, it could be right after the musical like Breaking yeah, yeah. news! Breaking news! Uh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Or like breaking news, and then like, and then like Lonnie Lord, you know, and then she says, "God, maybe have CB say, God, who would want to go out there, dress up as a superhero, and try to avert crime?" And then of course Lonnie Lord, like, ah, probably just some nutcase out there trying to think they can do good for the world. And then of course, you know, that would be like the perfect wink, wink, nudge, nudge yeah. moment. <laughs> Where he, 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 he can even break the fourth wall and spike the camera and just kind of wink yeah, at the yeah. camera. Well, this movie kind of does break the fourth wall once with. <laughs> What's when they get in the closet and come out as Rat Fink and Boo Boo, and then the narrator says Rat Fink and Boo Boo, you know, yes. you know, friends to those who have no friends, enemies to those who would make them an enemy. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but I will say, even go home, they, announcer, you're drunk. <laughs> but I will say, once when they get out of that closet door, the energy of this movie does pick up. It's like boom, you know, <laughs> and then so they do the whole ransom thing and then they, 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 you know, they follow Benji back with the suitcase and they get to where they're keeping CB a hostage and they open right. it up and it turns out there's nothing but magazines in there. Actually <laughs> monster movie magazines, famous monsters of Filmland, and a couple of stuff that Ron Haydock was writing for at the time or, or he did at one point. And then rat Fink and boo boo showed up and we get this, lengthy fight sequence where they're all fighting but it's all somewhat comical and there's a moment where <laughs> was it boo boo like does that whole tarzan thing and tries to go yeah yeah and he slips and falls and like <laughs> his watch doesn't work and benji takes the watch off and steps on it to fix it <laughs> yeah and, and boo boo's like oh gee thanks and then benji knocks him down. <laughs> yep 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 <laughs> silly shit that happens in this movie so basically a lengthy fight sequence nothing really like interesting but you know and i love how i actually love how carolyn brand's character cb knows who they are because when they start fighting she goes hit him for me rat fink and i'm like when did she know about these guys right <laughs> but so, and then there's like a long chase sequence Right, a, a little too long for my liking. Uh, yeah, like... yeah, it goes on. They end up in like Topanga Canyon, I think. Right, and uh, looks looks oddly familiar to where the killers were filmed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the killers. You know, we're back to familiar location territory. Um, and and then and then the movie literally goes off the rails, Tim. When what happens? <laughs> Well, apparently a gorilla escaped from a zoo. <laughs> or not from a zoo, from an owner. Some well, weird the, owner. Okay, <laughs> so the, well. Okay, so whoever was writing the synopsis said zoo. I I I would I would assume owner because the guy acted he like it was had one handcuff to he had a handcuff or a chain with another handcuff or another uh, cuff link. I'm like 
this guy owns the monkey. <laughs> and, yeah. and there's probably a good reason why he's trying to escape from this weird guy. <laughs> yeah, maybe there's some weird relationship shit going on. Yeah, but, anyway. but, but, but they said zoo. So apparently they're trying to keep okay. it PG. <laughs> well, I, I love it, too. And the gorilla has a name, Kogar. <laughs> but I love it when the gorilla kidnaps CB. And then once when Rat Fink and Boo Boo, oh, um, Rat Fink and Boo Boo, like, knock down Benji and, and, and Link and uh-huh. they just stand there in this open area with their arms thrusted on their side like ah, job well done and suddenly this nebbish dude shows up and says will you please tell your tell that girl to bring back, back my, my gorilla <laughs> <laughs> and then now Ratfink's got to fight the gorilla and the gorilla actually kicks Ratfink's ass <laughs> well yeah you're fighting a gorilla <laughs> I know but it's so wild because you'd think it'd be another moment where like Ratfink would like come out on top. Nope, he doesn't. But then CB runs over and helps him up and takes the mask off. And then she's like, oh, it's you, Lonnie. And then they kiss. And Yeah, and then you think it's the end. But no, 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 there's more. <laughs> no, there's a parade sequence. Oh, yeah. So, okay, so now we go from where Ratfink and Boo Boo compared for the viewer is, you know, we don't know anything about it. We figure they're, they're just... A bunch of a couple of nobodies, except for when the announcer says, "You know, heroes that have no or friends that have no friends," kind of thing. But yeah, there's a whole parade. I'm like, for this guy, for these guys, they didn't save the world. They saved a rich a musician's girlfriend. They're throwing the whole whole villages or the whole city throwing a parade for this one person. I'm like, I could see if they fought like the Joker and or some sort of supervillain that, and they save the city and where they save multiple people's lives. No, they beat up three thugs. <laughs> they get a they get a ticket tape parade. <laughs> I'm like, hey, come on, man! It's Red Pink Boo Boo. You just gotta. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> you gotta go with the silliness. I'm like, I, oh. I do agree though. It's like they're having this big parade for these guys, and they just thwarted three like, like no name nobodies. <laughs> right. They they reminded me, and some of the action sequences reminded me of the old Batman, like that the thug number one, thug number two, and thug number three. Like just the guys in the background just get their ass kicked by Batman, Robin, you know, for you know five minutes, <laughs> and, you know, and that's what they, essentially what they were. I would have liked to see more of a a, a villainous side, more of a leader, like in take shape but i know yeah. it's only an hour movie or you know tv movie yeah it's a movie um and yeah it, i just certain things i would have done differently to to make it more entertaining oh yeah i agree i mean even when i'm watching it i, I thought that too i'm like yeah there's some things if i was doing it i would do it differently yeah. yeah but but and i love it too at the end of it we get one more music moment oh yeah We're beach blanket beach. bingo <laughs> yeah 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 it was it was all right it wasn't great but it was fine i mean for what it was yeah. it, you know showing some highlights from the fights and you know and it, you know just everybody looking like they're having a gay old time come on you gotta <laughs> yeah but never do it's only it's only a movie boo boo <laughs> <laughs> oh, gotta watch out for that park ranger, boo boo. Yeah, yeah, gotta look out for those criminals, boo boo. Hey, boo boo, <laughs> how about a picnic basket? <laughs> <laughs> and then the movie's over, <laughs> and that's where I think of boo boo. Right, and that's when I disembark on my elliptical after my work. I'm like, what the fuck did I just watch, Chris? <laughs> but you know what? I think that's what makes the movie, even though it's not great in its yeah. own way special it is a it is a what the fuck movie i mean it, it's it's so unconventional you know that that that's the thing it's like and again i'm not saying this is a great movie but that's no. the thing about unconventional movies that's so interesting is like you know yeah it's great you go to the movie theater and you you know again it's like the superhero movies today the same type of superhero movie that's playing is the same as the other one and it's like 
uh, okay, you know, can we have fun with this? Can we like, you know, to, you know, mix it up a little bit, you know, get some variety in the concept, you know, maybe like juggle some shit around, you know, have, <laughs> you know, I mean, but, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, but nobody wants to do that. It's like, no, we're going to keep using the same formula over and over and over and over again. And in a Ray's case, even though superhero movies weren't really like the rage back then, you know, he said to himself, no, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to halfway through this movie. I'm going to fuck with the audience. I'm going to have fun with this idea, you know, it, and I'm going to change it. And, it. and it's, yes, it's not a conventional movie by any stretch, but I give him credit for that because that's what you do when you're trying to do something with an idea that's not quite going anywhere. But yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it, if you go into this movie, yeah, it's not mainstream. It's not conventional. It, it's, it's cult movie, psychotronic shit. But I kind of wish there was, I kind of wish the mainstream would like take that lesson, you know, because you know, like I said, even to, in today's market of the movie theaters, where the movies are, movie theaters are kind of dying. It's like you know, do something else. You know, have have some fun with the idea. Do have something. Do something. You know, a little more out there, and you know, some variety. But nope, nope. It's 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 always going to be. No, we have to do the same standard shit. Follow the rules, all that crap. And it's like, ah, eh, come on. That I mean, that's my take. I mean, I, not not everybody agrees with it, and, and that's fine. But you know that's the that's yeah the, I, i'll have to disagree with you there um yeah, on that but, I mean, yeah. but that's what but you think about it tim that's the great thing about movies the movies they can't always be conventional there has to be something different that's that 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 is that is true that is yeah, true I mean, it, it's you know i mean i can you know if you watch the same horror movie i mean and when we have <laughs> we, we whoa tread lightly chris <laughs> yeah, we have but but we're not afraid to say you know we saw this movie before i mean you yes. know all right it's all right but come on what else do you got <laughs> yeah you know, so i mean I, that's that's my take yes yeah, so that's that's rat finka boo boo yeah it's not a great film by a stretch but for myself i i appreciate its weird charms in, in, in a way well it won't, win, it won't win any awards we all know that no but, it, it, well it, it could have won a razzie if the razzies were around back then yeah well the golden turkey award shit but you know but then but that's the other thing though too it's like it even if it's not a great story it's still decently put together. So does that really like put it in a bad film category? I mean, if this was one of those, if this was a movie where like the camera pan and you saw a crew member yeah. eating side, a sandwich, <laughs> yeah, you sandwich. And for some stupid reason, the editor cannot cut that shot out. Boom's in the shot. <laughs> yeah. Or, or that, or even something as basic as the boom is in the shot. You know, it's like, is it still a bad movie? I mean, again, yeah, it's not a particularly good movie, but so, I mean, I I can't put it in the Razzie category because I think we could find several other contenders that would fall in that category. Oh, yeah. So I mean, in the same episode, yeah, in the, yeah, the same episode. Um, but uh, <laughs> but here, here's the thing. So I, I've got something I wanted to share with you. I found this uh, on the Wikipedia entry, and it's called the reception of of the uh, of the film. It yeah. says TV guy rated Rat Fink a boo boo two out of four stars and called it amateur amateurish film whose goofy improvisational good humor makes fun of a, makes makes it a lot of fun to watch. So but there, you know what? But that's another thing. If that TV guy reviewer was here, I say, well, what's amateurish about it? You got to say what? Right. Like. I mean, is the camera work bad? Is the sound recording crap? You got to, I mean, I'm sorry. I sound like I'm like taking it too right. seriously, but that's what I can't stand about some reviewers when they use the word amateur. What's amateur? You have to say what it is. You can't just say 
amateurishly made movie. What's amateurish about it? You yeah. know, you got you got to really give us something, man. Right. <laughs> but I, but I, but you but go on. Yeah, but yeah. Sorry. No, no, no. And then uh, Jackson Griffith of News and Review wrote: Either Ratfink Boo Boo is a raving pile of crap, or it's some kind of genius filmmaking. I'm inclined to give Steckler the benefit of the doubt. And this is from a, a printed media review. It is located in Robert Freeze's Psychoholics Unanimous. <laughs> yeah, it's. But I will say this though too. I remember a story that Ray told. So he screened this movie for a critic from I think it was from Variety, who he said surprisingly gave him a, a, a decent review, a decent plug. So he's like, okay. And then he showed it to another reviewer from some other, you know, like maybe Hollywood Reporter or whatever the fuck, and. He said, that guy who had to sit through this movie, he must have smoked like five packs of cigarettes <laughs> and was like so nervous. And then when the movie was over, he said he he got up and he, he saw Ray and, you know, Ray was just like, OK, so what do you think of it? And the guy was like, um, to tell you the truth, I don't know what I thought of it. <laughs> so he didn't quite get the <laughs> So it, it wasn't really a positive review. But Ray but Ray understood. That's a that's the thing you gotta give him credit for. He understood. He didn't sit there and like, you know, argue with you. He's like, okay, all right. I guess it wasn't for you. So it's write what you gotta write. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's um yeah, well, and it's interesting you mentioned that review where he said they, they, they can't figure out if it's crap or some crazy form of genius right. filmmaking. I mean, I wouldn't go on either road. I would say it, it, as for low, for no-budget filmmaking, it is what it is. But on the other hand, it's a movie that dares to do something else than just the standard. And then I would probably say... What you think of it at the end will be up to you. But but it but once you see Rat Think of Boo Boo, you probably won't forget it in quite a while. <laughs> <laughs> Even if you try. <laughs> Even if you tried, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yes, it's not. It's yeah. I I I, I don't want to be that guy. I don't. I I know I sound like I defend Ray a lot on this, but I you I have. Get, <laughs> I, I know, but I get where he's coming from. I'm not saying he's the perfect filmmaker, but I get where he came from when he made this. You know, I mean, I mean, I, and I and like I said, I can relate to him because as a young man in my late in my teens and my twenties, you know, my teens when I was making films on a, on a, on a camera and short films on a camera. And then when I went to college at Columbia college of Chicago, you know, and, and, and making films there and, you know, and, and, and you, people don't think about that, but Ray, Ray in an interview said one of the best things ever about critics. He said, he said, one of the, the thing about critics that I like and dislike is that they've never made a film before. They never sweated it out. They've never, They've never sat there and had to make the decision about what they were going to do if one day it was sunny outside and then it rains and then it, and it changes the dynamics or an actor doesn't show up or the money is not there. They never sweat that out. And that's true. I mean, even though we are critics and we're reviewing these movies, but I can say in my situation, I have sweat that out. I know how that felt. Right. <laughs> you know, even, even making films where it's a class assignment. I remember one time an actor didn't show up and we're wasting time. And I, and finally I turned to somebody who was on the crew and it wasn't like a big thing we were doing. It was like some five minute thing. I said, you, you're playing this part. You're going to sit here and play the bartender and you don't have to say any specific dialogue because it was some, it was really not much of a dialogue heavy sequence, but I said, you'll play the bartender and we got to shoot this now. 
<laughs> so I was, but that's what happens. And you, you, you got to make those split second decisions and, uh, and they're, and they're very hard decisions because at the end of the day, you ask yourself, God, was, was what I did. Was that correct? Was that right? Did that help me? Does that, does that help the person that I told you're going to play this part, regardless of the fact that you were the dude holding the boom mic? Just two seconds ago. Two seconds ago. Yeah. But then those, those are the things that, in no budget, low budget movies that you do, or if you want to, if one even better example, I'll, I'll step aside from Ray Dennis Steckler. All you got to do is go read the stories about how Sam Raimi, Bruce Campbell, and Bob Tappert made, made evil dead. And believe me, when you read those stories, you, if you're a filmmaker out there, you, you will probably experience something like that. You will probably experience making a film and there is going to be a problem every second. <laughs> and and you want sitting there saying to yourself, man, I hope I'm making good decisions because this is this, <laughs> this seems like it's going to turn into garbage. You're right. <laughs> and as we all know, Evil Dead didn't turn into garbage. It turned into one of the iconic horror movies of right. its era. But well, you know, and, that, and, that, and that could be with almost anything. I mean, Star Wars could have went very rarely, could have very easily gone down that same road. Yeah, but, or uh, Casablanca. Casablanca, right. supposedly, yeah. when they made that movie, there was not a complete script. They were writing it each day. You know, nobody knew if that movie was going to be any good. And then here we are now in 2023. It's like one of the top yeah. AFI 100 films. Mm-hmm type thing so you never know and that's the thing about ray is that i i I give him a lot of credit he 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 understands the concept of you know the journey into the unknown the fear of the unknown who knows how it's going to turn out (laughs) Mm -hmm. so but anyways yeah rafika boo boo i will i for myself i'm going to give it like a thumbs in the middle it's not great it's not perfect but i do i do appreciate its wacky charm in some ways and i and i will even go one step further to recommend filmmakers and film students to watch this movie and use it as the blueprint concept of this is what you'll probably be stuck making if you cannot raise tons and tons of money to make films because it's it's the truth man take it take it from a guy who's been around the block or two <laughs> <laughs> it, it it's it, it you know you know stop watching documentaries about how star wars was made or how you know jurassic park was made because nine times out of ten when you graduate from film school or you want to get into films you will not be on those films you will be on a film like rat finka boo boo or at whatever. least not right away <laughs> right away well or who knows you know what i mean Fred Owen Ray is still alive and he still makes movies and he hasn't made it into major like Steven Spielberg level filmmaking. He's now making Christmas movies for Hallmark, but you look at his filmography and it's like, well, the, it, not great movies, but the man has continued to have a career. So, right. And, so you can't, and, and you know you can't what? Scoff it. <laughs> it, it uh, Hallmark movies are not my cup of tea, but you know what? I'm sure he's got a pretty large following of people who do like his work. So yeah, yeah. So I mean, to like each I, their own. <laughs> to each their own. Yeah. So I mean, but anyways, yeah. Thumbs in the middle for me, Tim. I think I know what you're going to give it, but yeah, it I'm anyway? going <laughs> to give it the big old raspberry. <laughs> thumbs down. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's okay. I, I I really wanted to like it, but I couldn't. Um, that's okay, so, though. We understand. It's understood. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Christopher, we you've kind of teased a little bit without knowing you probably teased the audience a little bit. What are we doing for our next episode? Well, for part two of our Right in a Stuckler retrospective, we are tackling the Lemon Grove Kids Meet the Monsters 
and a movie called The Trooper, also known as Blood Shack. And there might be another surprise down. There might be. I'm not. I'm not going to make any promises. Another surprise in the episode, which Tim may not know about. We'll see. Kind of working on it. I don't know. I haven't read all my emails yet. <laughs> well, well, put it this way, Tim. With what I'll be talking about, you will not have to worry watching the films. Put it this way. I mean, you'll have to watch The Lemon Grove Kids Meet the Monsters and The Trooper. But okay. okay. But with what I'm planning for the last half of that episode you won't have to worry about well, uh, <laughs> color me intrigued dear listeners <laughs> yeah. if anything you will be asking questions and i will be providing I always ask questions <laughs> no but i mean like you will be asking questions like oh okay <laughs> but anyways yes so that that is our next episode down the line and so okay. anyways yes all right and, and i have to ask though tim have we ever gotten any mail recently you know not yet sir not yet i am uh I'm, we're still waiting we still got, i know it's coming though i I have a feeling in the next couple episodes we should have probably some mail coming through. Um, I, I see our downloads have, 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 are, are, are going nicely. Uh, so I'm assuming we'll get something shortly, either through one of our, our many social media outlets, through uh, my Slasher app, through um, our, our Facebook page, through Twitter, through um, uh, Instagram. So, yeah, we're there. Just come check us out. Um, so, Chris, do you have anything else you'd like to add before we bounce out of here this month? No, I think that's it. Just keep an eye out for part two. So for Chris King, I'm Tim Kaza. Thank you for listening this month. See you on down the road. Take care and have a great evening, afternoon, or morning. Good night. Thank you for listening to THSP Season 9.